Hello there, and welcome to this episode of Down to Sleep. This is six hours of fairy tales read softly with fire sounds in the background to help you get the rest that you deserve. I hope that you enjoy it. You'll hear tales from the Brothers Grimm, short stories by Oscar Wilde, and some classic fairy tales. Thank you so much for joining me. This is the audio version of the podcast, which you can hear on Spotify and everywhere you get podcasts. You can also listen for free on YouTube, which has even more readings than here, and the episodes are usually quite a bit longer if you're someone that needs a particularly long time to fall asleep. And the best place to listen is Patreon, which is a few dollars a month. It supports me and the podcast, and you get at least two episodes every week. But wherever and however you are listening, thank you. I hope that this helps. I don't really get to hear from you on this audio version, so if you would like to send me a message, you can find me on Instagram at Down to Sleep Podcast. All of these links and everything you need can be found below this episode. Now, with all of that out of the way, you should have had more than enough time to get yourself into bed and your head on the pillow. So take a nice deep breath for me. Let's tuck you in. And let's get down to sleep. Once upon a time... In a far-off country there lived a merchant, who had been so fortunate in all his undertakings that he was enormously rich. As he had six sons and six daughters, however, who were accustomed to having everything they fancied, he did not find that he had a penny too much. But misfortunes befell them. One day, their house caught fire and speedily burned to the ground. With all the splendid furniture, books, pictures, gold, silver, and precious goods that it contained. The father suddenly lost every ship that he had upon the sea, either by dint of pirates, shipwreck, or fire. Then he heard that his clerks in distant countries, whom he had trusted entirely, had proved unfaithful. And at last, from great wealth, he fell into the direst poverty. All that he had left was a little house in a desolate place, at least a hundred leagues from the town, and to this he was forced to retreat. His children were in despair at the idea of leading such a different life. The daughters at first hoped their friends, who had been so numerous while they were rich, would insist on their staying in their houses, but they soon found they were left alone. Their former friends even attributed their misfortunes to their own extravagance and showed no intention of offering them any help. So nothing was left for them but to take their departure to the cottage, which stood in the midst of a dark forest and seemed to be the most dismal place on the face of the earth. As they were too poor to have any servants, the girls had to work hard and the sons, for their part, cultivated the fields to earn their living. Roughly clothed and living in the simplest way, the girls regretted unceasingly the luxuries and amusements of their former life. Only the youngest daughter tried to be brave and cheerful. She had been as sad as anyone when misfortune first overtook their father, but soon recovering her natural gaiety, she set to work to make the best of things to amuse her father and brothers as well as she could, and to persuade her sisters to join her in dancing and singing. 
but they would do nothing of the sort. Because she was not as doleful as themselves, they declared this miserable life was all she was fit for. But she was really far prettier and cleverer than they were. Indeed, she was so lovely, she was always called Beauty. After two years, when they were all beginning to get used to their new life, their father received news that one of his ships, which he had believed lost, had come safely into port with a rich cargo. All the sons and daughters at once thought their poverty was at an end, and wanted to set out directly for the town, but their father, who was more prudent, begged them to wait a little, and though it was harvest time and he could ill be spared, determined to go himself to make inquiries. Only the youngest daughter had any doubt that they would soon again be as rich as they were before. They all loaded their father with commissions for jewels and dresses which it would have taken a fortune to buy. Only Beauty, feeling sure it was of no use, did not ask for anything. Her father, noticing her silence, said, And what shall I bring for you, Beauty? The only thing I wish for is to see you come home safely, she answered. But this reply vexed her sisters, who fancied she was blaming them for having asked for such costly things. Her father, however, was pleased. As he thought that at her age she certainly ought to like pretty presents, he told her to choose something. Well, dear father, she said, as you insist upon it, I beg that you will bring me a rose. I have not seen one since we came here, and I love them so much. The merchant reached town as quickly as possible, only to find that his former companions, believing him to be dead, had divided his cargo between them. After six months of trouble and expense, he found himself as poor as when he started on his journey. To make matters worse, he was obliged to return in the most terrible weather. By the time he was within a few leagues of his home, he was almost exhausted with cold and fatigue. Though he knew it would take some hours to get through the forest, he resolved to go on. But night overtook him, and the deep snow and the bitter frost made it impossible for his horse to carry him any farther. Not a house was to be seen. The only shelter he could get was the hollow trunk of a great tree, and there he crouched all the night, which seemed to him the longest that he had ever known. The howling of the wolves kept him awake, and when at last day broke, the falling snow had covered every path, and he did not know which way to turn. At length he made out some sort of path, but it was so rough and slippery that he fell down more than once. Presently it led him into an avenue of trees which ended in a splendid castle. It seemed to the merchant very strange that no snow had fallen in the avenue of orange trees covered with flowers and fruit. When he reached the first court of the castle, he saw before him a flight of agate steps. He went up them and passed through several splendidly furnished rooms. The pleasant warmth of the air revived him, and he felt very hungry, but there seemed to be nobody 
in all this vast and splendid palace. Deep silence reigned everywhere, and at last, tired of roaming through empty rooms and galleries, he stopped in a room smaller than the rest, where a clear fire was burning and a couch was drawn up cozily before it. Thinking this must be prepared for someone who was expected, he sat down to wait till he should come, and very soon fell into a sweet sleep. When his extreme hunger wakened him after several hours, he was still alone, but a little table with a good dinner on it had been drawn up close to him. He lost no time in beginning his meal, hoping he might soon thank his considerate host, whoever it may be. No one appeared, and even after another long sleep from which he awoke completely refreshed, there was no sign of anybody. Though a fresh meal of dainty cakes and fruit was prepared upon the little table at his elbow. Because he was naturally timid, the silence began to terrify him, and he resolved to search once more through all the rooms. But it was of no use, there was no sign of life in the palace. He wondered what he should do to amuse himself. He began pretending that all the treasures he saw were his own, considering how he would divide them among his children. Then he went down into the garden, and though it was winter everywhere else, here the sun shone, the birds sang, the flowers bloomed, and the air was soft and sweet. The merchant, in ecstasies with all he saw and heard, said to himself, all this must be meant for me. I will go this minute and bring my children to share all these delights. In spite of being so cold and weary, when he reached the castle, he had taken his horse to the stable and fed it. Now he thought he would saddle it for his homeward journey, and he turned down the path which led to the stable. This path had a hedge of roses on each side of it, and the merchant thought he had never seen such exquisite flowers. They reminded him of his promise to beauty, and he stopped, and had just gathered one to take to her when he was startled by a strange noise behind him. Turning round, he saw a frightful beast, which seemed to be very angry and said in a terrible voice, Who told you you might gather my roses? Was it not enough that I sheltered you in my palace and was kind to you? This is the way you show your gratitude by stealing my flowers. Your insolence shall not go unpunished. The merchant, terrified by these furious words, dropped the fatal rose. Throwing himself on his knees, he cried, Pardon me, noble sir, I am truly grateful for your hospitality, which was so magnificent I could not imagine you would be offended by my taking such a little thing as a rose. The beast's anger was not lessened by his speech. You are very ready with excuses and flattery, he cried. But that will not save you from the death you deserve. Alas, thought the merchant, if my daughter Beauty could only know into what danger her rose has brought me. And in despair he began to tell the beast all his misfortunes, the reason for his journey, not forgetting to mention Beauty's request. A king's ransom would hardly have procured all that my other daughters asked for, he said, but I thought I might at least take beauty a rose. 
I beg you to forgive me, for you see I meant no harm, the beast said in a less furious tone. I will forgive you on one condition, that you will give me one of your daughters. Ah, cried the merchant, if I were cruel enough to buy my own life at the expense of one of my children's, what excuse could I invent to bring her here? None, answered the beast. If she comes at all, she must come willingly. On no other condition will I have her. See if any of them is courageous enough and loves you enough to come and save your life. You seem to be an honest man, so I will trust you to go home. I give you a month to see if any of your daughters will come back with you and stay here to let you go free. If none of them is willing, you must come alone. After bidding them goodbye forever, for then you will belong to me. And do not imagine that you can hide from me. For if you fail to keep your word, I will come and fetch you. Added the beast grimly. The merchant accepted this proposal, though he did not really think that any of his daughters would be persuaded to come. He promised to return at the time appointed, and anxious to escape from the presence of the beast, he asked permission to set off at once. But the beast answered he could not go until the next day. Then you will find a horse ready for you, he said. Now go and eat your supper and await my orders. The poor merchant, more dead than alive, went back to his room where the most delicious supper was already served on a little table, drawn up before a blazing fire. But he was too terrified to eat and only tasted a few of the dishes for fear the beast should be angry if he did not obey his orders. When he had finished, he heard a great noise in the next room, which he knew meant that the beast was coming. As he could do nothing to escape his visit, the only thing that remained was to seem as little afraid as possible. So when the beast appeared and asked roughly if he had supped well, the merchant answered humbly that he had, thanks to his host's kindness. Then the beast warned him to remember their agreement and to prepare his daughter exactly for what she had to expect. Do not get up tomorrow, he added, until you see the sun and hear a golden bell ring. Then you will find your breakfast waiting for you and the horse that you were to ride will be ready in the courtyard. He will also bring you back again when you come with your daughter a month hence. Farewell. Take a rose to beauty and remember your promise. The merchant lay down until the sun rose. After breakfast, he went to gather Beauty's rose and mounted his horse, which carried him off so swiftly that in an instant he had lost sight of the palace. He was still wrapped in gloomy thoughts when the horse stopped before the door of his cottage. His sons and daughters, who had been uneasy at his long absence, rushed to meet him, eager to know the results of his journey, which, seeing him mounted upon a splendid horse and wrapped in a rich mantle, they supposed to be favorable. But he hid the truth from them at first, only saying sadly to Beauty as he gave her the rose. Here is what you asked me to bring you. 
little you know what it has cost. But this excited their curiosity so greatly. Presently he told them his adventures from beginning to end. And then they were all very unhappy. The girls lamented loudly over their lost hopes, and the sons declared their father should not return to the terrible castle, and began to make plans for killing the beast if it should come to fetch him. But he reminded them he had promised to go back. Then the girls were very angry with Beauty and said it was all her fault. If she had asked for something sensible, this would never have happened. Poor Beauty, much distressed, said to them, I have indeed caused this misfortune, but who could have guessed that to ask for a rose in the middle of summer would cause so much misery? But as I did the mischief, it is only just that I should suffer for it. I will therefore go back with my father to keep his promise. At first, nobody would hear of it. Her father and brothers who loved her dearly declared nothing should make them let her go. But beauty was firm. As the time drew near, she divided her little possessions between her sisters and said goodbye to everything she loved. When the fatal day came, she encouraged and cheered her father as they mounted together the horse which had brought him back. It seemed to fly rather than gallop, but so smoothly that Beauty was not frightened indeed she would have enjoyed the journey, if she had not feared what might happen at the end of it. Her father still tried to persuade her to go back, but in vain. While they were talking, night fell. Then, to their great surprise, wonderful colored lights began to shine in all directions, and splendid fireworks blazed out before them. All the forest was illuminated. They even felt pleasantly warm, though it had been bitterly cold before. They reached the avenue of orange trees and saw that the palace was brilliantly lighted from roof to ground and music sounded softly from the courtyard. The beast must be very hungry, said Beauty, trying to laugh, if he makes all this rejoicing over the arrival of his prey. But in spite of her anxiety, she admired all of the wonderful things she saw. When they had dismounted, her father led her to the little room that he had been in before. Here they found a splendid fire burning and the table daintily spread with a delicious supper. The merchant knew that this was meant for them, and Beauty, who was less frightened now that she had passed through so many rooms and seen nothing of the beast, was quite willing to begin, for her long ride had made her very hungry. But they had hardly finished their meal when the noise of the beast's footsteps was heard approaching. Beauty clung to her father in terror, which became all the greater when she saw how frightened he was. But when the beast really appeared, though she trembled at the sight of him, she made a great effort to hide her horror and saluted him respectfully. This evidently pleased the beast. After looking at her, he said in a tone that might have struck terror into the boldest heart, though he did not seem to be angry. Good evening, old man. 
Good evening, Beauty. The merchant was too terrified to reply, but Beauty answered sweetly. Good evening, Beast. Have you come willingly? Asked the Beast. Will you be content to stay here when your father goes away? Beauty answered bravely that she was quite prepared to stay. I'm pleased with you, said the beast. As you have come of your own accord, you may remain. As for you, old man, he added, turning to the merchant, at sunrise tomorrow you take your departure. When the bell rings, get up quickly and eat your breakfast, and you will find the same horse waiting to take you home. Remember, you must never expect to see my palace again. Turning to Beauty, he said, Take your father into the next room and help him choose gifts for your brothers and sisters. You will find two traveling trunks there. Fill them as full as you can. It is only just that you should send them something very precious as remembrance. He went away after saying, Goodbye, Beauty. Goodbye, old man. Beauty was beginning to think with great dismay of her father's departure. But she was afraid to disobey the beast's orders. They went into the next room, which had shelves and cupboards all around it. They were greatly surprised at the riches that it contained. There were splendid dresses fit for a queen with all the ornaments to be worn with them. When Beauty opened the cupboard, she was dazzled by the gorgeous jewels lying in heaps upon every shelf. After choosing a vast quantity which she had divided between her sisters, she had made the heap of wonderful dresses for each of them, she opened the last chest, which was full of gold. I think, father, she said, that as the gold will be more useful to you, we had better take out the other things and fill the trunks with it. So they did this. But the more they put in, the more room there seemed to be, and at last they put back all the jewels and dresses that they had taken out. And Beauty even added as many more of the jewels as she could carry at once. Even when the trunks were not too full, but they were so heavy an elephant could not have carried them. The beast was mocking us, cried the merchant. He pretended to give us all these things, knowing I could not carry them away. Let us wait and see, answered Beauty. I cannot believe that he meant to deceive us. All we can do is fasten them up and have them ready. So they did this and returned to the little room where, to their astonishment, they found breakfast ready. The merchant ate with his good appetite as the beast's generosity made him believe he might perhaps venture to come back soon and see Beauty. But she felt sure that her father was leaving her forever. So she was very sad when the bell rang sharply for the second time and warned them that the time was come for them to part. They went down into the courtyard where two horses were waiting, one loaded with the two trucks, the other for him to ride. They were pouring the ground in their impatience to start and the merchant bade Beauty a hasty farewell. As soon as he was mounted, he went off at such a pace she lost sight of him in an instant. Then Beauty began to cry. 
and wandered sadly back to her own room. But she soon found that she was very sleepy, and as she had nothing better to do, she lay down and instantly fell asleep. She dreamed she was walking by a brook bordered with trees lamenting her sad fate, when a young prince, handsomer than anyone that she had ever seen, and with a voice that went straight to her heart, came and said to her, Beauty, you are not so unfortunate as you suppose. Here you will be rewarded for all you have suffered elsewhere. Your every wish shall be gratified. Only try to find me out, no matter how I may be disguised, for I love you dearly. And in making me happy, you will find your own happiness. Be as true-hearted as you are beautiful. We shall have nothing else left to wish for. What can I do, Prince, to make you happy? said Beauty. Only be grateful, he answered. And do not trust too much to your eyes. Above all, do not desert me until you have saved me from my cruel misery. After this, she thought she found herself in a room with a stately and beautiful lady who said to her, Dear Beauty, try not to regret all that you have left behind you. You are destined for a better fate. Only do not let yourself be deceived by appearances. Beauty found her dreams so interesting that she was in no hurry to awake. But presently the clock roused her by calling her name softly twelve times. Then she rose and found her dressing table set out with everything she could possibly want. She found dinner waiting in the room next to hers. But dinner does not take very long when one is alone, and very soon she sat down cosily in the corner of a sofa and began to think about the charming prince that she had seen in her dream. He said I could make him happy, said Beauty to herself. It seems then that this horrible beast keeps him a prisoner. How can I set him free? I wonder why they both told me not to trust appearances, but... After all, it was only a dream, so why should I trouble myself about it? I had better find something to do to amuse myself. She began to explore some of the many rooms of the palace. The first she entered was lined with mirrors. Beauty saw herself reflected on every side and thought she had never seen such a charming room. Then a bracelet which was hanging from a chandelier caught her eye. And on taking it down, she was greatly surprised to find that it held a portrait of her unknown admirer, just as she had seen in her dream. With great delight, she slipped the bracelet on her arm and went into a gallery of pictures, where she soon found a portrait of the same handsome prince, as large as life and so well painted that as she studied it, he seemed to smile kindly at her. Tearing herself away from the portrait at last, she passed into a room which contained every musical instrument under the sun. Here she amused herself for a long while, trying them, singing until she was tired. The next room was a library, and she saw everything she had ever wanted to read as well as everything that she had read. By this time it was growing dusk, 
and wax candles in diamond and ruby candlesticks lit themselves in every room. Beauty found her supper served just at the time she preferred to have it. She did not see anyone or hear a sound. Though her father had warned her she would be alone, she began to find it rather dull. Presently, she heard the beast coming, and wondered tremblingly if he meant to eat her now. However, he did not seem at all ferocious, and only said gruffly, Good evening, beauty. She answered cheerfully and managed to conceal her terror. The beast asked how she had been amusing herself. She told him all the rooms that she had seen. Then he asked if she thought she could be happy in his palace. Beauty answered that everything was so beautiful she would be very hard to please if she could not be happy. After about an hour's talk, Beauty began to think the beast was not nearly so terrible as she had supposed at first. Then he rose to leave her, and said in a gruff voice, Do you love me, Beauty? Will you marry me? What shall I say? cried Beauty. She was afraid to make the beast angry by refusing. Say yes, or no, without fear, he replied. Oh, no, beast, said Beauty hastily. Since you will not. Good night, Beauty. She answered, Good night, Beast. Very glad to find her refusal had not provoked him. After he was gone, she was very soon in bed and dreaming of her unknown prince. She thought that he came and said, Beauty, why are you so unkind to me? I fear I am fated to be unhappy for many a long day still. Her dreams changed, but the charming prince figured in them all. When morning came, her first thought was to look at the portrait and see if it really was him. She found it certainly was. She decided to amuse herself in the garden, for the sun shone and all the fountains were playing. She was astonished to find that every place was familiar to her. Presently, she came to the very brook and the myrtle trees where she had first met the prince in her dream. That made her think more than ever that he must be kept a prisoner by the beast. When she was tired, she went back to the palace and found a new room, full of materials for every kind of work. Ribbons to make into bows and silks to work into flowers. There was an aviary full of birds, rare birds which were so tame that they flew to beauty as soon as they saw her perched upon her shoulders and her head. Pretty little creatures, she said. How I wish your cage was nearer my room that I might often hear you sing. So saying, she opened a door and found to her delight it led into her own room, though she had thought that it was on the other side of the palace. There were more birds in a room further on, parrots, cockatoos that could talk, and they greeted Beauty by name. Indeed, she found them so entertaining that she took one or two back to her room. They talked to her while she was at supper. The beast paid her his usual visit, and asked the same questions as before, and with a gruff good night took his departure. 
Beauty went to bed to dream of her mysterious prince. The days passed swiftly in different amusements, and after a while Beauty found another strange thing in the palace which often pleased her when she was tired of being alone. There was one room which she had not noticed particularly. It was empty, except that under each of the windows stood a very comfortable chair. The first time she had looked out the window it seemed a black curtain prevented her from seeing anything outside. The second time she went into the room, happening to be tired, she sat down in one of the chairs, when instantly the curtain was rolled aside, and a most amusing pantomime was acted before her. There were dances and colored lights, music and pretty dresses, and it was all so gay that beauty was in ecstasies. After that, she tried the other seven windows in turn. There was some new and surprising entertainment to be seen from each of them, so Beauty could never feel lonely anymore. Every evening after supper, the Beast came to see her, and always before saying goodnight, asked her in his terrible voice, Beauty, will you marry me? And it seemed to Beauty now that she understood him better. But when she said, No beast, he went away quite sad. Her happy dreams of the handsome young prince soon made her forget the poor beast, and the only thing that disturbed her was being told to distrust appearances, to let her heart guide her, not her eyes. Consider as she would, she could not understand. So everything went on for a long time until at last, happy as she was, Beauty began to long for the sight of her father, for her brothers and sisters. One night, seeing her look very sad, the beast asked her what was the matter. Beauty had quite ceased to be afraid of him. Now she knew he was really gentle, in spite of his ferocious looks and his dreadful voice. So she answered, she wished to see her home once more. Upon hearing this, the beast seemed sadly distressed and cried miserably. Beauty, have you the heart to desert an unhappy beast like this? What more do you want to make you happy? Is it because you hate me that you want to escape? No, dear beast, answered Beauty softly. I do not hate you, and I should be very sorry never to see you anymore, but I long to see my father again. Only let me go for two months and I promise to come back to you and stay for the rest of my life. The beast, who had been sighing dolefully while she spoke, replied, I cannot refuse you anything you ask, even though it should cost me my life. Take the four boxes you will find in the room next to your own and fill them with everything you wish to take with you. But remember your promise and come back when the two months are over. Or you may have cause to repent it, for if you do not come in good time, you will find your faithful beast dead. You will not need any chariot to bring you back. Only say goodbye to all your brothers and sisters the night before you come away, and when you have gone to bed, turn this ring round upon your finger and say firmly, 
I wish to go back to my palace and see my beast again. Good night, beauty. Fear nothing. Sleep peacefully. Before long you shall see your father once more. As soon as Beauty was alone, she hastened to fill the boxes with all the rare and precious things she saw about her. And only when she was tired of heaping things into them did they seem to be full. She went to bed but could hardly sleep for joy, when at last she began to dream of her beloved prince. She was grieved to see him stretched upon a grassy bank, sad and weary, hardly like himself. What's the matter, she cried. But he looked at her reproachfully and said, How can you ask me, cruel one? Are you not leaving me to my death, perhaps? Don't be so sorrowful, cried Beauty. I am only going to assure my father I'm safe and happy. I've promised the beast faithfully that I will come back, and he would die of grief if I did not keep my word. What would that matter to you? asked the prince. Surely you would not care. Indeed, I should be ungrateful if I did not care for such a kind beast, cried Beauty indignantly. I would die to save him from pain. I assure you it is not his fault that he is so ugly. Just then, a very strange sound awoke her. Someone was speaking not very far away, and opening her eyes she found herself in a room that she had not seen before was certainly not as splendid as those that she had seen in the beast's palace. Where could she be? She rose and dressed hastily and saw that the boxes she packed the night before were all in the room. Suddenly she heard her father's voice and rushed out to greet him joyfully. Her brothers and sisters were astonished at her appearance for they had never expected to see her again. There was no end to the questions that they asked her. She also had much to hear about what had happened to them while she was away and of her father's journey home. When they heard that she had only come back to be with them for a short time and must go back to the beast's palace forever, they lamented loudly. Beauty asked her father what he thought of her strange dreams, why the prince constantly begged her not to trust appearances. After much consideration he answered, you tell me yourself, the beast, frightful as he is, loves you dearly and deserves your love and gratitude for his gentleness and kindness. I think the prince must mean you to understand that you ought to reward him by doing as he wishes. In spite of his ugliness, Beauty could not help seeing that this seemed probable. Still, when she thought of her dear prince who was so handsome, she did not feel at all inclined to marry the beast. At any rate, she need not decide for two months. She could instead enjoy herself with her sisters. But though they were rich now and lived in a town again, and had plenty of acquaintances, she often thought of the palace, where she was so happy. Especially as at home she never once dreamed of her dear prince. She felt quite sad without him. Her sisters seemed quite used to being without her and even found her rather in the way, so she would not have been sorry when the two months were over, but for her father and brothers who begged her to stay, and seemed so grieved at the thought of her departure, she had not the courage to say goodbye to them, 
Every day when she rose she meant to say at night, and when night came she put it off again, till at last she had a dismal dream which helped her make up her mind. She thought she was wandering in a lonely path in the palace gardens, when she heard groans that seemed to come from bushes hiding the entrance of a cave. Running quickly to see what could be the matter, she found the beast stretched out upon his side, apparently dying. He reproached her faintly with being the cause of his distress, and at the same moment a stately lady appeared and said gravely, Beauty, see what happens when people do not keep their promises. If you had delayed one more day, you would have found him dead. Beauty was so terrified by this dream that the next morning she announced her intention of going back at once. That very evening she said goodbye to her father, her brothers, her sisters, and as soon as she was in bed she turned her ring upon her finger and said firmly, I wish to go back to my palace and see my beast again. She fell asleep instantly and only woke up to hear the clock saying, Beauty. Beauty, twelve times in its musical voice, which told her she was really in the palace once more. Everything was just as before. Her birds were so glad to see her, but Beauty thought she had never known such a long day. She was so anxious to see the beast again that she felt as if supper time would never come. But when it came, no beast appeared. After listening and waiting for a long time, she ran down into the garden to search for him. Up and down the paths and avenues ran poor Beauty, calling him, no one answered. Not a trace of him could she find. At last, quite tired, she stopped for a minute's rest and saw she was standing opposite the shady path that she had seen in her dream. She rushed down it and sure enough there was a cave, and in it lay the beast, asleep. Or so Beauty thought. Quite glad to have found him, she ran up and stroked his head. But to her horror, he did not move or open his eyes. He is dead. And it's all my fault, cried Beauty, crying bitterly. Looking at him again, she fancied that he still breathed. Hastily fetching some water from the nearest fountain, she sprinkled it over his face. And to her great delight, he began to revive. Beast, how you frightened me, she cried. I, I never knew how much I loved you until just now, when I feared I was too late to save your life. Can you really love such an ugly creature as I am? Asked the beast faintly. Beauty, you, you, you came only just in time. I was dying because I thought that you had forgotten your promise. But go back now and rest, I shall see you again. Beauty, who had half expected he would be angry with her, was reassured by his gentle voice and went back to the palace, where supper was awaiting her. Afterwards, the beast came in as usual and talked about the time she spent with her father, asking if she enjoyed herself. They had all been glad to see her. Beauty quite enjoyed telling him all that had happened to her, 
When at last the time came for him to go, he asked, as he had so often asked before, Beauty, will you marry me? She answered softly, Yes, dear beast. As she spoke, a blaze of light sprang up before the windows of the palace. Fireworks crackled and guns banged. Across the avenue of orange trees in letters all made of fireflies was written, Long live the prince and his bride. Turning to ask the beast what it could all mean, Beauty found that he had disappeared. In his place stood her long-loved prince. At the same moment, the wheels of a chariot were heard upon the terrace, and two ladies entered the room. One of them Beauty recognized as the stately lady that she had seen in her dreams. The other was so queenly that Beauty hardly knew which to greet first. But the one she already knew said to her companion, Well, Queen, this is Beauty, who has had the courage to rescue your son from the terrible enchantment. They love each other and only your consent to their marriage is wanting to make them perfectly happy. I consent with all my heart, cried the queen. How can I ever thank you enough, charming girl, for having restored my dear son to his natural form? She tenderly embraced Beauty and the prince, who had meanwhile been greeting the fairy and receiving her congratulations. Now, said fairy to the beauty, I suppose you would like me to send for all your brothers and sisters to dance at your wedding? So she did, and the marriage was celebrated the very next day with the utmost splendor. Beauty and the prince lived happily ever after. The end. Hans Christian Andersen's the fir tree. Out in the forest stood such a charming fir tree. It was in a good spot where it could get sunshine and there was plenty of air. All around grew scores of bigger companions, both firs and pines. But the little fir tree was so eager to grow up that it didn't think about the warm sun or the fresh air. It didn't pay attention to the farm children who walked past, chattering whenever they were out gathering strawberries or raspberries. Often they would come by with a whole pitcher full, or they would have strawberries threaded on a piece of straw. Then they would sit down near the little tree and say, Oh, how charming and little it is. And that's not at all what the tree wanted to hear. The following year it was a full length taller, and the year after that another. On a fir tree you can tell how many years it has been by how many layers of branches it has. Oh, if only I were a big tree like the others, sighed the little tree. Then I could spread out my branches all around and from the top I could gaze out on the wide world. The birds would build nests in my branches, and when the wind blew, I could nod so grandly like all the others. The tree took no pleasure in the sunshine, in the birds, or in the crimson clouds that sailed overhead, 
both morning and evening. When it was winter and the snow lay all around, glittering white, a hare often came bounding along and sprang right over the little tree. Oh, how annoying that was. The two winters passed, and by the third, the tree was so tall that the hare had to go around it. Oh, to grow and grow and to get bigger and older, that is the only lovely thing in this world, thought the tree. In the autumn, the woodcutters would always appear to chop down some of the biggest trees. It happened every year, and the young fir tree, which was now quite grown up, would start trembling because the tall, magnificent trees would topple to the ground with a groan and a crash. Their branches would be cut off, and they looked so naked, tall and slender. They were almost beyond recognition. But then, they were loaded onto wagons, and horses carried them away, out of the forest. Where were they going? What was in store for them? In the spring, when the swallow and the stork appeared, the tree asked them, Do you know where they were taken? Have you seen them? The swallows didn't know anything, but the stork looked thoughtful nodded his head and said, Oh yes, I think so. I met many new ships as I flew here from Egypt. On the ships were magnificent mast trees, and I'd venture to say they were yours. They smelled of fur. I bring you many greetings, how they swaggered and swayed. Oh, if only I too were big enough to fly across the sea... What's the sea like anyway? How does it look? Well, it's much too complicated to describe, said the stork, and flew off. Enjoy your youth, said the rays of sunlight. Enjoy your fresh growth and the young life inside you. The wind kissed the tree. The dew shed tears over it. But the fir tree did not understand. When Christmas time came, quite young trees were felled. Trees that were often not even as tall or as old as the fir tree, which could never find any peace, but was always eager to be off. These young trees, they were the most beautiful of all, and they always kept their branches. They were loaded onto wagons, and horses carried them away, out of the forest. Where are they going? asked the fir tree. They're no bigger than I am. There was even one that was much smaller. Why do they keep all their branches and where are they being taken? We know, we know, chirped the sparrows. In town, we looked in the windows. We know where they're being taken. They end up in the greatest splendor and glory that you could ever imagine. We've looked in the windows and we've seen them. They're planted in the middle of the warm parlor and decorated with the loveliest things. Gilded apples, gingerbread, toys, hundreds of candles. And then, asked the fir tree, all of its branches a quiver. And then, what happens next? 
Well, that's all we saw. But nothing could match it. Maybe I was meant to take this glorious path, rejoiced the fir tree. That's even better than going across the sea. What an agony of longing. If only it were Christmas. Now I am as tall and broad as the others that were carried off last year. If only I were on that wagon right now. If only I were in that warm parlor with all that splendor and glory. And then, well then, something even better is bound to happen. Something even more wonderful. Why would they decorate me like that otherwise? Something even grander, even more glorious is bound to happen. But what? Oh, how I'm suffering. How I yearn. I just don't know what's come over me. Take pleasure in us, said the air, and the sunlight. Take pleasure in your fresh youth out in the open. The fir tree felt no pleasure at all. It grew and grew. Both winter and summer it was green. Dark green it stood there. Everyone who saw it said, That's a lovely tree. And at Christmas, it was the very first to be cut down. The axe bit deep into its marrow. The tree fell to the ground with a sigh. It felt a pain, a weakness. It couldn't even think about happiness. It was sad to part with its home, the spot where it had sprouted up. But the tree realized that it would never see its dear old companions again. The small shrubs and flowers all around, maybe not even the birds, Leaving was certainly not pleasant. The tree didn't recover until it was unloaded in a courtyard with all the other trees, and it heard a man say, That one is magnificent. That's the one we want. Two servants came and carried the fir tree into an enormous beautiful room. Portraits hung on all the walls. Next to the large wood stove stood big Chinese vases with lions on the lids. There were rocking chairs and silk-covered sofas, big tables covered with picture books, and the fir tree was set in a large wooden tub filled with sand. But no one could tell that it was a wooden tub because green fabric was wrapped all around it. The tub stood on top of a big, colorful carpet. Oh, how the tree trembled. What was going to happen next? The servants and the maids proceeded to decorate the tree. On one branch, they hung little woven baskets cut from colored paper. Each basket was filled with sweets. Gilded apples and walnuts hung on the tree as if they had grown there. More than a hundred little candles, red and blue and white, fastened to the branches. Dolls that looked as lifelike as human beings. 
the tree had never seen anything like it before. At the very top, they put a big star made from shiny gold paper. It was magnificent, quite incomparably magnificent. Tonight, they all said, tonight the tree will shine. Oh, thought the tree, if only it were evening. If only they would light the candles soon. What will happen after that? Will trees come from the forest and look at me? Will the sparrows fly past the window? Will I take root and stand here decorated like this all winter and summer long? Oh yes, the tree thought it knew all about it. It had a terrible bark ache from sheer yearning. And bark aches are just as bad for trees as headaches are for the rest of us. Finally, the candles were lit. What splendor. What magnificence. Every branch of the tree trembled so much that one of the candles set fire to the bough. How it stung. God help us, shrieked the maids as they hastily put out the fire. Now the tree didn't even dare to tremble. How awful. It was so afraid of losing any of its finery. It was quite bedazzled by all of the splendor. And then the double doors flew open and a crowd of children rushed in as if they were about to topple the whole tree. The grown-ups followed more sedately. The children stood in utter silence, but only for a moment. Then they began shouting again so that their voices echoed through the room. They danced around the tree, and one present after the other was plucked from the branches. What are they doing? thought the tree. What's going to happen? And the candles burned all the way down, and as they burned down they were put out, and the children were allowed to plunder the tree, how they rushed at it, making all of the branches groan. If the tree hadn't been tied to the ceiling by its top and the gold star, it would have toppled right over. The children danced around with their splendid toys and no one paid any attention to the tree, except for the old nursemaid, who walked around it, peering in among the branches, but she was only checking to see that not a fig or an apple had been overlooked. A story, a story, shouted the children, pulling a stout little man over to the tree. He sat down right underneath it. Because we're out in the forest, he told them, and it may do the tree some good to listen along. But I'm only going to tell you one story. Do you want to hear the one about Ickety Ackety, or the one about Clumper Dumper, who fell down the stairs but still ended up on the throne and won the hand of the princess? Ickety-ackety, cried some of the children. Clumper-dumper, cried the others. 
They shouted and shrieked, and only the fir tree stood in silence and thought, Won't I get to take part? Won't I get to do anything? It had been part of the celebration, after all. It had done what it was supposed to do. The man told the story of Clumper Dumper, who fell down the stairs but ended up on the throne and won the hand of the princess. The children clapped their hands and shouted, Tell us more, tell us more. They wanted to hear the one about Ickety Ackety too. But he would only tell them the story about Clumper Dumper. The fir tree stood quite still and pensive. The birds in the forest had never mentioned anything like this. Clumper Dumper fell down the stairs and yet won the hand of the princess. Well, well, so that's the way the things are out in the world, thought the fir tree, believing it all to be true because such a nice man told the story. Well, well, who knows, maybe I too will fall down the stairs and win the princess. The fir tree looked forward to the next day, when it would be adorned with candles, toys, gold, and fruit. Tomorrow I won't tremble, it thought. I will fully enjoy all my glory. Tomorrow I'll hear the story about Clumper Dumper again. Maybe the one about Ickety Ackety too. The tree stood still and pensive all night long. In the morning, a servant and a maid came into the room. Now the finery is going to start again, thought the tree. But they dragged it out of the parlor, up the stairs to the attic, and there in a dark corner, where no daylight shone, they left it. What does this mean, thought the tree. I wonder what I'm supposed to do here. I wonder what I'm going to hear now. It leaned against the wall and stood there thinking and thinking. And it had plenty of time for that because day after day and night after night went by and no one came up to the attic. When someone finally did, it was only to put some large boxes in the corner. The tree stood quite hidden. You would almost think that it had been completely forgotten. Now it's winter outside, thought the tree. The ground is hard and covered with snow. The people wouldn't be able to plant me. No doubt that's why I'm standing here, safe indoors until springtime. What a good plan. How kind the people are. If only it wasn't so dark in here and so terribly lonely. There's not even a little hare. It was, it was nice out there in the forest when the snow lay on the ground, when the hare came running past, yes, even when it leapt right over me. I didn't like it much at the time, but up here it's terribly lonely. Squeak, squeak, said a little mouse at the very moment and came scurrying. And then another little mouse appeared. 
they sniffed at the fir tree and scurried in and out of its branches. It's awfully cold, said the little mice, but otherwise it's quite blissful to be here. Don't you agree, you old fir tree? I'm not old at all, said the fir tree. There are plenty of trees that are much older than I am. Where did you come from? asked the mice. And what do you know? They were awfully curious. Tell us about the loveliest place on earth. Have you ever been there? Have you been in the pantry where the cheeses are lined up on the shelves and the hams hang from ceilings? Where you can dance on tallow candles? Where you go in skinny but you come out fat? I don't know that place, said the tree. But I do know the forest. Where the sun shines and the birds sing. The tree told them all about its youth. The little mice had never heard anything like that before. They listened closely and said, You've seen so much. How happy you've been. Me, said the fir tree, thinking about everything it had just described. Why, yes, I, I suppose those were quite delightful days after all. The tree told them about Christmas Eve when it was decorated with cakes and candles. Oh, said the little mice, how happy you've been, you old fir tree. I'm not old at all, said the tree. It was only this winter that I came here. I'm in the prime of my life. I've just stopped growing. How wonderfully you describe things, said the little mice. The following night, they brought along four other little mice who wanted to hear what the tree had to tell. The more the tree told them, the more clearly it remembered everything. And it thought those actually were quite enjoyable days, but they can come again. They can come again. Clumper Dumper fell down the stairs, but he won the hand of the princess. Maybe I too can win a princess. The fir tree thought about a charming little birch tree that grew out in the forest. For the fir tree, the birch was a real and lovely princess. Who's Clumper Dumper? asked the little mice. The fir tree told them the whole story. It could remember every single word. The little mice were ready to run all the way to the top of the tree out of sheer glee. The next night, many more mice came, and on Sunday, there were even two rats. But they said the story wasn't amusing, and that made the little mice sad, because then they thought less of the story themselves. Is that the only story you know? asked the rats. The only one, replied the tree. I heard it on the happiest evening of my life, but back then I didn't realize how happy I was. It's an exceptionally tedious story. Don't you know any about bacon and tallow candles? Any pantry stories? No, said the tree. Well, thanks for nothing, replied the rats, and they went home. Eventually the little mice disappeared too. 
the tree sighed. It was so nice having those nimble little mice sitting around me, listening to what I told them. Now that too is over. But I'm going to remember to enjoy myself when they finally take me out of here. But when would that happen? One day, in the early morning, servants came up to the attic and started rummaging around. The boxes were moved aside, the tree was pulled out. Now it's true they threw it to the floor rather hard, but then a man dragged it towards the stairs where the daylight was shining. Life will begin again, thought the tree. It could feel the fresh air, the first rays of sun. Then it was out in the courtyard. Everything happened so fast that the tree forgot all about taking a look at itself. There was so much to see all around. The courtyard was next to a garden and everything was in bloom. The roses hung so fresh and fragrant over the little fence. The linden trees were blossoming and the swallows flew about, saying, My husband has arrived. But it wasn't the fir tree that they meant. Now I'm going to live, rejoiced the tree, spreading its branches wide. But alas, its boughs were all withered and yellow. In the corner among the weeds and the nettles was where the tree came to rest. The star made from gold paper was still on top shimmering in the bright sunshine. In the courtyard, several of the lively children were playing, who had danced around the tree at Christmas time, taking such delight in it. One of the youngest children came over and tore off the golden star. Look what's still sitting on this horrid old Christmas tree, he said, stomping on the branches so that they groaned under his boots. The tree looked at all of that floral splendor and freshness in the garden. Then it looked at itself, and it wished that it had stayed in the dark corner of the attic. The tree thought about its fresh youth in the forest, about the joyous Christmas Eve, about the little mice who had listened so happily to the story about Clumperdumper. It's over, said the poor tree. It's over. If only I had enjoyed it while I could, it's over. The hired man came over and chopped the tree into little pieces. It made a whole stack. How lovely the tree flared up under the old big copper cauldron. It sighed so deeply. Each sigh was like the sound of a little shot. That's why the children who were playing came running over and sat down in front of the fire, staring into the flames and shouting, Bang! Snap! But each sharp crack, which was a deep sigh, was the tree thinking about a summer day in the forest or about a winter night out there when the stars were shining. 
It thought about Christmas Eve and about Clumpadumpa, the only story it had ever heard and knew how to tell. Before long, the tree had burned up. The boys played in the courtyard, and on his chest the youngest one had the gold star that the tree wore on its happiest evening. Now it was over. The tree was gone, along with the story. It was over, and that's what happens to every story. The Devoted Friend One morning, the old water rat put his head out of his hole. He had bright beady eyes and stiff grey whiskers. His tail was like a long bit of black India rubber. The little ducks were swimming about in the pond, looking just like a lot of yellow canaries, and their mother, who was pure white with real red legs, was trying to teach them how to stand on their heads in the water. "'You will never be in the best society unless you can stand on your heads,' she kept saying, and every now and then she showed them how it was done. But the little ducks paid no attention to her. They were so young, they did not know what an advantage it is to be in society at all. "'What disobedient children!' cried the old water rat. "'They really deserve to be drowned.' "'Nothing of the kind,' answered the duck. "'Everyone must make a beginning. "'Parents cannot be too patient.' "'Ah, I know nothing about the feelings of parents,' said the water rat. "'I am not a family man.' In fact, I've never been married, and I never intend to be. Love is all very well in its way, but friendship is much higher. Much higher indeed. I know of nothing in the world that is either nobler or rarer than a devoted friendship. And what, pray, is your idea of the duties of a devoted friend? Asked a green linnet who was sitting in a willow tree and had overheard the conversation. Yes, Uh, "'That is just what I want to know,' said the duck. "'She swam away to the end of the pond and stood upon her head "'to give her children a good example. "'What a silly question!' cried the water rat. "'I should expect my devoted friend to be devoted to me, of course.' "'And what would you do in return?' said the little bird, "'swinging upon a silver spray, flapping his tiny wings. "'I don't understand you,' said the water rat. Let me tell you a story on the subject, said the linnet. Is the story about me? asked the water rat. If so, I'll listen to it, for I'm extremely fond of fiction. It is applicable to you, answered the linnet, and he flew down. Alighting upon the bank, he told the story of the devoted friend. Once upon a time, there was an honest little fellow named Hans. Was he very distinguished? asked the water rat. No, answered the linnet. I don't think he was distinguished at all, except for his kind heart and his funny, round, good-humoured face. He lived in a tiny cottage, all by himself, and every day he worked in his garden. In all the countryside, there was no garden so lovely as his. 
Sweet William grew there in gilly flowers, shepherd's purses and fair maids of France. There were damask roses and flowers and daffodils and clove pink bloomed or blossomed in their proper order as the months went by, one flower taking another flower's place. There were always beautiful things to look at, pleasant odours to smell. Little Hans had a great many friends, but the most devoted friend of all was Big Hugh the Miller. Indeed, so devoted was the rich miller to little Hans that he would never go by his garden without leaning over the wall and plucking a large nosegay or handful of sweet herbs, filling his pockets with plums and cherries if it was the fruit season. Real friends should have everything in common, the miller used to say. Little Hans nodded and smiled and felt very proud of having a friend with such noble ideas. Sometimes the neighbors thought it strange that the rich miller never gave little Hans anything in return. Though he had a hundred sacks of flour stored away in his mill and six cows, a large flock of woolly sheep. But Hans never troubled his head about these things and nothing gave him greater pleasure than to listen to all the wonderful things the miller used to say about the unselfishness of true friendship. So little Hans worked away in his garden. During the spring, the summer, and the autumn, he was very happy. But when the winter came, and he had no fruit or flowers to bring to the market, he suffered a good deal from cold and hunger. Often he had to go to bed without any supper, but a few dried pears or some hard nuts. In the winter he was extremely lonely, as the miller never came to see him then. There is no good in my going to see little Hans as long as the snow lasts, the miller used to say to his wife, for when people are in trouble they should be left alone and not be bothered by visitors. That at least is my idea about friendship, and I'm sure I'm right, so I shall wait till the spring comes. Then I shall pay him a visit. He will be able to give me a large basket of primroses and that will make him so happy. You are certainly very thoughtful about others, answered the wife, as she sat in a comfortable armchair by a big pinewood fire. Very thoughtful indeed. It is quite a treat to hear you talk about friendship. I'm sure the clergyman himself could not say such beautiful things as you do, though he does live in a three-storied house and wear a gold ring on his little finger. Could we not ask little Hans up here, said the miller's youngest son. If poor Hans is in trouble, I'll give him half my porridge and show him my white rabbits. What a silly boy you are, cried the miller. I really don't know what is the use of sending you to school. You seem not to learn anything. Why, if little Hans came up here and saw our warm fire an our good supper, an our great cask of red wine. He might get envious. And envy is a most terrible thing and would spoil anybody's nature. I certainly will not allow Hans's nature to be spoiled. I am his best friend. I will always watch over him and see he is not led into temptation. Besides, if Hans came here, he might ask me to 
let him have some flour on credit. And that I could not do. Flour is one thing, friendship is another. They should not be confused. Why the words are spelt differently, and mean quite different things. Everybody can see that. How well you talk, said the miller's wife, pouring herself a large glass of warm ale. Really, I feel quite drowsy. It is just like being in church. Lots of people act well, answered the miller, but very few people talk well, which shows that talking is the more difficult thing of the two, and much the finer thing also. He looked sternly across the table at his little son, who felt so ashamed of himself that he hung his head down and grew scarlet and began to cry into his tea. He was so young that you must excuse him. Is that the end of the story? said the water rat. Certainly not. That is the beginning. Then you are quite behind the age, said the water rat. Every good storyteller nowadays starts with the end and then goes on to the beginning and concludes with the middle. That is the new method. I heard all about it the other day from a critic who was walking round the pond with the young man. He spoke of the matter at great length, and I am sure he must have been right, for he had blue spectacles and a bald head, and whenever the young man made any remark he always answered, Pooh, but pray go on with your story. I like the miller immensely. I have all kinds of beautiful sentiments myself. There is a great sympathy between us. Well, said the linnet, hopping now on one leg and now on the other. As soon as the winter was over, and the primroses began to open their pale yellow stars, the miller said to his wife that he would go down and see little Hans. Why, what a good heart you have, cried his wife. You are always thinking of others. And mind you take the big basket with you for the flowers. So the miller tied the sails of the windmill together with a strong iron chain and went down the hill with the basket on his arm. Good morning, little Hans, said the miller. Good morning, said Hans, leaning on his spade and smiling from ear to ear. How have you been all this winter, said the miller. Well, really, cried Hans, very good of you to ask, very good indeed. I'm afraid I had a rather hard time of it. But now the spring's come, I'm quite happy, and all my flowers are doing well. We often talked of you during the winter, Hans, said the miller, wondered how you were getting on. That was kind of you, said Hans. I was half afraid you'd forgotten me. Hans, I'm surprised at you. Friendship never forgets. That's the wonderful thing about it. But I'm afraid you don't understand the poetry of life. How lovely your primroses are looking, by the by. They are certainly very lovely, said Hans. Uh, it's a most lucky thing for me, I have so many. I'm going to bring them into the market, sell them to the burgomaster's daughter, and buy back my wheelbarrow with the money. Buy back your wheelbarrow? You don't mean to say you sold it? What a very stupid thing to do. Well, the fact is, said Hans... I was obliged to. The winter was a very bad time for me, and I really had no money at all to buy bread with. First, I sold the silver buttons off of my Sunday coat. Then I sold my silver chain. Then I sold my big pipe, and at last I sold my wheelbarrow. But I'm going to buy it back again now. Hans, said the miller, 
I'll give you my wheelbarrow. It's not in very good repair. One side's gone. There is something wrong with the wheel spokes. But in spite of that, I will give it to you. I know it's very generous of me, and a great many people would think me foolish for parting with it. But I'm not like the rest of the world. I think generosity is the essence of friendship. And besides, I've got a new wheelbarrow for myself. Yes, you set your mind at ease. I will give you my wheelbarrow. Well, really, that is generous of you, said little Hans. His funny round face glowed over with pleasure. I can easily put it in repair, and I have a plank of wood in the house. A plank of wood, said the miller. Why, that's just what I want for the roof of my barn. There's a very large hole in it. The corn will get damp if I don't stop it up. How lucky you mentioned that. It's quite remarkable how one good action always breeds another. I've given you my wheelbarrow, and now you are going to give me your plank. Of course, the wheelbarrow is worth far more than the plank, but true friendship never notices things like that. Pray, get it at once, and I will set it to work at my barn this very day. Certainly, cried Hans. He ran into the shed and dragged the plank out. It's not a very big plank, said the miller. I'm afraid that after I've mended my barn roof, there won't be any left for you to mend the wheelbarrow with. But of course, that's not my fault, and now as I've given you my wheelbarrow, I'm sure you would like to give me some flowers in return. Here is the basket, and mind that you fill it quite full. Quite full, said little Hans, rather sorrowfully, for it was really a very big basket. He knew if he filled it, he would have no flowers left for the market. He was very anxious to get his silver buttons back. Well, really, answered the miller, as I have given you my wheelbarrow, I don't think it's too much to ask you for a few flowers. I may be wrong, but I should have thought that friendship, true friendship, was quite free from selfishness of any kind. My dear friend, my best friend, cried little Hans, you're welcome to all the flowers in my garden. I would much sooner have your good opinion than my silver buttons any day. He ran and plucked all of his pretty primroses and filled the miller's basket. Goodbye, little Hans, said the miller. He went up the hill with the plank on his shoulder and the big basket in his hand. Goodbye, said little Hans, and he began to dig away quite merrily. He was so pleased about the wheelbarrow. The next day, he was nailing up some honeysuckle against the porch when he heard the miller's voice calling to him from the road. He jumped off the ladder and ran down the garden and looked over the wall. There was the miller with a large sack of flour on his back. Dear little Hans, said the miller, would you mind carrying this sack of flour for me to market? Oh, I'm so sorry, said Hans. I'm really very busy today. I've got all my creepers to nail up and all my flowers to water, all my grass to roll. Well, really, said the miller, I think, considering I'm going to give you my wheelbarrow, it's rather unfriendly of you to refuse. Oh, don't say that, cried little Hans. I wouldn't be unfriendly for the whole world. He ran in for his cap and trudged off with the sack on his shoulder. It was a very hot day. The road was terribly dusty. And before Hans had reached the sixth milestone, he was so tired he had to sit down and rest. He went on bravely, and as last he reached the market. 
After he had waited there some time, he sold the sack of flour for a good price. Then he returned home at once. He was afraid if he stopped too late, he might meet some robbers on the way. Certainly been a hard day, said little Hans to himself, as he was going to bed. Glad I did not refuse the miller. He is my best friend. Besides, he's going to give me his wheelbarrow. Early the next morning, the miller came down to get the money for his sack of flour. Little Hans was so tired that he was still in bed. Upon my word, said the miller, you are very lazy. Really, considering that I'm going to give you my wheelbarrow, I think you might work harder. Idleness is a great sin, and I certainly don't like any of my friends to be idle or sluggish. You must not mind my speaking plainly to you. Of course, I would not dream of doing so if I were not your friend, but what is the good of friendship if one cannot say exactly what one means? Anybody can say charming things and try and please and flatter, but a true friend always says unpleasant things and does not mind giving pain. Indeed, if he's really a true friend, he prefers it, for he knows he is doing good. I'm very sorry, said little Hans, rubbing his eyes, pulling off his nightcap. I was so tired, I thought I would lie in bed for a little time and listen to the birds singing. Do you know I always work better after hearing the birds sing? Well, I'm glad of that, said the miller, clapping Hans on the back. I want you to come up to the mill as soon as you're dressed. Mend my barn roof for me. Poor little Hans was very anxious to go and work in his garden. His flowers had not been watered for two days, and he did not like to refuse the miller as he was such a good friend to him. Do you think it would be unfriendly of me if I said I was busy? He inquired in a shy and timid voice. Well, really, answered the miller, I do not think it is much to ask of you, considering that I am going to give you my wheelbarrow. But of course, if you refuse, I'll go and do it myself. Oh, on no account, cried little Hans and jumped out of bed. He dressed himself and went up to the barn. He worked there all day long till sunset. At sunset, the miller came to see how he was getting on. "'Have you mended the hole in the roof yet, little Hans?' cried the miller. "'It is quite mended,' answered little Hans, and he came down the ladder. "'Ah,' said the miller, "'there is no work so delightful as the work that one does for others.' "'It is certainly a great privilege to hear you talk,' answered little Hans, "'sitting down and wiping his forehead. "'A very great privilege.' but I'm afraid I shall never have such beautiful ideas as you have. Oh, they'll come to you, said the miller, but you must take more pains. At present you've only the practice of friendship. Some day you'll have the theory also. Do you really think I shall? asked little Hans. I have no doubt of it, answered the miller, but now that you've mended the roof, you'd better go home and rest, for I want you to drive my sheep to the mountain tomorrow. Poor little Hans was afraid to say anything to this. Early the next morning, the miller brought his sheep round to the cottage, and Hans started off with them to the mountain. It took him the whole day to get there and back. When he returned, he was so tired that he went off to sleep in his chair, and did not wake up till it was broad daylight. What a delightful time I shall have in my garden, he said, and he went to work at once. 
somehow, he was never able to look after his flowers at all. For his friend the miller was always coming round, sending him off on long errands, getting him to help at the mill. Little Hans was very much distressed at times. He was afraid his flowers would think he had forgotten them. But he consoled himself by the reflection that the miller was his best friend. Besides, he used to say, he's going to give me his wheelbarrow. And that's an act of pure generosity. So little Hans worked away for the miller. And the miller said all kinds of beautiful things about friendship, which Hans took down in a notebook and used to read at night, over and over again. Now it happened that one evening little Hans was sitting by his fireside when a loud rap came at the door. It was a very wild night, and the wind was blowing and roaring around the house so terribly that at first he thought it was merely the storm. But a second rap came, and then a third, louder than any of the others. It's some poor traveller, said Hans to himself. He ran to the door. There stood the miller, with a lantern in one hand and a big stick in the other. "'Dear little Hans,' cried the miller, "'I am in great trouble. My little boy has fallen off a ladder and hurt himself. I'm going for the doctor, but he lives so far away, and it's such a bad night. It just occurred to me that it would be much better if you went instead of me. You know, I am going to give you my wheelbarrow.' And so it's only fair you should do something for me in return. Certainly, cried Hans. I take it as quite a compliment you're coming to me. I will start off at once. But you must lend me your lantern. The night is so dark I'm afraid I might fall into a ditch. Very sorry, answered the miller. But it's my new lantern. It would be a great loss to me if anything happened to it. Well, never mind. I will do without it, cried little Hans and he took down his great fur coat, his warm scarlet cap, and tied a muffler round his throat, and started off. What a dreadful storm it was. The night was so black that little Hans could hardly see. The wind was so strong that he could scarcely stand. He was very courageous. After he had been walking about three hours, he arrived at the doctor's house and knocked at the door. "'Who is there?' cried the doctor, putting his head out of the bedroom window. "'Little Hans, doctor.' "'What do you want, little Hans?' "'The miller's son's fallen from a ladder. He's hurt himself. He wants you to come and see him at once.' "'All right,' said the doctor. He ordered his horse and his big boots and his lantern and came downstairs. He rode off in the direction of the miller's house, little Hans trudging behind him. The storm grew worse and worse. The rain fell in torrents. Little Hans could not see where he was going or keep up with the horse. At last he lost his way. He wandered off on the moor, which was a very dangerous place. It was full of deep holes, and there poor little Hans was drowned. His body was found the next day by some goat herds, floating in a great pool of water, and was brought back by them to the cottage. Everybody went to little Hans's funeral. He was so popular. The miller was the chief mourner. As I was his best friend, said the miller, 
It's only fair that I should have the best place. He walked at the head of the procession in a long black cloak, and every now and then he wiped his eyes with a big pocket handkerchief. Little Hans is a great loss to everyone, said the blacksmith. The funeral was over and they were all seated comfortably in the inn, drinking spiced wine and eating sweet cakes. A great loss to me at any rate, answered the miller. Why, I had as good as given him my wheelbarrow, and now I really don't know what to do with it. It's very much in my way at home. It's in such bad repair I could not get anything for it if I sold it. I will certainly take care not to give away anything again. One always suffers for being generous. Well, said the water rat after a long pause. Well, that is the end, said the linnet. But what became of the miller? asked the water rat. Oh, I really don't know. And I'm sure that I don't care. It's quite evident that you have no sympathy in your nature, said the water rat. I am afraid you don't quite see the moral of the story, remarked the linnet. The what? screamed the water rat. The moral. Do you mean to say the story has a moral? Certainly, said the linnet. Well, really, said the water rat, in a very angry manner. I think you should have told me that before you began. If you had done so, I would not have listened to you. In fact, I should have said, Pooh, like the critic. However, I can say it now. So he shouted, Pooh, at the top of his voice, gave a whisk with his tail, and went back into his hole. And how do you like the water rat? asked the duck, who came paddling up some minutes afterwards. He has a great many good points, but for my own part I have a mother's feelings. I can never look at a confirmed bachelor without tears coming into my eyes. I'm rather afraid that I annoyed him, answered the linnet. The fact is, I told him a story with a moral. Ah, that is a very dangerous thing to do, said the duck. And I quite agree with her. The Happy Prince by Oscar Wilde High above the city, on a tall column, stood the statue of the Happy Prince. He was gilded all over with thin leaves of fine gold. For eyes he had two bright sapphires, and a large red ruby glowed on his sword hilt. He was very much admired indeed. He is as beautiful as a weathercock, remarked one of the town councillors, who wished to gain a reputation for having artistic tastes. Only not quite so useful, he added, fearing lest people should think him unpractical, which he really was not. Why can't you be like the happy prince? asked a sensible mother of her little boy who was crying for the moon. The happy prince never dreams of crying for anything. I am glad that there is someone in the world who is quite happy, muttered a disappointed man as he gazed at the wonderful statue. He looks just like an angel, said the charity children as they came out of the cathedral in their bright scarlet cloaks and their clean white pinafores. How do you know, said the mathematical master. You have never seen one. 
Ah, but we have in our dreams, answered the children, and the mathematical master frowned and looked very severe, for he did not approve of children dreaming. One night there flew over the city a little swallow. His friends had gone away to Egypt six weeks before, but he had stayed behind, for he was in love with the most beautiful reed. He had met her early in the spring, as he was flying down the river after a big yellow moth, and had been so attracted by her slender waist that he had stopped to talk to her. Shall I love you, said the swallow, who liked to come to the point at once, and the reed had made him a low bow. So he flew round and round her, touching the water with his wings and making silver ripples. This was his courtship, and it lasted all through the summer. It is a ridiculous attachment, twittered the other swallows. She has no money and far too many relations. And indeed, the river was quite full of reeds. Then, when the autumn came, they all flew away. After they had gone, he felt lonely and began to tire of his lady love. She has no conversation, he said, and I am afraid that she is a coquette, for she is always flirting with the wind. And certainly, whenever the wind blew, the reed made the most graceful curtsies. I admit that she is domestic, he continued, but I love traveling, and my wife consequently should love traveling also. Will you come away with me, he said finally to her, but the reed shook her head. She was attached to her home. You've been trifling with me, he cried. I'm off to the pyramids, goodbye. And he flew away. All day long he flew, and at night time he arrived at the city. Where shall I put up, he said. I hope the town has made preparations. There he saw the statue on the tall column. I will put up there, he cried. It's a fine position with plenty of fresh air. So he alighted just between the feet of the happy prince. I have a golden bedroom, he said softly to himself as he looked around, and he prepared to go to sleep, but just as he was putting his head under his wing, a large drop of water fell on him. What a curious thing, he said. There is not a single cloud in the sky. The stars are quite clear and bright, and yet it is raining. The climate in the north of Europe is really dreadful. The reed used to like the rain, but that was merely her selfishness. Then another drop fell. What is the use of a statue if it cannot keep the rain off, he said. I must look for a good chimney pot, and he determined to fly away. But before he had opened his wings, a third drop fell, and he looked up and saw. Ah, oh, what did he see? The eyes of the happy prince were filled with tears, and tears were running down his golden cheeks. His face was so beautiful in the moonlight that the little swallow was filled with pity. Who are you? He said. I am the happy prince. Why are you weeping then? Asked the swallow. You have quite drenched me. When I was alive and I had a human heart, answered the statue. I did not know what tears were, for I lived in the palace of Sanssouci, where sorrow was not allowed to enter. In the daytime I played with my companions in the garden, and in the evening I led the dance in the great hall. Round the garden ran a very lofty wall, but I never cared to ask what lay beyond it. Everything about me was so beautiful. My courtiers called me the happy prince, and happy indeed I was, if pleasure be happiness. So I lived, and so I died. And now that I am dead, they have me set up here so high that I can see all the ugliness and all the misery of my city. And though my heart is made of lead, yet I cannot chose but weep. 
What? Is he not solid gold? said the swallow to himself. He was too polite to make any personal remarks out loud. Far away, continued the statue in a low musical voice. Far away in a little street there is a poor house. One of the windows is open, and through it I can see a woman seated at a table. Her face is thin and worn. She has coarse red hands, all pricked by the needle, for she is a seamstress. She is embroidering passion flowers on a satin gown for the loveliest of the queen's maids of honor to wear at the next court ball. In a bed in the corner of the room, her little boy is lying ill. He has a fever and is asking for oranges. His mother has nothing to give him but river water, so he is crying. Swallow, swallow, little swallow, will you not bring her the ruby? out of my sword hilt. My feet are fastened to this pedestal, and I cannot move. I am waited for in Egypt, said the swallow. My friends are flying up and down the Nile and talking to the large lotus flowers. Soon they will go to sleep in the tomb of the great king. The king is there himself in the painted coffin. He's wrapped in yellow linen and embalmed with spices. Round his neck is a chain of pale green jade, and his hands are like withered leaves. Swallow, swallow, little swallow, said the prince. Will you not stay with me for one night and be my messenger? The boy is so thirsty and the mother is so sad. I don't think I like boys, answered the swallow. Last summer when I was staying on the river there were two rude boys, the miller's sons, who were always throwing stones at me. They never hit me, of course. We swallows fly far too well for that. And besides, I come of a family famous for its agility. But still... It was a mark of disrespect. The happy prince looked so sad that the little swallow was sorry. It's very cold here, he said. I will stay with you for one night and be your messenger. Thank you, little swallow, said the prince. So the swallow picked out the great ruby from the prince's sword and flew away with it in his beak over the roofs of the town. He passed by the cathedral tower where the white marble angels were sculptured. He passed by the palace and heard the sound of dancing. A beautiful girl came out on the balcony with her lover. How wonderful the stars are, he said to her, and how wonderful the power of love. I hope my dress will be ready in time for the state ball, she answered. I've ordered passion flowers to be embroidered on it. The seamstresses are so lazy. He passed over the river and saw the lanterns hanging to the masts of ships. He passed over the ghetto. He saw old Jews bargaining with each other and weighing out money in copper scales. At last he came to the poor house and looked in. The boy was tossing feverishly on his bed, and the mother had fallen asleep. She was so tired. In he hopped, and laid the great ruby on the table besides the woman's thimble. Then he flew gently round the bed, fanning the boy's forehead with his wings. How cool I feel, said the boy. I must be getting better. And he sank into a delicious slumber. Then the swallow flew back to the happy prince and told him what he had done. It is curious, he remarked, but I feel quite warm now, though it is so cold. That is because you have done a good action, said the prince. And the little swallow began to think, and then he fell asleep. Thinking always made him sleepy. 
When day broke, he flew down to the river and had a bath. What a remarkable phenomenon, said the professor of ornithology as he was passing over the bridge. A swallow in winter. And he wrote a long letter about it to the local newspaper. Everyone quoted it. It was so full of many words that they could not understand. Tonight, I go to Egypt, said the swallow. And he was in high spirits at the prospect. He visited all the public monuments and sat a long time on top of the church steeple. Wherever he went, the sparrows chirruped and said to each other, What a distinguished stranger. So he enjoyed himself very much. When the moon rose, he flew back to the happy prince. Have you any commissions for Egypt? he cried. I'm just starting. Swallow, swallow, little swallow, said the prince. Will you not stay with me one night longer? I am waited for in Egypt, answered the swallow. Tomorrow my friends will fly up to the second cataract. The river horse couches there among the bulrushes, and on a great granite throne sits the god Memnon. Night long he watches the stars, and when the morning star shines he utters one cry of joy. And then he is silent. At noon the yellow lions come down to the water's edge to drink. They have eyes like green barrels, and their roar is louder than the roar of the cataract. Swallow, swallow, little swallow, said the prince. Far away across the city I see a young man in a garret. He is leaning over a desk covered with papers, and in a tumbler by his side there is a bunch of withered violets. His hair is brown and crisp, and his lips are red as a pomegranate. He has large and dreamy eyes. He is trying to finish a play for the director of the theatre, but he's too cold to write anymore. There is no fire in the grate, and hunger has made him faint. I will wait with you one night longer, said the swallow, who really did have a good heart. Shall I take him another ruby? Alas, I have no ruby now, said the prince. My eyes are all that I have left. They are made of rare sapphires, which were brought out of India a thousand years ago. Pluck out one of them and take it to him. He will sell it to the jeweler and buy food and firewood and finish his play. Dear prince, said the swallow, I cannot do that. And he began to weep. Swallow, swallow, little swallow, said the prince. Do as I command you. So the swallow plucked out the prince's eyes and flew away to the student's garret. It was easy enough to get in as there was a hole in the roof. Through this he darted and came into the room. The young man had his head buried in his hands, so he did not hear the flutter of the bird's wings. And when he looked up, he found the beautiful sapphire lying on the withered violets. I am beginning to be appreciated, he cried. This from some great admirer. Now I can finish my play. And he looked quite happy. The next day the swallow flew down to the harbor. He sat on the mast of a large vessel and watched the sailors hauling big chests out of the hold with ropes. Heave ahoy, they shouted as each chest came up. I am going to Egypt, cried the swallow, but nobody minded, and when the moon rose he flew back to the happy prince. I am come to bid you goodbye, he cried. Swallow, swallow, little swallow, said the prince. Will you not stay with me one night longer? It is winter, answered the swallow, and the chill snow will be here. In Egypt the sun is warm on the green palm trees and the crocodiles that lie in the mud and look lazily about them. My companions are building a nest in the temple of Baalbek, and the pink and white doves are watching them and cooing to each other. Dear prince, I must leave you. 
I will never forget you. And next spring I will bring you back two beautiful jewels in place of those you've given away. The ruby shall be redder than a red rose, and the sapphire shall be as blue as the great sea. In the square below, said the happy prince, there stands a little match girl. She's let her matches fall in the gutter, and they are all spoiled. Her father will beat her if she does not bring home some money, and she is crying. She has no shoes or stockings. Her little head is bare. Pluck out my other eye and give it to her, and her father will not beat her. I will stay with you one night longer, said the swallow, but I cannot pluck out your eye. You would be quite blind then. Swallow, swallow, little swallow, said the prince. Do as I command you. So, he plucked out the prince's other eye and darted down with it. He swooped past the match girl and slipped the jewel into the palm of her hand. What a lovely bit of glass, cried the little girl as she ran home laughing. Then the swallow came back to the prince. You are blind now, he said. So, I will stay with you always. No, little swallow, said the poor prince. You must go away to Egypt. I will stay with you always, said the swallow, and he slept at the prince's feet. All the next day, he sat on the prince's shoulder and told him stories of what he had seen in strange lands. He told him of the red ibises who stand in long rows on the banks of the Nile, catch goldfish in their beaks, of the sphinx who is as old as the world itself and lives in the desert and knows everything, of the merchants who walk slowly by the side of their camels and carry amber beads in their hands, of the king of the mountains of the moon who is as black as ebony and worships a large crystal of the great green snake that sleeps in the palm tree and his twenty priests to feed it with honey cakes and of the pygmies who sail over a big lake on large flat leaves and are always at war with the butterflies dear little swallow said the prince you tell me of marvelous things but more marvelous than anything is the suffering of men and women there is no mystery so great as misery Fly over my city, little swallow, and tell me what you see there. So the swallow flew over the great city, and saw the rich making merry in their beautiful houses while beggars were sitting at the gates. He flew into dark lanes and saw the white faces of starving children looking out listlessly at black streets. Under the archway of a bridge, two little boys were lying in one another's arms trying to keep themselves warm. How hungry we are, they said. You must not lie here, shouted the watchman they wandered out into the rain. He flew back and told the prince what he had seen. I am covered with fine gold, said the prince. You must take it off, leaf by leaf, and give it to my poor. The living always think that gold can make them happy. Leaf after leaf of the fine gold the swallow picked off, till the happy prince looked quite dull and grey leaf after leaf of the fine gold that he brought to the poor and the children's faces grew rosier, and they laughed and played games in the street. We have bread now, they cried, and the snow came, and after the snow came the frost. The streets looked as if they were made of silver. They were so bright and glistening. Long icicles like crystal daggers hung down from the eaves of the houses. Everybody went about in furs, and the little boys wore scarlet caps and skated on the ice. 
The poor little swallow grew colder and colder, but he would not leave the prince. He loved him too well. He picked up crumbs outside the baker's door when the baker was not looking and tried to keep himself warm by flapping his wings. But at last he knew that he was going to die. He had just strength to fly up to the prince's shoulder once more. Goodbye, dear prince, he murmured. Will you let me kiss your hand? I'm glad you're going to Egypt at last, little swallow, said the prince. You've stayed here too long, but... You must kiss me on the lips, for I love you. It is not to Egypt that I am going, said the swallow. I am going to the house of death. Death is the brother of sleep, is he not? And he kissed the happy prince on the lips, and fell down, dead at his feet. At that moment a curious crack sounded inside the statue, as if something had broken. The fact is that the leaden heart had snapped right in two. It certainly was a dreadfully hard frost. Early the next morning, the mayor was walking in the square below in the company with the town councillors. As they passed the column, he looked up at the statue. Dear me, how shabby the happy prince looks, he said. How shabby indeed, cried the town councillors who always agreed with the mayor and they went up to look at it. The ruby has fallen out of his sword. His eyes are gone and he is golden no longer, said the mayor. In fact, he is a little better than a beggar. Little better than a beggar, said the town councillors. And here is actually a dead bird at his feet, continued the mayor. We must really issue a proclamation that birds are not allowed to die here. And the town clerk made a note of the suggestion. So they pulled down the statue of the happy prince. As he is no longer beautiful, he is no longer useful, said the art professor at the university. Then they melted the statue in a furnace, and the mayor held a meeting of the corporation to decide what was to be done with the metal. We must have another statue, of course, he said, and it shall be a statue of myself. Of myself, said each of the town councillors, and they quarrelled. When I last heard of them, they were quarrelling still. What a strange thing, said the overseer of the workmen at the foundry. This broken lead heart will not melt in the furnace. We must throw it away. So they threw it on a dust heap, where the dead swallow was also lying. Bring me the two most precious things in the city, said God to one of his angels. And the angel brought him the leaden heart and the dead bird. You have rightly chosen, said God. For in my garden of paradise, this little bird shall sing forevermore. And in my city of gold, the happy prince shall praise me. And that is the story of the happy prince by Oscar Wilde. The Selfish Giant by Oscar Wilde. Every afternoon, as they were coming from school, the children used to go and play in the giant's garden. It was a large, lovely garden with soft green grass. Here and there over the grass stood beautiful flowers like stars. And there were twelve peach trees that in the springtime broke out into delicate blossoms of pink and pearl. And in the autumn bore rich fruit. The birds sat on the trees and sang so sweetly that the children used to stop their games in order to listen to them. How happy we are here! They cried to each other. One day, the giant 
came back. He had been to visit his friend the Cornish Ogre, and had stayed with him for seven years. After the seven years were over, he had said all that he had to say, for his conversation was limited, and he determined to return to his own castle. When he arrived, he saw the children playing in the garden. What are you doing here? He cried in a very gruff voice, and the children ran away. My own garden is my own garden, said the giant. Anyone can understand that, and I will allow nobody to play in it but myself. So he built a high wall around it, all around it, and put up a notice board that said trespassers will be prosecuted. He was a very selfish giant. The poor children had now nowhere to play. They tried to play on the road, but the road was very dusty and full of hard stones, and they did not like it. They used to wander around the high wall when their lessons were over and talk about the beautiful garden inside. How happy we were there, they said to each other. Then the spring came, and all over the country there were little blossoms and little birds. Only in the garden of the selfish giant was it still winter. The birds did not care to sing in it as there were no children, and the trees forgot to blossom. Once a beautiful flower put its head out of the grass, but when it saw the notice board it was so sorry for the children that it slipped back into the ground again and went off to sleep. The only people who were pleased were the snow and the frost. Spring has forgotten this garden, they cried, so we will live here all year round. The snow covered up the grass with her great white cloak and the frost painted all the trees silver. Then they invited the north wind to stay with them and he came. He was wrapped in furs and he roared all day about the garden and blew the chimney pots down. This is a delightful spot, he said. We must ask the hail on a visit. So the hail came. Every day for three hours he rattled on the roof of the castle until he broke most of the slates. And then he ran round and round the garden as fast as he could go. He was dressed in grey and his breath was like ice. I cannot understand why the spring is so late in coming, said the selfish giant, as he sat at the window and looked out at his cold white garden. I hope there'll be a change in the weather. But the spring never came, nor the summer. The autumn gave golden fruit to every garden, but to the giant's garden she gave none. He is too selfish, she said, so it was always winter there, and the north wind, and the hail and the frost and the snow danced about through the trees. One morning, the giant was lying awake in bed when he heard some lovely music. It sounded so sweet to his ears that he thought it must be the king's musicians passing by. It was really only a little linnet singing outside his window. It was so long since he had heard a bird sing in his garden that it seemed to him to be the most beautiful music in the world. Then the hail stopped dancing over his head, and the north wind ceased roaring, and a delicious perfume came to him through the open casement. I believe the spring has come at last, said the giant, and he jumped out of bed and looked out. What did he see? He saw a most wonderful sight. Through a little hole in the wall the children had crept in, and they were sitting in the branches of the trees. 
In every tree that he could see there was a little child, and the trees were so glad to have the children back again. They had covered themselves with blossoms, and were waving their arms gently above the children's heads. The birds were flying about and twittering with delight, and the flowers were looking up through the green grass and laughing. It was a lovely scene. Only in one corner it was still winter. It was the farthest corner of the garden, and in it was standing a little boy. He was so small that he could not reach up to the branches of the tree, and he was wandering all around it, crying bitterly. The poor tree was still quite covered with frost and snow, and the north wind was blowing and roaring above it. Climb up, little boy, said the tree, and bent its branches down as low as it could. But the boy was too tiny. And the giant's heart melted as he looked out. How selfish I have been, he said. Now I know why the spring would not come here. I will put that poor little boy on top of the tree, and then I will knock down the wall, and my garden shall be the children's playground forever and ever. He was really sorry for what he had done. So he crept downstairs and opened the front door quite softly and went out into the garden. But when the children saw him, they were so frightened, they all ran away and the garden became winter again. Only the little boy did not run. His eyes were so full of tears that he did not see the giant coming. And the giant stole up behind him and took him gently in his hand and put him up into the tree. And the tree broke at once into blossom and the birds came and sat on it and the little boy stretched out his two arms and flung them round the giant's neck and kissed him. And the other children, when they saw that the giant was not wicked any longer, came running back. And with them came the spring. It is your garden now, little children, said the giant. And he took a great axe and knocked down the wall. And when the people were going to market at twelve o'clock, they found the giant playing with the children in the most beautiful garden they had ever seen. All day long they played, and in the evening they came to the giant to bid him goodbye. But where is your little companion? he said. The boy that I put into the tree. The giant loved him best because he had kissed him. We don't know, answered the children. He's gone away. Well, you must tell him to be sure and come tomorrow, said the giant. But the children said they did not know where he lived. They had never seen him before. And the giant felt very sad. Every afternoon when school was over, the children came and played with the giant. The little boy whom the giant loved was never seen again. The giant was very kind to all the children. Yet he longed for his first little friend and often spoke of him. How I would like to see him, he used to say. Years went over and the giant grew very old, feeble. He could not play about anymore. So he sat in a huge armchair and watched the children at their games and admired his garden. I have many beautiful flowers, he said, but the children are the most beautiful flowers of all. One winter morning he looked out his window as he was dressing. He did not hate the winter now, for he knew it was merely the spring asleep, and that the flowers were resting. Suddenly he rubbed his eyes in wonder, and looked and looked. It certainly was a marvellous sight. 
In the farthest corner of the garden was a tree quite covered with lovely white blossoms. Its branches were all golden, and silver fruit hung down from them, and underneath it stood the little boy who he had loved. Downstairs ran the giant in great joy and out into the garden. He hastened across the grass and came near to the child. And when he came quite close, his face grew red with anger, and he said, Who hath dared to wound thee? For on the palms of the child's hands were the prints of two nails, and the prints of two nails were on the little feet. Who hath dared to wound thee? cried the giant. Tell me, that I may take my big sword and slay him. Nay, answered the child, these are the wounds of love. Who art thou? said the giant and a strange awe fell on him, and he knelt before the little child. And the child smiled on the giant and said to him, You let me play once in your garden. Today you shall come with me to my garden, which is paradise. And when the children ran in that afternoon, they found the giant lying dead under the tree, all covered with white blossoms. The Nightingale and the Rose She said that she would dance with me if I brought her red roses, cried the young student. But in all my garden there is no red rose. From her nest in the home oak tree the nightingale heard him and she looked out through the leaves and wondered. No red rose in all my garden, he cried, and his beautiful eyes filled with tears. On what little things does happiness depend? I have read all that the wise men have written, and all the secrets of philosophy are mine. Yet for want of a red rose is my life made wretched. Here at last is a true lover, said the nightingale. Night after night have I sung of him, though I knew him not. Night after night have I told his story to the stars, and now I see him. His hair is dark as the hyacinth blossom, and his lips are red as the rose of his desire. But passion has made his face like pale ivory and sorrow has set her seal upon his brow. Prince gives a ball tomorrow night, murmured the young student, and my love will be of the company. If I bring her a red rose, she will dance with me till dawn. If I bring her a red rose, I shall hold her in my arms, and she will lean her head upon my shoulder. Her hand will be clasped in mine. There is no red rose in my garden, so I shall sit lonely. She will pass me by. She will have no heed of me in my heart break. Here indeed is the true lover, said the nightingale. What I sing of he suffers. What is joy to me, to him is pain. Surely love is a wonderful thing. It is more precious than emeralds and dearer than fine opals. Pearls and pomegranates cannot buy it, nor is it set forth in the marketplace. It may not be purchased of the merchants, nor can it be weighed out in the balance for gold. The musicians all sit in their gallery, said the young student. And play upon their stringed instruments and my love will dance to the sound of the harp and the violin. She will dance so lightly that her feet will not touch the floor and the courtiers in their gay dresses will throng round her. But with me she will not dance, for I have no red rose to give her. And he flung himself down on the grass and buried his face in his hands and he wept. Why is he weeping? asked a little green lizard as he ran past him with his tail in the air. Why indeed, said a butterfly, who was fluttering about after a sunbeam. Why indeed, whispered a daisy to his neighbor in a soft, low voice. He is weeping for a red rose, said the nightingale, 
for a red rose, they cried. How very ridiculous. And the little lizard, who was something of a cynic, laughed outright. But the nightingale understood the secret of the student's sorrow. And she sat silent in the oak tree and thought about the mystery of love. Suddenly, she spread her brown wings for flight and soared into the air. She passed through the grove like a shadow, and like a shadow, she sailed across the garden. In the center of the grass plot was standing a beautiful rose tree. And when she saw it, she flew over to it and lit upon a spray. Give me a red rose, she cried, and I will sing you my sweetest song. But the tree shook its head. My roses are white, it answered, as white as the foam of the sea and whiter than the snow upon the mountain. But go to my brother who grows round the old sundial. Perhaps he will give you what you want. So the nightingale flew over to the rose tree that was growing around the old sundial. Give me a red rose, she cried, and I will sing you my sweetest song. But the tree shook its head. My roses are yellow, it answered, as yellow as the hair of the mermaiden who sits upon an amber throne, yellower than the daffodil that blooms in the meadow before the mower comes with his scythe. But go to my brother who grows beneath the student's window. Perhaps he will give you what you want. So the nightingale flew over to the rose tree that was growing beneath the student's window. Give me a red rose, she cried, and I will sing you my sweetest song. But the tree shook its head. My roses are red, it answered. As red as the feet of the dove and redder than the great fans of coral wave and wave in the ocean cavern. But the winter has chilled my veins, and the frost has nipped my buds, and the storm has broken my branches, and I shall have no roses at all this year. One red rose is all I want, cried the nightingale, only one red rose. Is there no way by which I can get it? There is a way, answered the tree. But it is so terrible that I dare not tell it to you. Tell it to me, said the nightingale. I am not afraid. If you want a red rose, said the tree, you must build it out of music by moonlight and stain it with your own heart's blood. You must sing to me with your breast against a thorn. All night long you must sing to me, and the thorn must pierce your heart and your lifeblood must flow into my veins and become mine. Death is a great price to pay for a red rose, cried the nightingale, and life is very dear to all. It is pleasant to sit in the green wood and to watch the sun in his chariot of gold, the moon in her chariot of pearl. Sweet is the scent of the hawthorn, sweet are the bluebells that hide in the valley, and the heather that blows on the hill. Yet, love is better than life. And what is the heart of a bird compared to the heart of a man? So, she spread her brown wings for flight, soared into the air, swept over the garden like a shadow, and like a shadow she sailed through the grove. The young student was still lying on the grass where she had left him, and the tears were not yet dry in his beautiful eyes. Be happy, cried the nightingale. Be happy, you shall have your red rose. I will build it out of music by moonlight and stain it with my own heart's blood. 
all I ask of you in return is that you will be a true lover. For love is wiser than philosophy, though she is wise, and mightier than power, though he is mighty. Flame-colored are his wings, and colored like flame is his body, his lips are sweet as honey, and his breath like frankincense. The student looked up from the grass and listened, but he could not understand what the nightingale was saying to him, for he only knew the things that are written down in books. But the oak tree understood, felt sad, for he was very fond of the little nightingale who had built her nest in his branches. Sing me one last song, he whispered. I shall feel very lonely when you are gone. So the nightingale sang to the oak tree and her voice was like water bubbling from a silver jar. When she had finished her song, the student got up and pulled a notebook and a lead pencil out of his pocket. She has form, he said to himself, as he walked away through the grove. That cannot be denied to her, but has she got feeling? I'm afraid not. In fact, she's like most artists. She's all style, without any sincerity. She would not sacrifice herself for others. She thinks merely of music, and everybody knows that the arts are selfish. Still, it must be admitted that she has some beautiful notes in her voice. What a pity it is they do not mean anything or do any practical good. He went to his room and laid down on his little pallet bed and began to think of his love. And after a time, he fell asleep. And when the moon shone in the heavens, the nightingale flew to the rose tree and set her breast against the thorn. All night long, she sang with her breast against the thorn and the cold crystal moon leaned down and listened. All night long she sang and the thorn went deeper and deeper into her breast and her lifeblood ebbed away from her. She sang first of the birth of love in the heart of a boy and a girl and on topmost spray of the rose tree there blossomed a marvellous rose. Petal following petal as song followed song. Pale was it at first as the mists that hang over the river Pale as the feet of the morning and silver of the wings of the dawn, as the shadow of a rose in a mirror of silver, as the shadow of a rose in a water pool, so was the rose that blossomed on the topmost spray of the tree. But the tree cried to the nightingale to press closer against the thorn. Press closer, little nightingale, cried the tree, or the day will come before the rose is finished. So the nightingale pressed closer against the thorn, and louder and louder grew her song, for she sang of the birth of passion in the soul of a man and a maid. And a delicate flush of pink came into the leaves of the rose, like the flush in the face of the bridegroom when he kisses the lips of the bride. But the thorn had not yet reached her heart, so the rose's heart remained white, for only a nightingale's heart blood can crimson the heart of a rose. And the tree cried to the nightingale to press closer to the thorn. Press closer, little nightingale, cried the tree, or the day will come before the rose is finished. So the nightingale pressed closer against the thorn, and the thorn touched her heart, and a fierce pang of pain shot through her. Bitter, bitter was the pain, wilder and wilder grew her song, for she sang of the love that is perfected by death of the love that dies not in the tomb. And the marvellous rose became crimson, 
like the rose of the eastern sky. Crimson was the girdle of petals, and crimson as a ruby was the heart. The nightingale's voice grew fainter, and her little wings began to beat. A film came over her eyes, fainter and fainter grew her song. She felt something choking her in her throat. Then she gave one last burst of music. The white moon heard it and forgot the dawn and lingered on in the sky. The red rose heard it and trembled all over with ecstasy. It opened its petals in the cold morning air. Echo bore it to her purple cavern in the hills and woke the sleeping shepherds from their dreams. It floated through the reeds of the river and carried its message to the sea. Look, look, cried the tree. The rose is finished now. The nightingale made no answer, for she was lying dead in the long grass, with the thorn in her heart. And at noon the student opened his window and looked out. Why, what a wonderful piece of luck, he cried. Here is a red rose. I've never seen any rose like it in all my life. It is so beautiful that I am sure it has a long Latin name. He leaned down and plucked it. He put on his hat and he ran up to the professor's house with his rose in his hand. The daughter of the professor was sitting in the doorway, winding blue silk on a reel, her little dog lying at her feet. "'You said you would dance with me if I brought you a red rose,' cried the student. "'Here is the reddest rose in all the world. You'll wear it tonight, next to your heart, as we dance, together. It'll tell you how I love you.' The girl frowned. "'I'm afraid it will not go with my dress,' she answered. Besides, the Chamberlain's nephew has sent me some real jewels, and everybody knows that jewels cost far more than flowers. Well, upon my word, you are very ungrateful, said the student angrily, and he threw the rose into the street, where it fell into the gutter, and a cartwheel went over it. Ungrateful, said the girl. I tell you what, you are very rude, and after all, who are you? Only a student. Why, I don't believe you've even got silver buckles to your shoes as the Chamberlain's nephew has. And she got up from her chair and went into the house. What a silly thing love is, said the student as he walked away. It's not half as useful as logic, for it does not prove anything. It's always telling one of things that are not going to happen and making one believe things that are not true. In fact, it is quite unpractical. And, as in this age, to be practical is everything. I shall go back to philosophy and study metaphysics. So he returned to his room, pulled out a great dusty book, and began to read. Snow White and Rose Red There was once a poor widow who lived in a lonely cottage. In front of the cottage was a garden wherein stood two rose trees, one of which bore white and the other red roses. She had two children who were like the two rose trees, and one was called Snow White and the other Rose Red. They were as good and happy, as busy and cheerful as ever two children in the world were. Only Snow White was more quiet and gentle than Rose Red. Rose Red liked better to run about in the meadows and fields, seeking flowers and catching butterflies. But Snow White sat at home with her mother and helped her with her housework, or read to her when there was nothing to do. The two children were so fond of one another 
but they always held each other by the hand when they were out together. And when Snow White said, We will not leave each other, Rose Red answered, Never, so long as we live. And their mother would add, What one has, she must share with the other. They often ran about the forest alone and gathered red berries, and no beasts did them any harm, but came close to them, trustfully. The little hare would eat a cabbage leaf out of their hands, the roe grazed by their side, the stag leapt merrily by them, and the birds sat still upon the boughs and sang whatever they knew. No mishap overtook them. If they had stayed too late in the forest and night came on, they laid themselves down near one another upon the moss, and slept until morning came, and their mother knew this, and did not worry on their account. Once, when they had spent the night in the wood, and the dawn had roused them, they saw a beautiful child, in a shining white dress, sitting near their bed. He got up and looked quite kindly at them, and said nothing, and went into the forest. And when they looked round, they found that they had been sleeping quite close to a precipice, and would certainly have fallen into it in the darkness if they had gone only a few paces further. Their mother told them it must have been the angel who watches over good children. Snow White and Rose Red kept their mother's little cottage so neat that it was a pleasure to look inside it. In the summer, Rose Red took care of the house, and every morning laid a wreath of flowers by her mother's bed before she awoke, in which was a rose from each tree. In the winter, Snow White lit the fire and hung the kettle on the hob. The kettle was of brass and shone like gold, so brightly was it polished. In the evening, when the snowflakes fell, the mother said, Go, Snow White, and bolt the door. And then they sat round the hearth, and the mother took her spectacles and read aloud out of a large book. And the two girls listened as they sat and spun. Close by them lay a lamb upon the floor, and behind them upon a perch sat a white dove with its head hidden beneath its wings. One evening, as they were thus sitting comfortably together, someone knocked at the door as if he wished to be let in. The mother said, Quick, Rose Red, open the door. It must be a traveller who is seeking shelter. Rose Red went and pushed back the bolt thinking that it was a poor man, but it was not. It was a bear that stretched his broad black head within the door. Rose Red screamed and sprang back. The lamb bleated, the dove fluttered, and Snow White hid herself behind her mother's bed. But the bear began to speak and said, Do not be afraid. I will do you no harm. I am half frozen and only want to warm myself a little beside you. Poor bear, said the mother, lie down by the fire. Only take care that you do not burn your coat. And then she cried, Snow White, Rose Red, come out. The bear will do you no harm, he means well. So they both came out. And by the by, the lamb and dove came nearer and were not afraid of him. The bear said, Here, children, knock the snow out of my coat a little. So they brought the broom and swept the bear's hide clean, and he stretched himself by the fire and growled contentedly and comfortably. It was not long before they grew quite at home, 
and played tricks with their clumsy guest. They tugged his hair with their hands, put their feet upon his back and rolled him about, or they took a hazel switch and beat him, and when he growled they laughed. But the bear took it all in good part. Only when they were too rough he called out, Leave me alive, children. Snow White, Rose Red, will you beat your wooer dead? When it was bedtime and the others went to bed, the mother said to the bear, You can lie there by the hearth, but you will be safe from the cold and the bad weather. As soon as day dawned, the two children let him out, and he trotted across the snow into the forest. Henceforth, the bear came every evening at the same time, laid himself down by the hearth, and let the children amuse themselves with him as much as they liked. They got so used to him that the doors were never fastened until their black friend had arrived. When spring had come and all outside was green, the bear said one morning to Snow White, Now I must go away, and cannot come back for the whole summer. Where are you going then, dear bear? asked Snow White. I must go into the forest and guard my treasures from the wicked dwarfs. In the winter, when the earth is frozen hard, they are obliged to stay below, and cannot work their way through. But now, when the sun has thawed and warmed the earth, they break through, and come out to pry and steal, and what once gets into their hands and in their caves does not easily see daylight again. Snow White was quite sorry at his departure, and as she unbolted the door for him, and the bear was hurrying out. He caught against the bolt, and a piece of his hairy coat was torn off, and it seemed to Snow White as if she had seen gold shining through it. She was not sure about it. The bear ran away quickly and was soon out of sight, behind the trees. A short time afterwards, the mother sent her children into the forest to get firewood. There they found a big tree, which lay felled on the ground, Close by the trunk, something was jumping backwards and forwards in the grass. They could not make out what it was. When they came nearer, they saw a dwarf with an old withered face and a snow-white beard a yard long. The end of the beard was caught in a crevice of the tree. The little fellow was jumping about like a dog tied to a rope, did not know what to do. He glared at the girls with his fiery red eyes and cried, why do you stand there? Can you not come here and help me? What are you up to, little man? asked Rose Red. You stupid prying goose, answered the dwarf. I was going to split the tree to get a little wood for cooking. The little bit of food that we people get is immediately burnt up with heavy logs. We do not swallow as much as you coarse, greedy folk. I had just driven the wedge safely in and everything was going as I wished, but the cursed wedge was too smooth. Suddenly sprang out. The tree closed so quickly I could not pull out my beautiful white beard. So now it is tight, and I cannot get away. And the silly, sleek, milk-faced things laugh how odious you are. The children tried very hard, but they could not pull the beard out. It was caught too fast. I'll run and fetch something, said Rose Red. You senseless goose, snarled the dwarf. Why should you fetch someone? You were already too, too many for me. Can you not think of something better? Don't be impatient, said Snow White. I will help you. She pulled her scissors out of her pocket and cut off the end of the beard. 
as soon as the dwarf felt himself free, he laid hold of a bag which lay amongst the roots of the tree and was full of gold. He lifted it up, grumbling to himself, Uncouth people, cut off a piece of my fine beard, bad luck to you. He swung the bag upon his back and went off without even once looking at the children. Some time afterwards, Snow White and Rose Red went to catch a dish of fish. As they came near the brook, they saw something like a large grasshopper jumping towards the water, as if it were going to leap in. They ran to it and found it was the dwarf. Where are you going? said Rose Red. You surely don't want to go into the water. I'm not such a fool, cried the dwarf. Don't you see that the accursed fish wants to pull me in? The little man had been sitting there fishing, and unluckily the wind had tangled up his beard with the fishing line. A moment later, a big fish made a bite, and the feeble creature had not strength to pull it out. The fish kept the upper hand, and pulled the dwarf towards him. He held on to all the reeds and rushes, but it was of little good, for he was forced to follow the movements of the fish, and was in urgent danger of being dragged into the water. The girls came just in time. They held him fast and tried to free his beard from the line, but all in vain. Beard and line were entangled fast together. There was nothing to do but bring out the scissors and cut the beard, whereby a small part of it was lost. When the dwarf saw that, he screamed out, Is that civil, you toadstool, to disfigure a man's face? Was it not enough to clip off the end of my beard? Now you've cut off the best part of it. I cannot let myself be seen by my people. I wish you had been made to run the soles off your shoes. He took out a sack of pearls which lay in the rushes. Without another word, he dragged it away and disappeared behind a stone. It happened that soon afterwards the mother sent the two children to the town to buy needles and thread, and laces and ribbons. The road led them across a heath upon which huge pieces of rock lay strewn about. There they noticed a large bird hovering in the air, flying slowly round and round above them. It sank lower and lower and at last settled near a rock not far away. Immediately they heard a loud, piteous cry. They ran up and saw with horror that the eagle had seized their old acquaintance, the dwarf, and was going to carry him off. The children, full of pity, at once took tight hold of the little man and pulled against the eagle so long that at last he let his booty go. As soon as the dwarf had recovered from his first fright, he cried with his shrill voice, could you not have done it more carefully? You dragged at my brown coat, so now it's all torn and full of holes, you clumsy creatures. He took up a sack full of precious stones and slipped away, again under the rock into his hole. The girls, who by this time were used to his ingratitude, went on their way and did their business in town. As they crossed the heath again on their way home, they surprised the dwarf, who had emptied out his bag of precious stones in a clean spot, and had not thought that anyone would come there so late. The evening sun shone upon the brilliant stones. They glittered and sparkled with all colors so beautifully that the children stood still and stared at them. Why do you stand gaping there? cried the dwarf. 
His ashen grey face became copper red with rage. He was still cursing when a loud growling was heard, and a black bear came trotting towards them out of the forest. The dwarf sprang up in a fright, but he could not reach his cave. The bear was already close. Then, in the dread of his heart, he cried, Dear Mr. Bear, spare me. I will give you all of my treasures. Look, the beautiful jewels lying there. Grant me my life. What do you want with such a slender little fellow as I? You would not feel me between your teeth. Come, take these two wicked girls. They're tender morsels for you, fat as young quails. For mercy's sake, eat them. The bear took no heed of his words, but gave the wicked creature a single blow with his paw, and he did not move again. The girls had run away, but the bear called to them. Snow White, Rose Red, do not be afraid. Wait, I will come with you. Then they recognized his voice and waited, and when he came up to them, suddenly his bear skin fell off, and he stood there, a handsome man, clothed all in gold. I'm a king's son, he said. I was bewitched by that wicked dwarf who had stolen my treasures. I have had to run about the forest as a savage bear till I was freed by his death. Now he has got his well-deserved punishment. Snow White was married to him, and Rose Red to his brother, and they divided between them the great treasure which the dwarf had gathered together in his cave. The old mother lived peacefully and happily with her children for many years. She took the two rose trees with her, and they stood before her window, and every year bore the most beautiful roses, white and red. The Elves and the Shoemaker There was once a shoemaker who worked very hard and was very honest, but still he could not earn enough to live upon, and at last all he had in the world was gone, save just leather enough to make one pair of shoes. Then he cut his leather out already to make up the next day, meaning to rise early in the morning to his work. His conscience was clear and his heart light amidst all his troubles. So he went peaceably to bed, left all his cares to heaven and soon fell asleep. In the morning after he had said his prayers, he sat himself down to his work, when, to his great wonder, there stood the shoes already made upon the table. The good man knew not what to say or think at such an odd thing happening. He looked at the workmanship, there was not one full stitch in the whole job. All was so neat and true that it was quite a masterpiece. The same day a customer came in and the shoes suited him so well that he willingly paid a price higher than usual for them. And the poor shoemaker with the money bought leather enough to make two pairs more. In the evening he cut out the work and went to bed early, that he might get up and begin betimes next day. But he was saved all the trouble, for when he got up in the morning, the work was done, ready to his hand. Soon in came buyers who paid handsomely for his goods. He bought leather enough for four pair more. 
He cut out the work again overnight and found it done in the morning as before, and so it went on for some time. What was got ready in the evening was always done by daybreak, and the good man soon became thriving and well off again. One evening, about Christmas time, as he and his wife were sitting over the fire chatting together, he said to her, I should like to sit up and watch tonight, that we may see who it is that comes and does my work for me. The wife liked the thought, so they left a light burning and hid themselves in a corner of the room, behind a curtain that was hung up there and watched what would happen. As soon as it was midnight, there came in two little naked dwarfs, and they sat themselves upon the shoemaker's bench, took up all the work that was cut out and began to ply with their little fingers, stitching and wrapping and tapping away at such a rate that the shoemaker was all wonder and could not take his eyes off of them. On they went, till the job was quite done and the shoes stood ready for use upon the table. This was long before daybreak, and they bustled away as quick as lightning. The next day, the wife said to the shoemaker, These little whites have made us rich. We ought to be thankful to them and do them a good turn if we can. Quite sorry to see them run about as they do, and indeed it is not very decent. They have nothing upon their backs to keep off the cold. I'll tell you what, I'll make each of them a shirt, and a coat, and a waistcoat, and a pair of pantaloons into the bargain. And do you make each of them a little pair of shoes? The thought pleased the good cobbler very much, and one evening, when all the things were ready, they laid them on the table, instead of the work that they used to cut out, and they went and hid themselves to watch what the little elves would do. About midnight, in they came, dancing, skipping, hopped around the room, and then went to sit down to their work as usual. But when they saw the clothes lying for them, they laughed and chuckled and seemed mightily delighted. They dressed themselves in the twinkling of an eye. They danced and capered and sprang about, as merry as could be, till at last they danced out the door and away over the green. The good couple saw them no more, but everything went well with them from that time forward as long as they lived. Little Red Cap Once upon a time, there was a dear little girl who was loved by everyone who looked at her, but most of all by her grandmother, and there was nothing else that she would not have given to the child. Once she gave her a little cap of red velvet, which suited her so well that she would never wear anything else. So she was always called Little Red Cap. One day her mother said to her, Come, Little Red Cap, here is a piece of cake and a bottle of wine. Take them to your grandmother. She is ill and weak, and they will do her good. Set out before it gets hot, and when you are going, walk nicely and quietly, and do not run off the path or you may fall and break the bottle, and then your grandmother will get nothing. And when you go into her room, don't forget to say good morning, and don't peep into
to every corner before you do it. I will take great care, said Little Redcap to her mother, and gave her hand on it. The grandmother lived out in the wood, half a league from the village, and just as Little Redcap entered the wood, a wolf met her. Redcap did not know what a wicked creature he was, and was not at all afraid of him. Good day, little Redcap, said he. Thank you kindly, wolf. Whither away so early, little Redcap? To my grandmother's. What have you got in your apron? Cake and wine. Yesterday was baking day, so poor sick grandmother is to have something good to make her stronger. Where does your grandmother live, little Redcap? A good quarter of a league farther on in the wood. Her house stands under the three large oak trees. The nut trees are just below. You surely must know it, replied little Redcap. The wolf thought to himself, what a tender young creature, what a nice plump mouthful. She will be better to eat than the old woman. I must act craftily so as to catch both. So he walked for a short time by the side of Little Redcap, and then he said, See, Little Redcap, how pretty the flowers are about here. Why do you not look around? I believe, too, that you do not hear how sweetly the little birds are singing. You walk gravely along as if you were going to school, while everything else out here in the wood is merry. Little Redcap raised her eyes, and when she saw the sunbeams dancing here and there through the trees, and pretty flowers growing everywhere, she thought, suppose I take Grandmother a fresh nosegay. That would please her too. It is so early in the day that I shall still get there in good time. And so she ran from the path into the wood to look for flowers. And whenever she had picked one, she fancied that she saw a still prettier one farther on and ran after it, and so got deeper and deeper into the wood. Meanwhile, the wolf ran straight to the grandmother's house and knocked at the door. Who is there? Little Redcap, replied the wolf. She's bringing cake and wine. Open the door. Lift the latch, called out the grandmother. I am too weak and cannot get up. The wolf lifted the latch. The door sprang open. And without saying a word, he went straight to the grandmother's bed and devoured her. Then he put on her clothes, dressed himself in her cap, laid himself in bed and drew the curtains. Little Redcap, however, had been running about picking flowers, and when she had gathered so many that she could carry no more, she remembered her grandmother and set out on the way to her. She was surprised to find the cottage door standing open, and when she went into the room she had such a strange feeling that she said to herself, Oh dear, how uneasy I feel today, and at other times I like being with grandmother so much. She called out, Good morning, but received no answer. She went to the bed and 
drew back the curtains. There lay her grandmother with her cap pulled far over her face and looking very strange. Oh, grandmother, she said, what big ears you have. The better to hear you with, my child, was the reply. But, grandmother, what big eyes you have, she said. The better to see you with, my dear. But, grandmother, what large hands you have. The better to hug you with? Oh, but grandmother, what a terrible big mouth you have. The better to eat you with. And scarcely had the wolf said this than with one bound he was out of bed and swallowed up Red Cap. When the wolf had appeased his appetite, he lay down again in the bed, fell asleep, and began to snore very loud. The huntsman was just passing the house, and thought to himself, How the old woman is snoring. I must just see if she wants anything. So, he went into the room, and when he came to the bed, he saw that the wolf was lying in it. Do I find you here, you old sinner, said he. I have long sought you. Then just as he was going to fire at him, it occurred to him that the wolf might have devoured the grandmother, and that she might still be saved. So he did not fire, but took a pair of scissors, and began to cut open the stomach of the sleeping wolf. When he had made two snips, he saw little red cap shining, and then he made two snips more, and the little girl sprang out crying, How frightened I have been, how dark it was inside the wolf. And after that, the aged grandmother came out alive also, but scarcely able to breathe. Redcap, however, quickly fetched great stones with which they filled the wolf's belly. And when he awoke, he wanted to run away. But the stones were so heavy that he collapsed at once and fell dead. Then all three were delighted. The huntsman drew off the wolf's skin and went home with it. The grandmother ate the cake and drank the wine which Redcap had brought. But Redcap thought to herself, As long as I live, I will never by myself leave the path to run into the wood when my mother has forbidden me to do so. It also related that once when Redcap was again taking cakes to the old grandmother, another wolf spoke to her and tried to entice her from the path. Redcap, however, was on her guard, and went straight forward on her way, and told her grandmother that she had met the wolf, and that he had said good morning to her, but with such a wicked look in his eyes, that if they had not been on the public road, she was certain he would have eaten her up. Well, said grandmother, we will shut the door that he may not come in. Soon afterwards, the wolf knocked and cried, Open the door, Grandmother. I am Little Redcap, and I'm bringing you some cakes. But they did not speak or open the door. So the Greybeard stole twice or thrice around the house, and at last jumped on the roof, intending to wait until Redcap went home in the evening to steal after her and devour her in the darkness. 
but the grandmother saw what was in his thoughts. In front of the house was a great stone trough. So she said to the child, Take the pale red cap. I made some sausages yesterday. So carry the water in which I boiled them to the trough. Red cap carried until the great trough was quite full. The smell of sausages reached the wolf and he sniffed and peeped down and at last stretched out his neck so far that he could no longer keep his footing and began to slip, and slipped down from the roof straight into the great trough and was drowned. But Redcap went joyously home, and no one ever did anything to harm her again. That silly wolf. Let's read another one. Rumpelstiltskin By the side of a wood, in a country a long way off, ran a fine stream of water, and upon the stream there stood a mill. The miller's house was close by, and the miller, you must know, had a very beautiful daughter. She was, moreover, very shrewd and clever, and the miller was so proud of her he one day told the king of the land, who used to come and hunt in the wood, that his daughter could spin gold out of straw. Now this king was very fond of money, and when he heard the miller's boast, his greediness was raised. He sent for the girl to be brought before him. He led her to a chamber in his palace where there was a great heap of straw, and gave her a spinning wheel and said, all this must be spun into gold before morning, as you love your life. It was in vain that the poor maiden said that it was only a silly boast of her father, for she could do no such thing as spin straw into gold. The chamber door was locked, and she was left alone. She sat down in one corner of the room and began to bewail her hard fate. When on a sudden the door opened and a droll-looking little man hobbled in and said, Good morrow to you, my dear lass, what are you weeping for? Alas, said she, I must spin this straw into gold and I know not how. What will you give me, said the hobgoblin, to do it for you? My necklace, replied the maiden. He took her at her word and sat himself down to the wheel and whistled and sang, Round about, round about, lo and behold, reel away, reel away, straw into gold. And round about the wheel went merrily, the work was quickly done, and the straw was all spun into gold. When the king came and saw this, he was greatly astonished and pleased, but his heart grew still more greedy of gain. He shut up the poor miller's daughter again with a fresh task. Then she knew not what to do and sat down once more to weep, but the dwarf soon opened the door and said, What will you give me to do your task? The ring on my finger, said she. So her little friend took the ring and began to work at the wheel again and whistled and sang. Round about, round about, lo and behold, reel away, reel away, straw into gold. 
Long before morning, all was done again. The king was greatly delighted to see all this glittering treasure, but still he had not enough. He took the miller's daughter to a yet larger heap and said, All this must be spun tonight, and if it is, you shall be my queen. As soon as she was alone, that dwarf came in and said, What will you give me to spin gold for you this third time? I have nothing left, said she. Then say you will give me, said the little man. The first little child you may have when you are queen. That may never be, thought the miller's daughter, and as she knew no other way to get her task done, she said she would do what he asked. Round went the wheel again to the old song. The mannequin once more spun the heap into gold. The king came in the morning and finding all he wanted was forced to keep his word. So he married the miller's daughter and she really became queen. At the birth of her first little child, she was very glad and forgot the dwarf and what she had said. But one day he came into her room where she was sitting playing with her baby and put her in mind of it. Then she grieved sorely at her misfortune and said she would give him all the wealth in the kingdom if he would let her off. But in vain, till at last her tears softened him and he said, I will give you three days grace and if during that time you tell me my name you shall keep your child. The queen lay awake all night thinking of all the odd names she had ever heard. She sent messengers all over the land to find out new ones. The next day the little man came and she began with Timothy, Ichabod, Benjamin, Jeremiah, all the names that she could remember. But to all in each of them he said, Madam, that is not my name. The second day she began with all the comical names that she could hear, Bandylegs, Hunchback, Crookshanks, and so on. The little gentleman still said to every one of them, Madam, that is not my name. The third day, one of the messengers came back and said, I have traveled two days without hearing of any other names, but yesterday, as I was climbing a high hill among the trees of the forest where the fox and the hare bid each other good night, I saw a little hut. Before the hut burnt a fire, and round the fire a funny little dwarf was dancing, up on one leg, and singing. Merrily the feast I'll make, today I'll brew, tomorrow bake, merrily I'll dance and sing, for the next day will a stranger bring. Little does my lady dream, Rumpelstiltskin is my name. When the queen heard this, she jumped for joy, and as soon as her little friend came, she sat down upon her throne, called all of her court round to enjoy the fun. The nurse stood by her side with the baby in her arms, as if it was quite ready to be given up. The little man began to chuckle at the thought of having the poor child to take home with him to his hut in the woods. He cried out, "'Now, lady, what is my name?' Is it John? asked she. No, madam. Is it Tom? No, madam. Is it Jemmy? It is not. Can your name be... 
Rumpelstiltskin, said the lady slyly. Some witch told you that. Some witch told you that, cried the little man and dashed his right foot in a rage so deep into the floor that he was forced to lay hold of it with both hands to pull it out. Then he made the best of his way off, while the nurse laughed and the baby crowed and all the court jeered at him for having had so much trouble for nothing, and said, We wish you a very good morning and a merry feast. Mr. Rumpelstiltskin. Shall we have one more, just in case you need a little bit of extra time to get down to sleep tonight? The Golden Goose. There was a man who had three sons, the youngest of whom was called Dumbling, and was despised, mocked, and sneered at on every occasion. It happened that the eldest wanted to go into the forest to hew wood, and before he went, his mother gave him a beautiful sweet cake and a bottle of wine in order that he might not suffer from hunger or thirst. When he entered the forest, he met a little grey-haired old man, who bade him good day and said, Do give me a piece of cake out of your pocket, and let me have a draught of your wine. I am so hungry and thirsty. The clever son answered, If I give you my cake and wine, I shall have none for myself. Be off with you. And he left the little man standing and went on. But when he began to hew down a tree, it was not long before he made a false stroke and the axe cut him in the arm, so that he had to go home and have it bound up. And this was the little grey man's doing. After this, the second son went into the forest, and his mother gave him, like the eldest, a cake and a bottle of wine. The little old grey man met him likewise, and asked him for a piece of cake and a drink of wine. But the second son too said sensibly enough, What I give you will be taken away from myself, be off. And he left the little man standing and went on. His punishment, however, was not delayed. When he had made a few blows to the tree, he struck himself in the leg and had to be carried home. Then Dumbling said, Father, do let me go and cut wood. The father answered, Your brothers have hurt themselves with it. Leave it alone. You do not understand anything about it. But Dumbling begged so long that at last he said, Just go then. You will get wiser by hurting yourself. His mother gave him a cake made with water and baked in the cinders and a bottle of sour beer. When he came to the forest, the little old grey man met him likewise and greeting him said, Give me a piece of your cake and a drink out of your bottle. I am so hungry and thirsty. Dumbling answered, I have only cinder cake and sour beer if that pleases you. We will sit down and eat. So they sat down, and when Dumbling pulled out his cinder cake, it was a fine sweet cake, and the sour beer had become good wine. So they ate and drank, and after that the little man said, Since you have a good heart and are willing to divide what you have, I will give you good luck. There stands an old tree, cut it down. You will find something at the roots. 
Then the little man took leave of him. Dumbling went and cut down the tree. And when it fell, there was a goose sitting in the roots with feathers of pure gold. He lifted her up and, taking her with him, went to an inn where he thought he would stay the night. Now the host had three daughters who saw the goose and were curious to know what such a wonderful bird might be and would have liked to have one of its golden feathers. The eldest thought, I shall soon find an opportunity of pulling out a feather. And as soon as Dumbling had gone out, she seized the goose by the wing, but her finger and hand remained sticking fast to it. The second came soon afterwards, thinking only of how she might get a feather for herself, but she had scarcely touched her sister than she was held fast. At last, the third also came with the like intent, and the others screamed out, Keep away, for goodness sake, keep away. But she did not understand why she was to keep away. The others are there, she thought I may as well be there too, and she ran to them. But as soon as she had touched her sister, she remained sticking fast to her. So they had to spend the night with the goose. The next morning, Dumbling took the goose under his arm and set out without troubling himself about the three girls who were hanging on to it. They were obliged to run after him continually, now left, now right, wherever his legs took him. In the middle of the fields, the parson met them, and when he saw the procession, he said, For shame, you good-for-nothing girls. Why are you running across the fields after this young man? Is that seemly? At the same time, he seized the youngest by the hand in order to pull her away, but as soon as he touched her, he likewise stuck fast, and was himself obliged to run behind. Before long, the sexton came by and saw his master, the parson, running behind three girls. He was astonished at this, and called out, Hi, your reverence, wither away so quickly. Do not forget we have a christening today. And running after him, he took him by the sleeve, but was also held fast to it. Whilst the five were trotting, thus one behind the other, two laborers came with their hoes from the fields. The parson called out to them and begged that they would set him and the sexton free. They had scarcely touched the sexton when they were held fast, and now there were seven of them running behind Dumbling and the goose. Soon afterwards he came to a city where a king ruled who had a daughter who was so serious that no one could make her laugh. He had put forth a decree that whosoever should be able to make her laugh should marry her. When Dumbling heard this, he went with his goose and all her train before the king's daughter. As soon as she saw the seven people running on and on, one behind the other, she began to laugh quite loudly, as if she would never stop. Thereupon Dumbling asked to have her for his wife. But the king did not like the son-in-law and made all manner of excuses and said he must first produce a man who could drink a cellar full of wine. Dumbling thought of the little grey man who could certainly help him. So he went into the forest. And in the same place where he had felled the tree, he saw a man sitting who had a very sorrowful face. 
Dumbling asked him what he was taking to heart so sorely. And he answered, I have such a great thirst and cannot quench it. Cold water I cannot stand. A barrel of wine I have just emptied, but that to me is like a drop on a hot stone. There I can help you, said Dumbling. Come with me. You shall be satisfied. He led him into the king's cellar and the man bent over the huge barrels and drank and drank until his loins hurt. Before the day was out, he had emptied all of the barrels. Dumbling asked once more for his bride, but the king was vexed that such an ugly fellow, whom everyone called Dumbling, should take away his daughter. And he made a new condition. He must first find a man who could eat a whole mountain of bread. Dumbling did not think long, but went straight into the forest where in the same place there sat a man who was tying up his body with a strap, making an awful face and saying, I have eaten a whole oven full of rolls, but what good is that when one has such a hunger as I? My stomach remains empty and I must tie myself up if I am not to die of hunger. At this, Dumbling was glad and said, Get up and come with me, you shall eat yourself full. He led him to the king's palace where all the flour in the whole kingdom was collected, and from it he caused a huge mountain of bread to be baked. The man from the forest stood before it and began to eat. By the end of one day, the whole mountain had vanished. Dumbling, for the third time, asked for his bride. But the king again sought a way out and ordered a ship, which could sail on land and on water. As soon as you come sailing back in it, said he, you shall have my daughter for wife. Dumbling went straight into the forest, and there sat the little grey man to whom he had given his cake. When he heard what Dumbling wanted, he said, Since you have given me to eat and to drink, I will give you the ship. And I do all of this, because you once were kind to me. Then he gave him the ship, which could sail on land and water. And when the king saw that, he could no longer prevent him from having his daughter. The wedding was celebrated, and after the king's death, Dumbling inherited his kingdom and lived for a long time contentedly with his wife. Hansel and Gretel by the Brothers Grimm Hard by a great forest dwelt a poor woodcutter with his wife and his two children. The boy was called Hansel, and the girl, Gretel. He had little to bite and to break, and once when great dearth fell on the land, he could no longer procure even daily bread. Now when he thought over this by night in his bed and tossed about in his anxiety, he groaned and said to his wife, What is to become of us? How are we to feed our poor children when we no longer have anything even for ourselves? I'll tell you what, husband, answered the woman. Early tomorrow morning, you will take the children out into the forest, to where it is the thickest. There we will light a fire for them, and give each of them one more piece.
piece of bread, and then we will go to our work and leave them alone. They will not find the way home again, and we shall be rid of them. No, wife, said the man, I will not do that. How can I bear to leave my children alone in the forest? The wild animals would soon come and tear them to pieces. Oh, you fool, said she. Then we must all four die of hunger. You may as well plane the planks for our coffins. And she left him no peace until he consented. But I feel very sorry for the poor children, all the same, said the man. The two children had also not been able to sleep for hunger and had heard what their stepmother had said to their father. Gretel wept bitter tears and said to Hansel, Now all is over with us. Be quiet, Gretel, said Hansel. Do not distress yourself. I will soon find a way to help us. And when the old folks had fallen asleep, he got up and put on his little coat, opened the door below and crept outside. The moon shone brightly, and the white pebbles which lay in front of the house glittered like real silver pennies. Hansel stooped and stuffed the little pocket of his coat with as many as he could get in. Then he went back and said to Gretel, Be comforted, dear little sister, and sleep in peace. God will not forsake us. And he lay down again in his bed. And when day dawned, but before the sun had risen, the woman came and awoke the two children, saying, Get up, you sluggards. We're going into the forest to fetch wood. She gave each a little piece of bread and said, There's something for your dinner, but do not eat it up before then, for you will get nothing else. Gretel took the bread under her apron as Hansel had the pebbles in his pocket. Then they all set out together on the way to the forest. When they had walked a short time, Hansel stood still and peeped back at the house and did so again and again. His father said, Hansel, what are you looking at there and staying behind for? Pay attention, and do not forget how to use your legs. Ah, father, said Hansel, I'm looking at my little white cat, which is sitting up on the roof and wants to say goodbye to me. The wife said, fool, that is not your little cat, that is the morning sun shining on the chimneys. Hansel, however, had not been looking back at the cat, but had been constantly throwing one of the white pebble stones out of his pocket on the road. When they had reached the middle of the forest, the father said, Now children, pile up some wood, and I will light a fire that you may not be cold. Hansel and Gretel gathered brushwood together as high as a little hill. The brushwood was lighted, and when the flames were burning very high, the woman said, Now children, Lay yourselves down by the fire and rest. We will go into the forest and cut some wood. When we have done, we will come back and fetch you away. Hansel and Gretel sat by the fire. And when noon came, each ate a little piece of bread. And as they heard the strokes of the wood axe, they believed that their father was near. It was not the axe, however, but a branch which he had fastened to a withered tree which the wind was blowing backwards and forwards. And as they had been sitting such a long time, their eyes closed with fatigue, and they fell fast asleep. When at last they awoke, 
it was already dark night. Gretel began to cry and said, How are we to get out of the forest now? But Hansel comforted her and said, Just wait a little till the moon has risen and we will soon find the way. And when the full moon had risen, Hansel took his little sister by the hand, followed the pebbles, which shone like newly coined silver pieces, and showed them the way. They walked the whole night long, and by break of day came once more to their father's house. They knocked at the door, and when the woman opened it and saw that it was Hansel and Gretel, she said, You naughty children, why have you slept so long in the forest? We thought you were never coming back at all. The father, however, rejoiced, for it had cut him to the heart to leave them behind alone. Not long afterwards, there was once more great dearth throughout the land, and the children heard their mother saying at night to their father, Everything is eaten again. We have one half loaf left, and that is the end. The children must go. We will take them further into the wood, so they will not find their way out again. There is no other means of saving ourselves. The man's heart was heavy, and he thought, It would be better for you to share the last mouthful with your children. The woman, however, would listen to nothing that he had to say, and scolded and reproached him. He who says A must say B likewise, and as he had yielded the first time, he had to do a second time also. The children, however, were still awake, and had heard the conversation. And when the old folks were asleep, Hansel again got up, and wanted to go out and pick up the pebbles as he had done before. But the woman had locked the door, and Hansel could not get out. Nevertheless, he comforted his little sister and said, Do not cry, Gretel. Go to sleep quietly. The good God will help us. Early in the morning came the woman, and took the children out of their beds. Their piece of bread was given to them, but it was still smaller than the time before. On the way into the forest, Hansel crumbled his in his pocket, and often stood still and threw a morsel onto the ground. Hansel, why do you stop and look around, said the father, go on. I'm looking back at my little pigeon sitting on the roof. It wants to say goodbye to me, answered Hansel. Fool, said the woman. That is not your little pigeon, that is the morning sun shining on the chimney. Hansel, however, little by little, threw all the crumbs onto the path. The woman led the children still deeper into the forest where they had never ever in their lives been before. Then a great fire was again made and the mother said, Sit there, you children. When you are tired, you may sleep a little. We are going into the forest to cut wood. In the evening when we are done, we'll come and fetch you away. When it was noon, Gretel shared her piece of bread with Hansel, who had scattered his by the way. Then they fell asleep, and evening passed, but no one came to the poor children. They did not awake until it was dark night, and Hansel comforted his little sister. Just wait, Gretel, till the moon rises, and we shall see the crumbs of bread that I have strewn about. They will show us our way home again. When the moon came, they set out, but they found no crumbs. For the many thousands of birds which fly about in the woods and fields had picked them all up. Hansel said to Gretel, 
We shall soon find the way. But they did not find it. They walked the whole night and all the next day too, from morning till evening. But they did not get out of the forest. They were very hungry. They had nothing to eat but two or three berries which grew on the ground. And as they were so weary that their legs would carry them no longer, they lay down beneath the tree and fell asleep. It was now three mornings since they had left their father's house. They began to walk again. They always came deeper into the forest, and if help did not come soon, they must die of hunger and weariness. When it was midday, they saw a beautiful snow-white bird sitting on a bough which sang so beautifully, delightfully, they stood still and listened to it, and when its song was over, it spread its wings and flew away before them, and they followed it until they reached a little house, on the roof of which it alighted, and when they approached the little house they saw that it was built of bread and covered with cakes that the windows were of clear sugar. We will set to work on that, said Hansel, and have a good meal. I'll eat a bit of the roof, and you, Gretel, eat some of the windows. It will taste sweet. Hansel reached up above and broke off a little of the roof to try and see how it tasted. And Gretel leant against the window and nibbled at the panes. And a soft voice cried from the parlor. Nibble, nibble, nor. Who is nibbling at my little house? The children answered, The wind, the wind, the heaven-born wind, and went on eating without disturbing themselves. Hansel, who liked the taste of the roof, tore down a great piece of it, and Gretel pushed out the whole of one round window pane, sat down and enjoyed herself with it. Suddenly, the door opened, and a woman as old as the hills who supported herself on crutches came creeping out. Hansel and Gretel were so terribly frightened that they let fall what they had in their hands. The old woman, however, nodded her head and said, Oh, you dear children, what has brought you here? Do come in and stay with me. No harm shall happen to you. She took them both by the hand and led them into her little house. The good food was set before them, milk and pancakes, with sugar, apples and nuts. Afterwards, two pretty little beds were covered with clean white linen, and Hansel and Gretel lay down in them, and thought they were in heaven. The old woman had only pretended to be so kind. She was, in reality, a wicked witch, who lay in wait for children, and had only built the little house of bread in order to entice them there. When a child fell into her power, she killed it, cooked it, ate it, and that was a feast day for her. Witches have red eyes and they cannot see far. They have a keen scent, like the beasts, and are aware when human beings draw near. When Hansel and Gretel came into her neighborhood, she laughed with malice and said mockingly, I have them. They shall not escape me again. Early in the morning, before the children were awake, she was already up. And when she saw both of them sleeping and looking so pretty with their plump and rosy cheeks, she muttered to herself, That will be a dainty mouthful. 
Then she seized Hansel with her shriveled hand, carried him into a little stable, and locked him in behind a grated door. Scream as he might, it would not help him. Then she went to Gretel, shook her till she awoke and cried, Get up, lazy thing. Fetch some water and cook something good for your brother. He's in the stable outside and is to be made fat. When he is fat, I will eat him. Gretel began to weep bitterly. It was all in vain, for she was forced to do what the wicked witch commanded. And now the best food was cooked for poor Hansel, but Gretel got nothing but crab shells. Every morning the woman crept to the little stable and cried, Hansel, stretch out your finger that I may feel if you will soon be fat. Hansel, however, stretched out a little bone to her, and the old woman who had dim eyes could not see it, and thought it was Hansel's finger, and was astonished that there was no way of fattening him. When four weeks had gone by and Hansel still remained thin, she was seized with impatience and would not wait any longer. Now then, Gretel, she cried to the girl, Stir yourself and bring some water. Let Hansel be fat or lean, tomorrow I will kill him and cook him. Ah, how the poor little sister did lament when she had to fetch the water. How her tears did flow down her cheeks. Dear God, do help us, she cried. If the wild beasts in the forest had but devoured us, we should at any rate have died together. Just keep your noise to yourself, said the old woman. It won't help you at all. Early in the morning, Gretel had to go out and hang up the cauldron with the water and light the fire. We will bake first, said the old woman. I have already heated the oven and kneaded the dough. She pushed poor Gretel out to the oven, from which flames of fire were already darting. Creep in, said the witch. See if it's properly heated so we can put the bread in. And once Gretel was inside, she intended to shut the oven and let her bake in it. And then she would eat her too. But Gretel saw what she had in mind and said, I do not know how I'm going to do it. How do I get in? Silly goose, said the old woman. The door is big enough. Look, I can get in myself. And she crept up and thrust her head into the oven. And Gretel gave her a push that drove her far into it and shut the iron door and fastened the bolt. Then she began to howl, quite horribly, but Gretel ran away, and the godless witch was miserably burnt to death. Gretel, however, ran like lightning to Hansel, opened his little stable and cried, Hansel, we are saved, the old witch is dead. Hansel sprang like a bird from its cage when the door is opened. How they rejoiced and embraced each other and danced about and kissed, and as they had no longer any need to fear her, they went into the witch's house, and in every corner stood chests full of pearls and jewels. These are far better than pebbles, said Hansel, and thrust into his pockets whatever could be got in. And Gretel said, I too will take something home, and filled her pinafore full. But now we must be off, said Hansel, that we may get out of the witch's forest. When they had walked for two hours, they came to a great stretch of water. We cannot cross, said Hansel. I see no foot plank and no bridge. There is also no ferry, answered Gretel. But a white duck is swimming. If I ask her, she will help us. Then she cried, Little duck, 
little duck, dost thou see? Hansel and Gretel are waiting for thee. There's never a plank or bridge in sight. Take us across on thy back so white. The duck came to them, and Hansel seated himself on its back and told his sister to sit by him. No, replied Gretel, that will be too heavy for the little duck. She shall take us across one after the other. The good little duck did so, and when they were once safely across and had walked for a short time, the forest seemed to be more and more familiar to them, and at length they saw from afar their father's house. They began to run. They rushed into the parlor and threw themselves around their father's neck. The man had not known one happy hour since he had left his children in the forest. The woman, however, was dead. Gretel emptied her pinafore until pearls and precious stones ran about the room, and Hansel threw one handful after another out of his pocket to add to them. And all anxiety was at an end. And they lived together in perfect happiness. One fine evening, a young princess put on her bonnet and clogs, and went out to take a walk by herself in a wood. And when she came to a cool spring of water that rose in the midst of it, she sat herself down to rest a while. Now she had a golden ball in her hand, which was her favorite plaything. She was always tossing it up in the air, and catching it again as it fell. After a time she threw it up so high she missed catching it as it fell, and the ball bounded away and rolled along upon the ground, till at last it fell into the spring. The princess looked into the spring after her ball, but it was very deep, so deep that she could not see the bottom of it. Then she began to bewail her loss, and said, Alas, if I could only get my ball again. I would give all of my fine clothes and jewels and everything that I have in the world. Whilst she was speaking, a frog put its head out of the water and said, Princess, why do you weep so bitterly? Alas, said she, what can you do for me, you nasty frog? My golden ball has fallen into the spring. The frog said, I want not your pearls and jewels and fine clothes, but if you will love me and let me live with you, eat from off your golden plate, sleep upon your bed, I will bring you your ball back. What nonsense, thought the princess, this silly frog is talking, he can never even get out of the spring to visit me, though he may be able to get my ball for me, therefore I will tell him, he shall have what he asks. So, she said to the frog, well, if you bring me my ball, I will do as you ask. And then the frog put his head down, dived deep under the water, and after a little while, he came up again, with the ball in his mouth, and threw it on the edge of the spring. As soon as the young princess saw the ball, she ran to pick it up, and she was so overjoyed to have it in her hand again, that she never thought of the frog. She ran home, as fast as she could. The frog called after her, Stay, princess, and take me with you as you said. But she did not stop to hear a word. The next day, just as the princess had sat down to dinner, she heard a strange noise. Tap, tap, flash, flash. As if something was coming up the marble staircase. And soon afterwards there was a gentle knock at the door. 
and a little voice cried out and said, Open the door, my princess dear, open the door to thy true love here, and mind the words that thou and I said, by the fountain cool in the greenwood shade. The princess ran to the door and opened it, and there she saw the frog, whom she had quite forgotten. At this sight she was sadly frightened, and shutting the door as fast as she could, came back to her seat. The king, her father, seeing that something had frightened her, asked her what was the matter. There is a nasty frog, said she, at the door that lifted my ball for me out of the spring this morning. I told him that he should live with me here, thinking that he could never get out of the spring. But there he is at the door, and he wants to come in. While she was speaking, the frog knocked again at the door and said, Open the door, my princess dear, open the door to thy true love here, and mind the words that thou and I said by the fountain cool in the greenwood shade. Then the king said to the young princess, as you have given your word, you must keep it, so go and let him in. She did so, and the frog hopped into the room, and straight on, tap, tap, plush, plush, from the bottom of the room to the top, till he came up close to the table where the princess sat. Pray, lift me upon a chair, said he to the princess, and let me sit next to you. As soon as she had done this, the frog said, put your plate nearer to me, that I may eat out of it. This she did. And when he had eaten as much as he could, he said, Now I am tired. Carry me upstairs and put me into your bed. And the princess, though very unwilling, took him up in her hand and put him upon the pillow of her own bed, where he slept all night long. As soon it was light, he jumped up, hopped downstairs and went out of the house. Now then, thought the princess, at last he is gone, and I shall be troubled with him no more. She mistaken. When night came again, she heard the same tapping at the door, and the frog once more said, Open the door, my princess dear, open the door to thy true love here, and mind the words that thou and I said, by the fountain cool, in the greenwood shade. And when the princess opened the door, the frog came in and slept upon her pillow as before, till the morning broke. And the third night he did the same. When the princess awoke on the following morning, she was astonished to see, instead of the frog, a handsome prince, gazing on her with the most beautiful eyes that she had ever seen, and standing at the head of her bed. He told her he had been enchanted by a spiteful fairy, who had changed him into a frog, and that he had been fated so to abide until some princess should take him out of the spring and let him eat from her plate and sleep on her bed for three nights. You, said the prince, have broken this cruel charm. And now I have nothing to wish for, but that you should go with me into my father's kingdom, where I will marry you and love you for as long as you live. The young princess, you may be sure, was not long in saying yes to all of this, and as they spoke, a gay coach drove up with eight beautiful horses, decked with plumes of feathers and a golden harness, and behind the coach rode the prince's servant, faithful Heinrich who had bewailed the misfortunes of his dear master during his enchantment so long and so bitterly that his heart had well-nigh burst. They then took leave of the king, and got into the coach with eight horses, and all set out, full of joy and merriment, for the prince's kingdom, which they reached safely. And there they lived happily a great many years. The end. Let's read another one.
Rapunzel. There were once a man and a woman who had long in vain wished for a child. At length, the woman hoped that God was about to grant her desire. These people had a little window at the back of their house, from which a splendid garden could be seen, which was full of the most beautiful flowers and herbs. It was, however, surrounded by a high wall, and no one dared to go into it because it belonged to an enchantress, who had great power and was dreaded by all the world. One day the woman was standing by this window and looking down into the garden, when she saw a bed which was planted with the most beautiful rampion, and it looked so fresh and green that she longed for it. She quite pined away and began to look pale and miserable. Then her husband was alarmed and asked, What ails you, dear wife? Ah, she replied, If I can't eat some of the rampion which is in the garden behind our house, I shall die. The man who loved her thought, Sooner than let your wife die, bring her some of the rampion yourself. Let it cost what it will. At twilight, he clambered down over the wall into the garden of the Enchantress, hastily clutched a handful of rampion, and took it to his wife. She at once made herself a salad of it and ate it greedily. It tasted so good to her, so very good, that the next day she longed for it three times as much as before. If he was to have any rest, her husband must once more descend into the garden. In the gloom of evening, he let himself down again. And when he clambered down the wall, he was terribly afraid, for he saw the enchantress standing before him. How can you dare, she said with an angry look, descend into my garden and steal my rampion like a thief? You shall suffer for it. Ah, answered he, let mercy take the place of justice. I only made up my mind to do it out of necessity. My wife saw your rampion from the window and felt such a longing for it that she would have died she had not got some to eat. Then the enchantress allowed her anger to be softened, and said to him, If the case be as you say, I will allow you to take away with you as much rampion as you will. Only I make one condition. You must give me the child which your wife will bring into the world. It shall be well treated, and I will care for it like a mother. The man in his terror consented to everything, and when the woman was brought to bed, the enchantress appeared at once, gave the child the name of Rapunzel, and took it away with her. Rapunzel grew into the most beautiful child under the sun. When she was twelve years old, the enchantress shut her into a tower which lay in a forest and had neither stairs nor door, but quite at the top was a little window. When the enchantress wanted to go in, she placed herself beneath it and cried, Rapunzel, Rapunzel, let down your hair to me. Rapunzel had magnificent long hair, fine as spun gold. When she heard the voice of the enchantress, she unfastened her braided tresses, wound them round one of the hooks of the window above, and then the hair fell twenty ells down, and the enchantress climbed up by it. After a year or two, it came to pass that the king's son rode through the forest and passed by the tower. Then he heard a song, which was so charming, that he stood still and listened. This was Rapunzel, who in her solitude passed her time in letting her sweet voice resound. The king's son wanted to climb up to her and looked for the door to the tower, but none was to be found. He rode home, but the singing had so deeply touched his heart 
that every day he went out into the forest and listened to it. Once, when he was thus standing behind a tree, he saw that an enchantress came there, and he heard how she cried, Rapunzel, Rapunzel, let down your hair to me. Then Rapunzel let down her braids of her hair, and the enchantress climbed up to her. If that is the ladder by which one mounts, I too will try my fortune, said he. And the next day, when it began to grow dark, he went to the tower and cried, Rapunzel, Rapunzel, let down your hair to me. Immediately the hair fell down and the king's son climbed up. At first, Rapunzel was terribly frightened when a man, such as her eyes had never yet beheld, came to her. But the king's son began to talk to her quite like a friend. He told her that his heart had been so stirred that it had let him have no rest. And he had been forced to see her. Then Rapunzel lost her fear. And when he asked her if she would take him for a husband, she saw that he was young and handsome. She thought, he will love me more than old Dame Gothel does. She said yes, and laid her hand in his. She said, I will willingly go away with you, but I do not know how to get down. Bring with you a skein of silk every time you come, and I will weave a ladder with it. When that is ready, I will descend, and you will take me on your horse. They agreed that until that time he should come to her every evening, for the old woman came by day. The enchantress remarked nothing of this until once Rapunzel said to her, Tell me, Dame Gothel, how it happens that you are so much heavier for me to draw up than the young king's son. He is with me in a moment. Ah, you wicked child, cried the enchantress. What do I hear you say? I thought I had separated you from all the world, and yet you have deceived me. In her anger, she clutched Rapunzel's beautiful tresses, wrapped them twice around her left hand, seized a pair of scissors with the right, and snip-snap. They were cut off, and the lovely braids lay on the ground, and she was so pitiless that she took poor Rapunzel into a desert, where she had to live in great grief and misery. On the same day that she cast Rapunzel out, the enchantress fastened the braids of hair which she had cut off to the hook of the window, and when the king's son came and cried, Rapunzel, Rapunzel, let down your hair to me, she let the hair down. The king's son ascended, but instead of finding his dearest Rapunzel, he found the enchantress who gazed at him with a wicked and venomous look. Aha! she cried mockingly. You would fetch your dearest, but the beautiful bird sits no longer singing in the nest. The cat has got it, and will scratch out your eyes as well. Rapunzel is lost to you, you will never see her again. The king's son was beside himself with pain, and in his despair he leapt down from the tower. He escaped with his life, but the thorns into which he fell pierced his eyes. He wandered quite blind about the forest, ate nothing but roots and berries, and did naught but lament and weep over the loss of his dearest wife. Thus he roamed about in misery for some years, and at length came to the desert, where Rapunzel, with the twins to which she had given birth, a boy and a girl, lived in wretchedness. He heard a voice, and it seemed so familiar to him that he went towards it, and when he approached Rapunzel, Rapunzel knew him, and fell on his neck and wept. Two of her tears wetted his eyes, and they grew clear again, and he could see with them as before. 
he led her to his kingdom, where he was joyfully received, and they lived for a long time, happy and contented. The end. Catskin. There was once a king whose queen had hair of the purest gold, and was so beautiful that her match was not to be met with on the whole face of the earth. But this beautiful queen fell ill, and when she felt that her end drew near, she called the king to her and said, Promise me that you will never marry again unless you meet with a wife who is as beautiful as I am and has golden hair like mine. Then when the king in his grief promised all that she asked, she shut her eyes and died. But the king was not to be comforted, and for a long time never thought of taking another wife. At last, however, his wise men said, This will not do, the king must marry again, that we may have a queen. So messengers were sent, far and wide, to seek for a bride as beautiful as the late queen. But there was no princess in the world so beautiful, and if there had been, still there was not one to be found who had golden hair. So the messengers came home, and had all their trouble for nothing. Now the king had a daughter who was just as beautiful as her mother and had the same golden hair and when she was grown up, the king looked at her and thought that she looked just like the late queen and he said to his courtiers, May I not marry my daughter? She's the very image of my dead wife. Unless I have her, I shall not find any bride upon the whole earth and you say there must be a queen. When the courtiers heard this, they were shocked and said, Heaven forbid a father should marry his daughter. Out of so great a sin no good can come his daughter was also shocked, but hoped that the king would soon give up such thoughts, so said to him, Before I marry anyone, I must have three dresses. One must be of gold, like the sun. Another must be shining silver, like the moon. And a third must be as dazzling as the stars. Besides, I want a mantle of a thousand different kinds of fur put together, to which every beast in the kingdom must give a part of his skin. And thus she thought that he would think of this matter no more. But the king made the most skillful workman weave the three dresses, one golden like the sun, another silvery like the moon, and a third sparkling like the stars. And his hunters were told to hunt all over for the beasts in the kingdom, and to take the finest fur out of their skins and a mantle of a thousand furs was made. When all were ready, the king sent them to her, but she got up in the night when all were asleep and took three of her trinkets, a golden ring, a golden necklace, and a golden brooch, and packed the three dresses of the sun, the moon, and the stars up in a nutshell, and wrapped herself up in the mantle made of all sorts of fur, besmeared her face and hands with soot, and threw herself upon heaven for help in her need, and went away and journeyed the whole night, till at last she came to a large wood. As she was very tired, she sat herself down, in the hollow of a tree, soon fell asleep, and there she slept on until it was midday. Now as the king to whom the wood belonged was hunting in it, his dogs came to the tree and began to sniff around, and run around and round and bark. Look sharp, said the king to the huntsman, and see what sort of game lies there. And the huntsman went up to the tree, and when they came back again said, In the hollow tree there lies a most wonderful beast such as we have never seen before. Its skin seems to be of a thousand kinds of fur. There it lies, fast asleep. See, said the king, if you can catch it alive and we will take it with us. 
So the huntsman took it up, and the maiden awoke and was greatly frightened, and said, I am a poor child that has neither father nor mother left. Have pity on me and take me with you. They then said, Yes, Miss Catskin, you will do for the kitchen. You can sweep the ashes and do things of that sort. So they put her into the coach and took her home to the king's palace. Then they showed her a little corner under the staircase where no light of day ever peeped in and said, Catskin, you may lie and sleep there. And so she was sent into the kitchen and made to fetch wood and water and blow the fire and pluck the poultry and pick the herbs and sift the ashes and do all the dirty work. Thus Catskin lived a long time, very sorrowfully. Ah, pretty princess, thought she, what will now become of thee? But it happened one day that a feast was to be held in the king's castle, so she said to the cook, May I go up a little while and see what's going on? I will take care and stand behind the door. The cook said, Yes, you may go, but be back again in half an hour's time to rake out the ashes. She took her little lamp and went into her cabin and took off the fur skin and washed the soot from her face and hands so that her beauty shone forth like the sun from behind the clouds. She opened her nutshell and brought out of it a dress that shone like the sun and went to the feast. Everyone made way for her, for nobody knew her and they thought she could be no less than a king's daughter. But the king came up to her and held out his hand and danced with her, and he thought in his heart he never saw anyone half as beautiful. When the dance was at an end, she curtsied, and when the king looked round for her, she was gone. No one knew why there. The guards that stood at the castle gate were called in, but they had seen no one. The truth was that she had run into her little cabin and pulled off her dress and blackened her face and hands and put on the fur skin cloak, and was catskin again. And when she went into the kitchen to her work and began to rake the ashes, the cook said, Let that alone till morning and heat the king's soup. I should like to run up now and give a peep, but take care that you don't let a hair fall into it or you will run a chance of never eating again. As soon as the cook went away, catskin heated the king's soup and toasted a slice of bread first as nicely as she ever could. And when it was ready, she went and looked in the cabin for her little golden ring and put it into the dish in which the soup was. When the dance was over, the king ordered his soup to be brought in, and it pleased him so well that he thought he had never tasted any so good before. At the bottom he saw a gold ring lying, and as he could not make out how it had got there, he ordered the cook to be sent for. The cook was frightened when he heard the order and said to Catskin, You must have let a hair fall into the soup. If it be so, you will have a good beating. Then he went before the king, and he asked him who had cooked the soup. I did, answered the cook, but the king said, that's not true, it was better done than you could do it, and he answered, to tell the truth I did not cook it, but Catskin did, then let Catskin come up, said the king, and when she came, he said to her, who are you? I am a poor child, said she, that has lost both father and mother. How came you to be in my palace, asked he. I'm good for nothing, said she, but to be a scullion girl and have boots and shoes thrown at my head. But how did you get the ring that was in the soup, asked the king. Then she would not own that she knew anything about the ring. So the king sent her away again about her business. And after a time there was another feast, and Catskin asked the cook to let her go up and see it as before. Yes, said he, but come again in half an hour and cook the king the soup that he likes so much. She ran to her little cabin and washed herself quickly and took her dress out, which was silvery as the moon, 
and put it on. And when she went in looking like a king's daughter, the king went up to her and rejoiced at seeing her again. And when the dance began, he danced with her. After the dance was at an end, she managed to slip out so slyly that the king did not see where she was gone. But she sprang into her little cabin and made herself into cat skin again and went into the kitchen to cook the soup. Whilst the cook was above stairs, she got the golden necklace and dropped it into the soup. Then it was brought to the king who ate it and it pleased him as well as before. So he sent for the cook. He was again forced to tell him that Catskin had cooked it. Catskin was brought again before the king, but she still told him that she was only fit to have boots and shoes thrown her head. But when the king had ordered a feast to be got ready for the third time, it happened just the same as before. You must be a witch, Catskin, said the cook, for you always put something into your soup so that it pleases the king better than mine. However, he let her go up as before. Then she put on her dress, which sparkled like the stars, and went into the ballroom in it. And the king danced with her again, and thought she had never looked as beautiful as she did then. So whilst he was dancing with her, he put a gold ring on her finger, without her seeing it, and ordered that the dance should be kept up a long time. When it was at an end, he would have held her fast by the hand, but she slipped away and sprang so quickly through the crowd that he lost sight of her. She ran as fast as she could into her little cabin under the stairs, but this time she kept away too long and stayed beyond the half hour. She had not time to take off her fine dress and threw her fur mantle over it, and in her haste she did not blacken herself with soot but left one of her fingers white. She ran into the kitchen and cooked the king's soup, and as soon as the cook was gone, she put the golden brooch into the dish. And when the king got to the bottom, he ordered Catskin to be called once more, saw the white finger, and the ring he had put on it whilst they were dancing. He seized her hand, and kept fast a hold of it, and when she wanted to loose herself and spring away, the fur cloak fell off a little on one side, and the starry dress sparkled underneath. He got a hold of the fur, he tore it off, her golden hair, her beautiful form was seen. She could no longer hide herself. She washed the soot and the ashes from her face and showed herself to be the most beautiful princess upon the face of the earth. But the king said, You are my beloved bride. You will never be parted from each other. And the wedding feast was held and a merry day it was, as ever was heard or seen in that country, or indeed in any other. Arthur, the greatest of Britain's kings, holds the Christmas festival at Camelot, surrounded by the celebrated knights of the round table, noble lords the most renowned under heaven, and ladies the loveliest that ever had life. This noble company celebrate the new year by a religious service, by the bestowal of gifts, and the most joyous mirth. Lords and ladies take their seats at the table, Queen Guinevere, the grey-eyed, gaily-dressed sits at the dais, the high table or table of state, where too sat Gawain, with other worthies of the round table. Arthur, in mood as joyful as a child, his blood young and his brain wild, declares that he will not eat nor sit long at the table until some adventurous thing, some uncouth tale, some great marvel, or some encounter of arms has occurred to mark the return of the new year. The first course was announced with cracking of trumpets, with the noise of nakers and noble pipes. Each two had dishes twelve, good beer and bright wine both, 
Scarcely was the first course served when another noise than that of music was heard. There rushes in at the hall door a knight of gigantic stature, the greatest on earth in measure high. He was clothed entirely in green and rode upon a green foal. Fair wavy hair fell about the shoulders of the green knight and a great beard like a bush hung upon his breast. The knight carried no helmet, shield, or spear, but in one hand a holly bough, and in the other an axe, huge and unmeet, the edge of which was as keen as a sharp razor. Thus arrayed, the green knight enters the hall without saluting anyone. The first word that he uttered was, Where is the governor of this gang? Gladly would I see him and with himself speak reason. To the knights he cast his eye, looking for the most renowned. Much did the noble assembly marvel to see a man and a horse of such a hue, green as the grass. Even greener they seemed than green enamel on bright gold. Many marvels had they seen, but none such as this. They were afraid to answer sat stone still in a dead silence, as if overpowered by sleep. Not all from fear, but some for courtesy. Then Arthur, before the high dais, salutes the green knight, bids him welcome, and entreats him to stay a while at his court. The knight says his errand is not to abide in any dwelling, but to seek the most valiant of the heroes of the round table, that he may put his courage to the proof and thus satisfy himself as to the fame of Arthur's court. I come, he says, in peace as ye may see by this branch that I bear here. Had I come with hostile intentions, I should not have left my helmet, shield, sharp spear, and other weapons behind me. But because I desire no war, my weeds are softer. If thou be so bold as all men say, Thou wilt grant me the request I am about to make. Sir, courteous knight, replies Arthur, if thou cravest battle only, here failest thou not to fight. Nay, says the green knight, I seek no fighting. Here about on this bench are only beardless children. Were I arrayed in arms on a high steed, no man here would be a match for me. But it is now Christmas time. And this is the new year, and I see around me many brave ones. If any be so bold in his blood that dare strike a stroke for another, I shall give him this rich axe to do with it whatever he pleases. I shall abide the first blow just as I sit, and will stand him a stroke, stiff on this floor, provided that I deal him another in return. And yet I give him respite. A twelve month and a day. Now haste and let's see tight. Dare any herein aught say. If he astounded them at first, much more so did he after this speech, and fear held them all silent. The knight, writing himself in his saddle, rolls fiercely his red eyes about, bends his bristly green brows, and strokes his beard, awaiting a reply. But finding none that would carp with him, he exclaims, What? Is this Arthur's house, the fame of which has spread through so many realms? 
Forsooth, the renown of the round table is overturned by the word of one man's speech. For all tremble for dread, without a blow being struck. With this he laughed so loud that Arthur blushed for very shame, and waxed as wroth as the wind. I know no man, he says, that is aghast at thy great words. Give me now thy axe, and I will grant thee thy request. Arthur seizes the axe, grasps the handle, and sternly brandishes it about, while the green knight, with a stern cheer and dry countenance, stroking his beard, drawing down his coat, awaits the blow. Sir Gawain, the nephew of the king, beseeches his uncle to let him undertake the encounter, and at the earnest entreaty of his nobles, Arthur consents to give Gawain the game. Sir Gawain takes possession of the axe, but before the blow is dealt, the Green Knight asks the name of his opponent. In good faith, answers the good knight, Gawain I am called, that bids thee to this buffet. Whatever may befall after and at this time twelve months will take from thee another, with whatever weapon thou wilt, and with no white else alive. By God, quoth the Green Knight, it please me well that I shall receive at thy fist that which I have sought here. Moreover, thou hast truly rehearsed the terms of the covenant. But thou shalt first pledge me thy word, that thou wilt seek me thyself, wheresoever on earth thou believest I may be found. Fetch thee such wages as thou dealest me today, before this company of doughty ones. Where should I seek thee? replies Gawain. Where is thy place? I know not thee, thy court, or thy name. I wot not where thou dwellest, but teach me thereto. Tell me how thou art called, and I shall endeavour to find thee. And that I swear thee for truth, and by my sure troth. That is enough in New Year, says the groom in green. If I tell thee when I have received the tap, when thou hast smitten me, then smartly I will teach thee of my house, my home, and my own name, so that thou mayest follow my track and fulfill the covenant between us. If I spend no speech, then speedest thou the better, for then mayest thou remain in thy own land and seek no further, but cease thy talking. Take now thy grim tool to thee, and let us see how thou knockest. Gladly, sir, forsooth, quoth Gwain and his axe he brandishes. The green knight adjusts himself on the ground, bends slightly his head, lays his long lovely locks over his crown, and lays bare his neck for the blow. Gawain then gripped the axe, raising it on high, let it fall quickly upon the knight's neck and severed the head from the body. The fair head fell from the neck to the earth, and many turned it aside with their feet as it rolled forth. The blood burst from the body, yet the knight never faltered nor fell, but boldly he started forth on stiff shanks and fiercely rushed forward, seized his head and lifted it up quickly. Then he runs to his horse, the bridle he catches, steps into his stirrups and strides aloft. His head by the hair he holds in his hands and sits it firmly in his saddle, as if no mishap had ailed him, though headless he was.
He turned his ugly trunk about that ugly body that bled, and holding the head in his hand, he directed the face towards the dearest on the dais. The head lifted up its eyelids and looked abroad, and thus much spoke with its mouth as ye may now hear. Oak Gawain, thou be prompt to go as thou hast promised, and seek till thou find me according to thy promise made in the hearing of these knights. Get thee to the green chapel, I charge thee to fetch such a dint as thou hast dealt, to be returned on New Year's morn. As the knight of the green chapel I am known to many, wherefore if thou seekest, thou canst not fail to find me. Therefore come, or recreant be called. With a fierce start, the reins he turns, rushes out of the hall door, his head in his hand. The fire of the flint flew from the hoofs of his foal. To what kingdom he belonged knew none there, nor knew they from whence he had come. What then? The king and Gawain there, at that green one, they laugh and grin. Though Arthur wondered much at the marvel, he let no one see that he was at all troubled about it. But full loudly thus spake to his comely queen with courteous speech. Dear dame, today be never dismayed. Well happens such craft at Christmas time. I may now proceed to meet, for I cannot deny that I have witnessed a wondrous adventure this day. He looked upon Sir Gawain and said, Now, sir, hang up thine axe, for enough has it hewn. The weapon was hung up, on high, that all might look upon it, and by true title thereof tell the wonder. Then all the knights hastened to their seats at the table, so did the king and our good knight, and they were there served with all dainties, with all manner of meat and minstrelsy. Though words were wanting when they first to seat went, now are their hands full of stern work and the marvel affords them good subject for conversation. But a year passes full quickly and never returns. The beginning is seldom like the end. Wherefore this Christmas passed away in the year after, and each season in turn followed after another. Thus winter winds round again, and then Gawain thinks of his wearisome journey. On All Hallows' Day, Arthur entertains right nobly the lords and ladies of his court, in honour of his nephew, for whom all courteous knights and lovely ladies were in great grief. Nevertheless, they spoke only of mirth, and though joyless themselves, made many a joke to cheer the good Sir Gawain. Early on the morrow, Sir Gawain, with great ceremony, is arrayed in his armour, and thus completely equipped for his adventure. He first hears mass, and afterwards takes leave of Arthur, the knights of the round table and the lords and the ladies of the court, who kiss him and commend him to Christ. He bids them all good day, as he thought, forevermore. Very much was the warm water that poured from eyes that day. Now rides our knight through the realms of England with no companion but his foal, no one to hold converse with save God alone. From Camelot in Somersetshire, he proceeds through Gloucestershire and the adjoining counties into Montgomeryshire, thence through North Wales to Holyhead, adjoining the Isle of Anglesey, 
from which he passes into the very narrow peninsula of Wirral in Cheshire, where dealt but few that loved God or man. Gawain inquires after the Green Knight of the Green Chapel, but all inhabitants declare that they have never seen any man of such hues of green. The knight thence pursues his journey by strange paths over hill and moor, encountering on his way not only serpents, wolves, bulls, bears, and boars, but wood satyrs and giants. Worse than all of those, however, is the sharp winter. When the cold, clear water shed from the clouds and froze, it might fall to the earth. Nearly slain with the sleet, he slept in his armor. More nights than enough, in naked rocks. Thus, in peril and plight, the knight travels on until Christmas Eve. And to Mary he makes his moan, that she may direct him to some abode. On the morn he arrives at an immense forest, wondrously wild, surrounded by high hills on every side where he found hoary oaks full huge, a hundred together. The hazel and the hawthorn intermingled were all overgrown with moss. Upon their boughs sat many sad birds that piteously piped for pain of the cold. Gawain besought the Lord and Mary to guide him to some habitation where he might hear mass. Scarcely had he crossed himself thrice when he perceived a dwelling in the wood set upon a hill. It was the loveliest castle that he had ever beheld. It was pitched on a prairie, with a park all around it, enclosing many a tree for more than two miles. It shone as the sun through the bright oaks. Gawain urges on his steed Gringolet, and finds himself at the chief gate. He called aloud, and soon there appeared a porter on the wall who demanded his errand. Good sir, quoth Gawain, wouldst thou go to the high lord of this house and crave a lodging for me? Yeah, by Peter, replied the porter. Well, I know that thou art welcome to dwell here as long as thou likest. The drawbridge is soon let down, and the gates opened wide to receive the knight. Many noble ones hastened to bid him welcome. They take away his helmet, sword, and shield. Many a proud one presses forward to do him honor. They bring him into the hall, where a fire was brightly burning upon the hearth. Then the lord of the land comes from his chamber and welcomes Sir Gawain, telling him that he is to consider the place as his own. Our knight is next conducted to a bright bower. Where was noble bedding? Curtains of pure silk with golden hems and tarsic tapestries upon the wall and the floors. Here the knight doffed his armor and put on rich robes, which so well became him that all declared that a more comely knight Christ had never made. A table is soon raised, and Gawain having washed proceeds to meet. Many dishes are set before him. Sows of various kinds, fish of all kinds, some baked in bread, others broiled on the embers, some boiled, others seasoned with spices. The knight expresses himself well pleased and calls it a most noble and princely feast. After dinner, 
In reply to numerous questions, he tells his host that he is Gawain, one of the knights of the round table. When this was made known, great was the joy in the hall. Each one said softly to his companion, Now we shall see courteous behavior and learn the terms of noble discourse, since we have amongst us that fine father of nurture. Truly God has highly favored us in sending us such a noble guest as Sir Gawain. At the end of the Christmas festival, Gawain desires to take his departure from the castle, but his host persuades him to stay, promising to direct him to the Green Chapel about two miles from the castle, that he may be there by the appointed time. A covenant is made between them, the terms of which were that the lord of the castle should go out early to the chase, that Gawain meanwhile should lie in his loft at his ease and rise at his usual hour afterwards sit at a table with his hostess, and that at the end of the day they should make an exchange of whatever they might obtain in the interim. Whatever I win in the wood, says the Lord, shall be yours, and what thou gettest shall be mine. Full early before daybreak the folk uprise, saddle their horses, and trust their mails. The noble lord of the land arrayed for riding eats hastily a sop, and having heard mass, proceeds with a hundred hunters to hunt the wild deer. All this time, Gawain lies in his gay bed. His nap is disturbed by a little noise at the door which is softly opened. He heaves up his head out of the clothes and peeping through the curtains, beholds a most lovely lady, the wife of the host. She came towards the bed and the knight laid himself down quickly, pretending to be asleep. The lady stole to the bed, cast up the curtains, crept within, sat her softly on the bedside, and waited some time till the knight should awake. After lurking a while under the clothes, considering what it all meant, Gawain unlocked his eyelids and put on a look of surprise at the same time making the sign of the cross as if afraid of some hidden danger. Good morrow, sir, said the fair lady. Ye are a careless sleeper to let one enter thus. I shall bind you in your bed, of that ye be sure. Good morrow, quoth Gawain. I shall act according to your will with great pleasure, but permit me to rise that I may more comfortably converse with you. Nay, bow, sir, said the sweet one. Ye shall not rise from your bed. Since I have caught my knight, I shall hold talk with him. I ween well that ye are Sir Gawain, that all the world worships, whose honor and courtesy are so greatly praised. Now ye are here, and we are alone. My lord and his men being afar off, other men too are in bed, so are my maidens. The door is safely closed. I shall use my time well while it lasts. Ye are welcome to my person to do with it as ye please, and I will be your servant. Gawain behaves most discreetly, for the remembrance of his forthcoming adventure at the Green Chapel prevents him from thinking of love. At last, the lady takes leave of the knight by catching him in her arms and kissing him. The day passes away merrily, and at dusk the lord of the castle returns from the chase. He presents the venison to Gawain according to the previous covenant between them. Our knight gives his host a kiss, 
was the only piece of good fortune that had fallen to him during the day. It is good, says the other, and would be much better if you would tell me where you won such bliss. That was not in our covenant, replies Gawain, so try me no more. After much laughing on both sides, they proceed to supper. And afterwards, while the choice wine is being carried around, Gawain and his host renew their agreement. Late at night, they take leave of each other and hasten to their beds. By the time that the cock had crowed and cackled thrice, the lord was up, and after meat and mass were over, the hunters make for the woods, where they give chase to a wild boar who had grown old and mischievous. While the sportsmen are hunting this wild swine, our lovely knight lies in his bed. He is not forgotten by the lady who pays him an early visit, seeking to make further trial of his virtues. She sits softly by his side and tells him that he has forgotten what she taught him the day before. I taught you of kissing, says she, that becomes every courteous knight. Gawain says he must not take that which is forbidden him. The lady replies that he is strong enough to enforce his own wishes. Our knight answers that every gift not given with good will is worthless. His fair visitor then inquires how it is that he who is so skilled in the true sport of love, and so renowned a knight, has never talked to her of love. You ought, she says, to show and teach a young thing like me some tokens of true love's crafts. I come hither and sit here alone to learn of you some game. Do teach me of your wit while my lord is from home. Gawain replies that he cannot undertake the task of expounding true love and tales of arms to one who has far more wisdom than he possesses. Thus did our knight avoid all appearance of evil, though sorely pressed to do what was wrong. The lady, having bestowed two kisses upon Sir Gawain, takes her leave of him. At the end of the day, the lord of the castle returns home, with the shields and head of the wild boar. He shows them to his guest, who declares that such a brawn of a beast, nor such sides of a swine, he never before has seen. Gawain takes possession of the spoil according to covenant, and in return bestows two kisses upon the host, who declares that his guest has indeed been rich. After much persuasion, Gawain consents to stop at the castle another day. Early on the morrow, the lord and his men hasten to the woods and come upon the track of a fox, the hunting of which affords them plenty of employment and sport. Meanwhile, our good knight sleeps soundly with his comely curtains. He is again visited by the lady of the castle. So gaily was she attired and so faultless of her features that great joy warmed the heart of Sir Gawain. With soft and pleasant smiles they smite into mirth and are soon engaged in conversation. Had not Mary thought of her knight, he would have been in great peril. So sorely does the fair one press him with her love that he fears lest he should become a traitor to his host lady inquires whether he has a mistress to whom he has plighted his troth. The knight swears by St. John that he neither has nor desires one. This answer causes the dame to sigh for sorrows, 
Telling him she must depart, she asks for some gift, if it were only a glove, by which she might think on the night and lessen her grief. Gawain assures her that he has nothing worthy of her acceptance, that he is on an uncouth errand, and therefore has no men with no males containing precious things, for which he is truly sorry. Though I had naught of yours, yet should ye have of mine. Thus saying, she offers him a rich ring of red gold, with a shining stone standing aloft, that shone like the beams of the bright sun. The knight refused the gift as he had nothing to give in return. Since ye refuse my ring, says the lady, because it seems too rich and ye would not be beholden to me, I shall give you my girdle, that is less valuable. But Gawain replies that he will not accept gold or reward of any kind, though. Ever in hot and in cold, he will be her true servant. Do ye refuse it, asks the lady, because it seems simple and of little value. Whoso knew the virtues that are knit therein would estimate it more highly. For he who is girded with this green lace cannot be wounded or slain by any man under heaven. The knight thinks a while and it strikes him that this would be a jewel for the jeopardy that he had to undergo at the Green Chapel. So he not only accepts the lace, but promises to keep the possession of it a secret. By that time the lady had kissed him thrice, and she then takes her leave and leaves him there. Gawain rises, dresses himself in noble array, and conceals the love lace where he might find it again. He then hies to mass, shrives him of his misdeeds, and obtains absolution. On his return to the hall, he solaces the ladies with comely carols and all kinds of joy. The dark night came, and then the lord of the castle, having slain the fox, returns to his dear home, where he finds a fire brightly turning and his guest amusing the ladies. Gawain, in fulfillment of his agreement, kisses his host thrice. By Christ, quoth the other knight, ye have caught much bliss. I have hunted all this day, and naught have I got but the skin of this foul fox. The devil have the goods. And that is full poor for to pay for such precious things. After the usual evening's entertainment, Gawain retires to rest. The next morning, being New Year's Day, is cold and stormy. Snow falls, and the dales are full of drift. Our knight in his bed locks his eyelids, but full little he sleeps. By each cock that crows he knows the hour. And before daybreak he calls for his chamberlain, who quickly brings him his armor. While Gawain clothed himself in his rich weeds, he forgot not the lace, the lady's gift, but with it doubly girded his loins. He wore it not for its rich ornaments, but to save himself when it behooved him to suffer as a safeguard against sword or knife. Having thanked his host and all the renowned assembly for the great kindness he had experienced at their hands, he steps into stirrups and strides aloft. The drawbridge is let down, the broad gates unbarred and borne upon both sides, and the knight, after commending the castle to Christ, passes there out and goes on his way accompanied by his guide. The 
that should teach him to turn to that place where he should receive the much dreaded blow. They climb over cliffs where each hill had a hat and a mist cloak until the next morn, when they find themselves full high hill covered with snow. The servant bids his master remain a while, saying, I have brought you hither at this time, and now ye are not far from that noted place that ye have so often inquired after. The place that ye press to is esteemed full perilous. There dwells a man in that waste, the worst upon earth. For he is stiff and stern and loves to strike, and greater is he than any man upon Middle Earth, and his body is bigger than the best four in Arthur's house. He keeps the green chapel. There passes none by that place, however proud in arms, that he does not ding him to death with a dint of his hand. He is a man immoderate and no mercy uses. For be it churl or chaplain that by the chapel rides, monk or mass priest or any man else, it is as pleasant to him to kill them as to go alive himself. Wherefore I tell thee truly, come ye there ye be killed, though ye had twenty lives to spend. He has dwelt there long of yore, and on field much sorrow has wrought. Against his sword dints ye may not defend you. Therefore, good Sir Gawain, let the man alone, and for God's sake, go by some other path, and then I shall hie me home again, I swear to you. God and all his saints, that I will never say that I ever ye attempted to flee from any man. Gawain thanks his guide for his well-meant kindness declares that to the green chapel he will go, though the owner thereof be a stern knave, for God can devise means to save his servants. Mary, quoth the other, since it please thee to lose thy life, I will not hinder thee. Have thy helmet on thy head, thy spear in thy hand. Ride down this path by yon rock side till thou be brought to the bottom of the valley. Then look a little on the plain. On thy left hand thou shalt see in the slade the chapel itself, the burly knight that guards it. Now farewell, Gawain the noble. For all the gold upon the ground I would not go with thee, nor bear thee fellowship through this wood on foot farther. Thus having spoken, he gallops away and leaves the knight alone. Gawain now pursues his journey, rides through the dale and looks about. He sees no signs of a resting place, but only high and steep banks. The very shadows of the high woods seemed wild and distorted. No chapel, however, could he discover. After a while, he sees a round hill by the side of a stream. Thither he goes, alights, and fastens his horse to the branch of a tree. He walks about the hill, debating with himself what it might be. It had a hole in the one end on each side, and everywhere overgrown with grass, but whether it was only an old cave or a crevice of an old crag, he could not tell. Now indeed, quoth Gawain, a desert is here, this oratory is ugly, with herbs overgrown. It is a fitting place for the man in green to deal here his devotions after the devil's manner. 
Now I feel it is the fiend in my five wits that is covenanted with me, that he may destroy me. This is a chapel of misfortune evil betide it. It is the most cursed kirk that ever I came in. With his helmet on his head and his spear in his hand, he roams up to the rock, and hears from that high hill beyond the brook a wondrous wild noise. Lo, it clattered in the cliff as if one upon a grindstone were grinding a scythe. It whirred like the water at a mill and rushed and re-echoed terrible to hear. Though my life I forego, says Gawain, no noise shall cause me to fear. Then he cried aloud, Who dwells in this place? Discourse with me to hold. For now is good Gawain going right here if any brave wight will hie him hither, either now or never. Abide, quoth one on the bank above over his head, and thou shalt have all in haste that I promised thee once. Soon there comes out of a hole in the crag, with a fell weapon, a Danish axe quite new, the man in the green, clothed as at first as his legs, locks and beard, but now he is on foot and walks on the earth. When he reaches the stream, he hops over and boldly strides about. He meets Sir Gawain, who tells him he's quite ready to fulfill his part of the compact. Gawain, quoth the green gome, may God preserve thee. Truly thou art welcome to my place, and thou hast timed thy travel as a true man should. Thou knowest the covenants made between us at this time twelve month that on New Year's Day that I should return thee thy blow. We are now in this valley by ourselves and can do as we please. Have therefore thy helmet off thy head and have here thy pay. Let us have no more talk than when thou didst strike off my head with a single blow. Nay, by God, quoth Gawain, I shall not begrudge thee thy will for any harm that may happen, but will stand still whilst thou strikest. Then he stoops a little, and shows his bare neck, unmoved by any fear. The green knight takes up his grim tool, and with all the force raises it aloft, as if he meant utterly to destroy him. As the axe came gliding down, Gawain shrank a little with the shoulders from the sharp iron. The other withheld his weapon and then reproved the prince with many proud words. Thou art not Gawain that is so good esteemed, that never feared for no host by hill nor by vale. For now thou fleest for fear before thou feelst harm. Such cowardice of that night did I never hear. I never flinched nor fled when thou didst aim at me in King Arthur's house. My head flew to my feet, and yet I never fled. Wherefore I deserve to be called the better man. Quoth Gawain, I shunted once, but will do so no more, though my head may fall on the stones. But hasten and bring me to the point. Deal me my destiny, and do it out of hand. For I shall stand thee a stroke, and start no more until thine axes hit me. Here have my troth. Have at thee then, said the other, and heaves the axe aloft and looks as savagely as if he were mad. He aims at the other mightily, but withholds his hand ere it might hurt. 
Gawain readily abides the blow without flinching with any member, and stood still as a stone or a tree, fixed in rocky ground with a hundred roots. Then merrily did the other speak. Since now thou hast thy heart whole, it behoves me to strike, so take care of thy neck. Gawain answers with great wrath. Thrash on, thou fierce man, thou threatens too long. I believe thy own heart fails thee. Forsooth, quoth the other, since thou speakest so boldly, I will no longer delay. Then contracting both lips and brow, he made ready to strike and let fall his axe on the bare neck of Sir Gawain. Though hammered fiercely, he only severed the hide, causing blood to flow. When Gawain saw his blood on the snow, he seized his helmet and placed it on his head, then drew out his bright sword and thus angrily spoke, Cease, man, of thy blow bid me no more. I have received a stroke in this place without opposition, but if thou givest any more readily shall I requite thee. Of that be thou sure. Our covenant stipulates one stroke, therefore now cease. The Green Knight resting on his axe looks on Sir Gawain. As bold and fearless he there stood, and with a loud voice thus addresses the knight. Bold knight, be not so wroth. No man here has wronged thee. I promised thee a stroke, and thou hast it. Hold thee well pleased. I could have dealt much worse with thee, and caused thee much sorrow. Two blows I aimed at thee, for twice thou kissest my fair wife. But I struck thee not, because thou restoredest to me, according to agreement. At the third time thou failedst. And therefore I have given thee that tap. That woven girdle given thee by my own wife belongs to me. I know well thy kisses, thy conduct also, and the wooing of my wife. For I wrought it myself, I sent her to try thee. And truly methinks thou art the most faultless man that ever on foot went. Still, sir, thou wert wanting in good faith. But as it proceeded from no immorality, thou being only desirous of saving thy life, the less I blame thee. Gawain stood confounded. The blood rushed into his face, and he shrank within himself for very shame. Cursed, he cried. Be cowardice and covetousness both. In you a villainy and vice that virtue destroy. He takes off the girdle and throws it to the knight in green, cursing his cowardice and covetousness. The green knight, laughing, thus spoke. Thou hast confessed so clean and acknowledged thy faults, that I hold thee as pure as thou hadst never forfeited since thou was first born. I give thee, sir, the gold-hemmed girdle, as a token of thy adventure at the green chapel. Come now to my castle, we shall enjoy together the festivities of New Year. Nay, forsooth, quoth the knight, but for your kindness may God requite you. Commend me to that courteous one, your comely wife, who with her crafts has beguiled me. But it is no uncommon thing for a man to come to sorrow through women's wiles. 
For so was Adam beguiled with one, and Solomon with many, and Samson was destroyed by Delilah. It were indeed great bliss for a man to love them well and believe them not. Since the greatest upon earth were so beguiled, methinks I should be excused. But God reward you for your girdle, which I will ever wear in remembrance of my fault. And when pride shall exalt me, a look to this lovely shall lessen it. But since ye are the lord of yonder land, from whom I have received so much honor, tell me truly your right name, and I shall ask no more questions. I am called Bernlach de Hout Desert, through might of Morgan the Fay who dwells in my house. Much she has learnt of Merlin, who knows all your knights at home. She brought me to your hall, for to essay the prowess of the round table. She wrought this wonder to bereave you of your wits, hoping to have grieved Guinevere and affrighted her to death by means of the man that spoke with his head in his hand before the high table. She is even thine aunt, Arthur's half-sister. Wherefore come to thine aunt, for all my household love thee. Gawain refuses to accompany the Green Knight, and so with many embraces and kind wishes, they separate, the one to his castle, the other to Arthur's court. After passing through many wild ways, our knight recovers from the wound in his neck, and at last comes safe and sound to the court of King Arthur. Great then was the joy of all. The king and queen kiss their brave knight. Many make inquiries about his journey. He tells them of his adventures, hiding nothing. The chance of the chapel, the cheer of the knight, the love of the lady, and lastly of the lace. Groaning for grief and shame, he shows them the cut in his neck, which he had received for unfaithfulness. The king and his courtiers comfort the knight. They laugh loudly at his adventures and unanimously agree that those lords and ladies that belong to the round table and each knight of the brotherhood should ever after wear a bright green belt for Gawain's sake. And he upon whom it was conferred honored it evermore after. The Golden Bird A certain king had a beautiful garden, and in the garden stood a tree which bore golden apples. These apples were always counted, and about the time when they began to grow ripe, it was found that every night one of them was gone. The king became very angry at this, and ordered the gardener to keep watch all night under the tree. The gardener set his eldest son to watch, at about twelve o'clock he fell asleep and in the morning another of the apples was missing. Then the second son was ordered to watch, and at midnight he too fell asleep, and in the morning another apple was gone. Then the third son offered to keep watch, but the gardener at first would not let him for fear some harm should come to him. However, at last he consented, and the young man laid himself under the tree to watch, as the clock struck twelve, he heard a rustling noise in the air, and a bird came flying that was of pure gold, and it was snapping at one of the apples with its beak. The gardener's son jumped up and shot an arrow at it, 
but the arrow did the bird no harm. Only it dropped a golden feather from its tail and flew away. The golden feather was brought to the king in the morning, and all the council was called together. Everyone agreed that it was worth more than all of the wealth in the kingdom. But the king said, One feather is of no use to me. I must have the whole bird. Then, the gardener's eldest son set out and thought to find the golden bird very easily. And when he had gone but a little way, he came to a wood. And by the side of the wood he saw a fox sitting. So he took his bow and made ready to shoot at it. And then the fox said, Do not shoot me, for I will give you good counsel. I know what your business is, and that you want to find the golden bird. You will reach a village in the evening, and when you get there, you will see two inns opposite to each other, one of which is very pleasant and beautiful to look at. Go not in there, but rest for the night in the other, though it may appear to you to be very poor and mean. But the son thought to himself, what can such a beast know of this matter? So he shot his arrow at the fox, but he missed it, and it set up its tail above its back and ran into the wood. Then he went his way, and in the evening came to the village where the two inns were, and in one of these were people singing and dancing and feasting, but the other looked very dirty and poor. I should be very silly, said he, if I went to that shabby house and left this charming place. So he went into the smart house and ate and drank at his ease, and forgot the bird and his country too. Time passed on, and as the eldest son did not come back, and no tidings were heard of him, the second son set out, and the same thing happened to him. He met the fox who gave him the good advice, but when he came to the two inns, his eldest brother was standing at the window where the merrymaking was, and called to him to come in, and he could not withstand the temptation, but went in, and forgot the golden bird, and his country, in the same manner. Time passed on again, and the youngest son too wished to set out into the wide world to seek for the golden bird. But his father would not listen to it for a long while, for he was very fond of his son and was afraid that some ill luck might happen to him also and prevent his coming back. However, at last it was agreed he should go, for he would not rest at home as he came to the wood he met the fox and heard the same good counsel, but was thankful to the fox and did not attempt his life as his brothers had done. So the fox said, Sit upon my tail, and you will travel faster. So he sat down, and the fox began to run, and away they went, over stock and stone, so quick that their hair whistled in the wind. When they came to the village, the son followed the fox's counsel, and without looking about him went to the shabby inn and rested there all night at his ease. In the morning came the fox again, and met him as he was beginning his journey, and said, Go straight forward till you come to a castle, before which lie a whole troop of soldiers fast asleep and snoring. Take no notice of them, but go into the castle, and pass on and on till you come to a room, where the golden bird sits in a wooden cage. Close by it stands a beautiful golden cage, do not try to take the bird out of the shabby cage and put it into the handsome one, otherwise you will repent it. 
and then the fox stretched out his tail again, and the young man sat himself down, and away they went, over stock and stone, till their hair whistled in the wind. Before the castle gate all was as the fox had said, so the sun went in and found the chamber where the golden bird hung in a wooden cage, and below stood the golden cage and the three golden apples that had been lost were lying close by it. He thought to himself, it will be a very droll thing to bring away such a fine bird in this shabby cage. So he opened the door and took hold of it and put it into the golden cage. But the bird set up such a loud scream that all the soldiers awoke, and they took him prisoner and carried him before the king. The next morning the court sat to judge him, and when all was heard, it sentenced him to die. Unless he should bring the king the golden horse, which could run as swiftly as the wind, and if he did this, he was to have the golden bird given for his own. So he set out once more on his journey sighing and in great despair when on a sudden his friend the fox met him and said you see now what has happened on account of your not listening to my counsel i will still however tell you how to find the golden horse if you will do as i bid you you must go straight on till you come to the castle where the horse stands in his stall by his side will lie the groom fast asleep and snoring take away the horse quietly, but be sure to put the old leathern saddle upon him, and not the golden one that is close by it. The sun sat down on the fox's tail, and away they went over stock and stone, till the hare whistled in their wind. All went right, and the groom lay snoring with his hand upon the golden saddle, but when the sun looked at the horse he thought it a great pity to put the leathern saddle upon it. I will give him the good one said he, I'm sure he deserves it. As he took the golden saddle, the groom awoke and cried out so loud that all the guards ran in and took him prisoner, and in the morning he was again brought before the court to be judged and sentenced to die. But it was agreed that if he could bring thither the beautiful princess, he should live, and have the bird and the horse given him for his own. He went his way very sorrowful, but the old fox came and said, why did you not listen to me? If you had, you would have carried away both the bird and the horse, yet will I once more give you counsel. Go straight on, and in the evening you will arrive at a castle. At twelve o'clock at night, the princess goes to the bathing house. Go up to her and give her a kiss, and she will let you lead her away. But take care you do not suffer her to go and take leave of her father and mother. Then the fox stretched out his tail. And so away they went, over stock and stone, till their hair whistled again. As they came to the castle, all was as the fox had said. And at twelve o'clock, the young man met the princess going to the bath, and gave her a kiss, and she agreed to run away with him, but begged with many tears that he would let her take leave of her father. At first he refused, but she wept still, more and more, and fell at his feet till at last he consented, but the moment she came to her father's house, the guards woke, and he was taken prisoner again. Then he was brought before the king, and the king said, you shall never have my daughter, unless in eight days you dig away the hill that stops the view from my window. 
Now this hill was so big that the whole world could not take it away. And when he had worked for seven days and had done very little, the fox came and said, Lie down and go to sleep. I will work for you. In the morning he awoke, and the hill was gone. So he went merrily to the king, and told him, now that it was removed, he must give him the princess. The king was obliged to keep his word. And away went the young man and the princess, and the fox came and said to him, We will have all three, the princess, the horse, and the bird. Ah, said the young man, that would be a great thing, but how can you contrive it? If you will only listen, said the fox, it can be done. When you come to the king and he asks for the beautiful princess, you must say, Here she is. Then he will be very joyful, and you will mount the golden horse that they are given to you put out your hand to take leave of them, but shake hands with the princess last, lift her quickly onto the horse behind you, clap your spurs to his side, and gallop away as fast as you can. All went right, then the fox said, when you come to the castle where the bird is, I will stay with the princess at the door, he will ride in and speak to the king, and when he sees that is the right horse, he will bring out the bird you must sit still and say that you want to look at it to see whether it is the true golden bird and when you get it into your hand right away this too happened as the fox said they carried off the bird the princess mounted again and they rode on to a great wood then the fox came and said pray kill me cut off my head and my feet but the young man refused to do it so the fox said I will at any rate give you good counsel. Beware of two things. Ransom no one from the gallows and sit down by the side of the river. And away he went. Well, thought the young man, it's no hard matter to keep that advice. He rode on with the princess till at last he came to the village where he had left his two brothers. And there he heard a great noise and uproar. And when he asked what was the matter, the people said, two men are going to be hanged. As he came nearer, he saw that the two men were his brothers, who had turned robbers. So he said, cannot they in any way be saved? But the people said, no, unless he would bestow all his money upon the rascals and buy their liberty. Then he did not stay to think about the matter, but paid what was asked, and his brothers were given up and went on with him towards their home. And as they came to the wood where the fox first met them, it was so cool and pleasant that the two brothers said, Let us sit down by the side of the river and rest a while to eat and drink. So he said yes and forgot the fox's counsel and sat down by the side of the river. And while he suspected nothing, they came behind and threw him down the bank and took the princess, the horse and the bird and went home to the king, their master, and said, all this have we won by our labor. Then there was great rejoicing made, but the horse would not eat, the bird would not sing, and the princess wept. The youngest son fell to the bottom of the river's bed. Luckily it was nearly dry, but his bones were almost broken and the bank was so steep that he could not find a way to get out. And the old fox came once more and scolded him for not following his advice. Otherwise, no evil would have befallen him. Yet, said he, I cannot leave you here. Lay hold of my tail and hold fast. Then he pulled him 
out of the river, and said to him as he got upon the bank, Your brothers have set watch to kill you, if they find you in the kingdom. So he dressed himself as a poor man, and came secretly to the king's court, and was scarcely within the doors when the horse began to eat, the bird began to sing, and the princess left off weeping. Then he went to the king and told him all his brother's roguery. They were seized and punished. And he had the princess given to him again. And after the king's death, he was heir to his kingdom. A long while after, he went to walk one day in the wood. And the old fox met him and besought him with tears in his eyes to kill him and cut off his head and feet. And at last he did so. And in a moment the fox was changed into a man and turned out to be the brother of the princess who had been lost a great many, many years. The Little Mermaid, far out in the ocean. The water is as blue as the petals of the loveliest cornflower and as clear as the purest glass. But it is very deep too. It goes down deeper than any anchor rope will go. And many, many steeples would have to be stacked, one on top of another, to reach the bottom to the surface of the sea. It is down there that the sea folk live. Now, don't suppose that there are only bare white sands at the bottom of the sea. No, indeed. The most marvellous trees and flowers grow down there, with such pliant stalks and leaves that the least stir in the water makes them move about as though they were alive. All sorts of fish, large and small, dart among the branches, just as birds would flit through the trees up here. From the deepest spot in the ocean rises the palace of the Sea King. Its walls are made of coral, and its high pointed windows of the clearest amber. But the roof is made of mussel shells that open and shut with the tide. This is a wonderful sight to see, for every shell holds glistening pearls, any one of which would be the pride of a queen's crown. The sea king down there had been a widower for years, and his old mother kept house for him. She was a clever woman, but very proud of her noble birth. Therefore she flaunted twelve oysters on her tail, while the other ladies of the court were only allowed to wear six. Except for this, she was an altogether praiseworthy person, particularly so because she was extremely fond of her granddaughters, the little sea princesses. They were six lovely girls, but the youngest was the most beautiful of them all. Her skin was as soft and tender as a rose petal, and her eyes were as blue as the deep sea. But like all the others, she had no feet. Her body ended in a fishtail. The whole day long they used to play in the palace, down in 
the great halls where live flowers grew on the walls. Whenever the high amber windows were thrown open, the fish would swim in, just as swallows dart into our rooms when we open the windows. But these fish, now, would swim right up to the little princesses to eat out of their hands and let themselves be petted. Outside the palace was a big garden with flaming red and deep blue trees. Their fruit glittered like gold and their blossoms flamed like fire on their constantly waving stalks. The soil was very fine sand indeed, but as blue as burning brimstone. A strange blue veil lay over everything down there. You would have thought yourself aloft in the air, with only the blue sky above and beneath you, rather than down at the bottom of the sea. When there was a dead calm, you could just see the sun, like a scarlet flower with light streaming from its calyx. Each little princess had her own small garden pot, where she could dig and plant whatever she liked. One of them made her little flower bed in the shape of a whale. Another thought it neater to shape hers like a little mermaid. But the youngest of them made hers as round as the sun. And there she only grew flowers which were as red as the sun itself. She was an unusual child, quiet and wistful. And when her sisters decorated their gardens with all kinds of odd things that they had found in sunken ships, she would allow nothing in hers except flowers as red as the sun and a pretty marble statue. This figure of a handsome boy, carved in pure white marble, it had sunk down to the bottom of the sea from some ship that was wrecked. Beside the statue she planted a rose-colored weeping willow tree, which thrived so well that its graceful branches shaded the statue and hung down to the blue sand, where their shadows took on a violet tint and swayed as the branches swayed. It looked as if the roots and the tips of the branches were kissing each other in play. Nothing gave the youngest princess such pleasure as to hear about the world of human beings up above them. Her old grandmother had to tell her all she knew about ships and cities, of people and animals. What seemed nicest of all to her was that up on land the flowers were fragrant, for those at the bottom of the sea had no scent. And she thought it was nice that the woods were green, and that the fish that you saw among their branches could sing so loud and sweet that it was delightful to hear them.
her grandmother had to call the little birds fish, or the princess would not have known what she was talking about, for she had never seen a bird. When you get to be fifteen, her grandmother said, you will be allowed to rise up out of the ocean and sit on the rocks in the moonlight to watch the great ships sailing by. You will see woods and towns too. Next year, one of her sisters would be fifteen. But the others, well, since each was a whole year older than the next, the youngest still had five long years to wait until she could rise up from the water and see what our world was like. But each sister promised to tell the others about all that she saw and what she found most marvelous on her first day. Their grandmother had not told them half enough, and there were so many things that they longed to know about. The most eager of them all was the youngest, the very one who was so quiet and wistful. Many a night she stood by her open window and looked up through the dark blue water where the fish waved their fins and tails. She could just see the moon and the stars. To be sure, their light was quite dim, but looked at through the water, they seemed much bigger than they appear to us. Whenever a cloud-like shadow swept across them, she knew that it was either a whale swimming overhead, or a ship with many human beings aboard. Little did they dream that a pretty young mermaid was down below, stretching her white arms up towards the keel of their ship. The eldest princess had her fifteenth birthday, so now she received permission to rise up out of the water. When she got back, she had a hundred things to tell her sisters about. But the most marvelous thing of all, she said, was to lie on a sandbar in the moonlight, when the sea was calm, and to gaze at the large city on the shore, where the lights twinkled like hundreds of stars, to listen to music, to hear the chatter and clamor of carriages and people, to see so many church towers and spires, to hear the ringing bells. Because she could not enter the city, that was just what she most dearly longed to do. Oh, how intently the youngest sister listened. After this, whenever she stood at her open window at night and looked up through the dark blue waters, she thought of that great city with its clatter and clamor and even fancied that in these depths she could hear the church bells ring. The next year, her second sister had permission to rise up to the surface and swim wherever she pleased. She came up just at sunset and she said that this spectacle was the most marvelous sight that she had ever seen. 
The heavens had a golden glow, and as for the clouds, she could not find words to describe their beauty. Splashed with red and tinted with violet, they sailed over her head, but much faster than the sailing clouds were wild swans in a flock, like a long white veil trailing above the sea. They flew towards the sun. She too swam toward it, but down it went, and all the rose-colored glow faded from the sea and the sky. The following year, her third sister ascended, and as she was the boldest of them all, she swam up a broad river that flowed into the ocean. She saw gloriously green, fine-colored hills. Palaces and manor houses could be glimpsed through the splendid woods. She heard all the birds sing, and the sun shone so brightly that often she had to dive under the water to cool her burning face. In a small cove she found a whole school of mortal children paddling about in the water naked. She wanted to play with them, but they took fright and ran away. Then along came a little black animal. It was a dog, but she had never seen a dog before. It barked at her so ferociously that she took fright herself and fled to the open sea. But never could she forget the splendid woods, the green hills, and the nice children who could swim in the water, although they didn't wear fishtails. The fourth sister was not so venturesome. She stayed far out among the rough waves, which she said was a marvelous place. You could see all around you for miles and miles, and the heavens up above you were like a vast dome of glass. She had seen ships, but they were so far away that they looked like seagulls. Playful dolphins had turned somersaults, and monstrous whales had spouted water through their nostrils, so that it looked as if hundreds of fountains were playing all around them. Now the fifth sister had her turn. Her birthday came in the winter time, so she saw things that none of the others had seen. The sea was a deep green color, and enormous icebergs drifted about. Each one glistened like a pearl, but they were more lofty than any church steeple built by man. They assumed the most fantastic shapes and sparkled like diamonds. She had seated herself on the largest one, and all the ships that came sailing by sped away as soon as the frightened sailors saw her there, with her long hair blowing in the wind. In the late evening, clouds filled the sky. Thunder cracked and lightning darted across the heavens. 
Black waves lifted those great bergs of ice on high where they flashed when the lightning struck. On all the ships, the sails were reefed. There was fear and trembling. But quietly she sat there upon her drifting iceberg and watched the blue forked lightning strike the sea. Each of the sisters took delight in the lovely new sights when she first rose up to the surface of the sea. But when they became grown-up girls who were allowed to go wherever they liked, they became indifferent to it. They would become homesick, and in a month they said there was no place like the bottom of the sea where they felt so completely at home. On many an evening, the older sisters would rise to the surface arm in arm, all five in a row. They had beautiful voices, more charming than any of those mortal beings. When a storm was brewing and they anticipated a shipwreck, they would swim before the ship and sing, most seductively, of how beautiful it was at the bottom of the ocean trying to overcome the prejudice that the sailors had against coming down to them. But people could not understand their song, and mistook it for the voice of the storm. Nor was it for them to see the glories of the deep. When their ship went down, they were drowned, and it was as dead men that they reached the Sea King's palace. On the evenings when the mermaids rose through the water like this, arm in arm, their youngest sister stayed behind, all alone, looking after them, wanting to weep. But a mermaid has no tears, and therefore she suffers so much more. Oh, how I do wish I were fifteen, she said. I know I shall love that world up there and all the people who live in it. And at last, she too came to fifteen. Now I'll have you off my hands, said her grandmother. Come, let me adorn you like your sisters. In the little maid's hair she put a wreath of white lilies, each petal which was formed from the half of a pearl. And the old queen let eight big oysters fasten themselves to the princess's tail as a sign of her high rank. But that hurts, said the little mermaid. You must put up with a good deal to keep up appearances, her grandmother told her. Oh, how gladly she would have shaken off all of these decorations and laid aside the cumbersome wreath. The red flowers in her garden were much more becoming to her, but she didn't dare to make any changes. Goodbye, she said, and up she went through the water, as light and as sparkling as a bubble. The sun had just gone down when her head rose above the surface. The clouds still shone like gold and roses, and in the delicately tinted sky 
sparkled the clear gleam of an evening star. The air was mild and fresh and the sea unruffled. A great three-master lay in view with only one of its sails set, for there was not even the whisper of a breeze. The sailors idled about in the rigging and on the yards. There was music and singing on the ship, and as night came, on they lighted hundreds of such brightly colored lanterns that one might have thought the flags of all nations were swinging in the air. The little mermaid swam right up to the window of the main cabin, and each time she rose with the swell she could peep in through the clear glass panes, looking at the crowd of brilliantly dressed people within. The handsomest of them all was a young prince with big dark eyes. He could not be more than sixteen years old. It was his birthday, and that was the reason for all the celebration. Up on deck the sailors were dancing, and when the prince appeared among them, a hundred or more rockets flew through the air, making it as bright as day. These startled the little mermaid so badly that she ducked under the water, but she soon peeked up again and then it seemed as if all the stars in the sky were falling around her. Never had she seen such fireworks. Great suns spun around, splendid firefish floated through blue air and all of these things were mirrored in the crystal clear sea. It was so brilliantly bright that she could see every little rope of the ship, and the people could be seen distinctly. Oh, how handsome the young prince was. He laughed, and he smiled, and shook people by the hand, while the music rang out in the perfect evening. It got very late, but the little mermaid could not take her eyes off of the ship and the handsome prince. The brightly colored lanterns were put out. No more rockets flew through the air. No more cannon boomed. But there was a mutter and rumble deep down in the sea, and the swell kept bouncing her up so high that she could look into the cabin. Now the ship began to sail. Canvas after canvas was spread in the wind. The waves rose high, great clouds gathered. Lightning flashed in the distance. They were in for a terrible storm and the mariners made haste to reef the sails. The tall ship pitched and rolled as it sped through the angry sea. The waves rose up like towering black mountains, as if they would break over the masthead. But the swan-like ship plunged into the valleys between such waves and emerged to ride their lofty heights. 
to the little mermaid this seemed like good sport, but to the sailors it was nothing of the sort. The ship creaked and labored, thick timbers gave way under heavy blows, waves broke over the ship, the mainmast snapped in two like a reed, the ship listed over on its side, and water burst into the hold. Now the little mermaid saw that people were in peril, and that she herself must take care to avoid the beams and the wreckage tossed about by the sea. One moment it would be black as pitch, and she couldn't see a thing. Next moment the lightning would flash so brightly that she could distinguish every soul on board. Everyone was looking out for himself as best he could. She watched closely for the young prince. And when the ship split in two, she saw him sink down in the sea. At first, she was overjoyed that he would be with her. But then she recalled that human people could not live under the water and he could only visit her father's palace as a dead man. No, he should not die. So she swam in among all the floating planks and beams, completely forgetting that they might crush her. She dived through the waves and rode their crests until at length she reached the young prince. He was no longer able to swim in that raging sea. His arms and legs were exhausted. His beautiful eyes were closing. And he would have died if the little mermaid had not come to help him. She held his head above water and let the waves take them wherever the waves went. At daybreak, when the storm was over, not a trace of the ship was in view. The sun rose out of the waters red and bright, and its beams seemed to bring the glow of life back to the cheeks of the prince. His eyes remained closed. The mermaid kissed his high and shapely forehead. As she stroked his wet hair in place, it seemed to her that he looked just like that marble statue in her little garden. She kissed him again and hoped that he would live. She saw dry land rise before her in high blue mountains, topped with snow as glistening white as if a flock of swans were resting there. Down by the shore were splendid green woods, and in the foreground stood a church, or perhaps a convent. She didn't know which, but anyway, it was a building. Orange and lemon trees grew in its garden, and tall palm trees grew besides the gateway. Here the sea formed a little harbor, quite calm and very deep. Fine white sand had been washed up below the cliffs, 
she swam there with the handsome prince and stretched him out on the sand, taking special care to pillow his head up high in warm sunlight. The bells began to ring in the great white building, and a number of young girls came out into the garden. The little mermaid swam away behind some tall rocks that stuck out of the water. She covered her hair and her shoulders with foam so that no one could see her tiny face. And then she watched to see who would find the poor prince. In a little while, one of the girls came upon him. She seemed frightened, but only for a minute, and then she called for more people. The mermaid watched the prince regain consciousness and smile at everyone around him. But he did not smile at her, for he did not even know that she had saved him. She felt very unhappy. And when they led him away to the big building, she dived sadly down into the water and returned to her father's palace. She had always been quiet and wistful, and now she became much more so. Her sisters asked her what she had seen on her first visit up to the surface, but she would not tell them a thing. Many evenings and many mornings, she revisited the spot where she had left the prince. She saw the fruit in the garden ripened and harvested, and she saw the snow on the high mountain melted away. But she did not see the prince. So each time she came home sadder than she had left. It was her one consolation to sit in her little garden, throw her arms about the beautiful marble statue that looked so much like the prince. But she took no care of her flowers now. They overgrew the paths until the place was a wilderness, and their long stalks and leaves became so entangled in the branches of the tree that it cast a gloomy shade. Finally, she couldn't bear it any longer. She told her secret to one of her sisters. Immediately, all the other sisters heard about it. No one else knew, except a few more mermaids who told no one, except their most intimate friends. One of these friends knew who the prince was. She too had seen the birthday celebration on the ship. She knew where he came from and where his kingdom was. Come, little sister, said the other princesses. Arm in arm, they rose from the water in a long row, right in front of where they knew the prince's palace stood. It was built of pale, glistening golden stone, with great marble staircases, one of which led down to the sea. Magnificent gilt domes rose above the roof, and between the pillars all around the building were marble statues that looked most lifelike. Through the clear glass of the lofty windows, one could see into the splendid halls. 
with their costly silk hangings and tapestries, walls covered with paintings that were delightful to behold. In the center of the main hall, a large fountain played its columns of spray up to the glass-domed roof, through which the sun shone down on the water and upon the lovely plants that grew in the big basin. Now that she knew where he lived, many an evening and many a night she spent there in the sea. She swam much closer to shore than any of her sisters would dare venture and she even went up a narrow stream under the splendid marble balcony that cast its long shadow in the water. Here she used to sit and watch the young prince when he thought himself quite alone in the bright moonlight. On many evenings she saw him sail out in his fine boat, with music playing and flags aflutter. She would peep out through the green rushes and if the wind blew her long silver veil, anyone who saw it mistook her for a swan spreading its wings. On many nights she saw the fishermen come out to the sea with their torches, heard them tell about how kind the young prince was. This made her proud to think that it was she who had saved his life when he was buffeted about, half dead among the waves. She thought of how softly his head had rested on her breast, how tenderly she had kissed him. Though he knew nothing of all of this, nor could he even dream of it. Increasingly she grew to like human beings. More and more she longed to live among them. Their world seemed so much wider than her own. They could skim over the sea in ships and mount up into the lofty peaks high over the clouds. Their lands stretched out in woods and fields farther than the eye could see. There was so much that she wanted to know. Her sisters could not answer all her questions, so she asked her old grandmother, who knew about the upper world, which was what she said was the right name for the countries above the sea. If men aren't drowned, the little mermaid asked, do they live on forever? Don't they die as, as we do down here in the sea? Yes, the old lady said, they too must die, and their lifetimes are even shorter than ours. We can live to be three hundred years old, when we perish, we turn into mere foam on the sea, and haven't even a grave down here among our dear ones. We have no immortal soul, no life hereafter. We are like the green seaweed. Once cut down, it never grows again. Human beings, on the contrary, have a soul which lives forever. Long after their bodies have turned to clay, it rises through thin air up to the shining stars. Just as we rise through the water to see the lands on earth, so men rise up to beautiful places unknown, which we shall never see. 
Why weren't we given an immortal soul? The little mermaid sadly asked. I would gladly give up 300 years if I could be a human being only for a day and later share in that heavenly realm. You must not think about that, said the old lady. We fare much more happily and are much better off than the folk up there. Then I must also die and float as foam upon the sea, not hearing the music of the waves and seeing neither the beautiful flowers nor the red sun. Can't I do anything at all to win an immortal soul? No, her grandmother answered. Not unless a human being loved you so much that you meant more to him than his father and mother, if his every thought and his whole heart cleaved to you, so that he would let a priest join his right hand to yours and would promise to be faithful here and throughout all eternity. Then his soul would dwell in your body, and you would share in the happiness of mankind. He would give you a soul and yet keep his own. But that can never come to pass. The very thing that is your greatest beauty here in the sea, your fishtail, would be considered ugly on land. They have such poor taste that to be thought beautiful there you have to have two awkward props which they call legs. The little mermaid sighed and looked unhappily at her fishtail. Come, let us be gay, the old lady said. Let us leap and bound throughout the three hundred years that we have to live. Surely that is time and to spare, and afterwards we shall be glad enough to rest in our graves. We are holding a court ball this evening. This was a much more glorious affair than is ever to be seen on earth. The walls and the ceiling of the great ballroom were made of massive but transparent glass. Many hundreds of huge rose-red and grass-green shells stood on each side in rows, with the blue flames that burned in each shell, illuminating the whole room and shining through the walls so clearly that it was quite bright in the sea outside. You could see the countless fish, great and small, swimming towards the glass walls. On some of them the scales gleamed purplish-red, while others were silver and gold. Across the floor of the hall ran a wide stream of water, and upon this the mermaids and the mermen danced to their entrancing songs. Such beautiful voices are not to be heard among the people who live on land. The little mermaid sang more sweetly than anyone else, and everyone applauded her. For a moment, her heart was happy, because she knew that she had the loveliest voice of all, in the sea or on the land. But her thoughts soon strayed to the world up above. She could not forget the charming prince nor her sorrow that she did not have an immortal soul like his. Therefore she stole out of her father's palace and 
while everything there was song and gladness. She sat, sadly, in her own little garden. Then she heard a bugle call through the water, and she thought, that must mean he is sailing up there. He whom I love more than my father or mother, he of whom I am always thinking, and in whose hands I would so willingly trust my lifelong happiness. I dare do anything to win him and to gain a mortal soul. While my sisters are dancing here in my father's palace, I shall visit the sea witch, of whom I have always been so afraid. Perhaps she will advise me and help me. The little mermaid set out from her garden toward the whirlpools that raged in front of the witch's dwelling. She had never gone that way before, no flowers grew there, nor any seaweed. Bare and grey, the sands extended to the whirlpools, where like roaring mill wheels the waters whirled and snatched everything within their reach, down to the bottom of the sea. Between these tumultuous whirlpools she had to thread her way to reach the witch's waters. And then for a long stretch, the only trail lay through a hot, seething mire, which the witch called her peat marsh. Beyond it lay her house, in the middle of a weird forest. All the trees and the shrubs were polyps, half animal, half plant. They looked like hundred-headed snakes growing out of the soil. All their branches were long, slimy arms, with fingers like wriggling worms. They squirmed, joint by joint, from their roots to their outermost tentacles. Whatever they could lay hold of, they twined around and they never let go. The little mermaid was terrified and stopped at the edge of the forest. Her heart thumped with fear and she nearly turned back. But then she remembered the prince and the souls that men have and she summoned her courage. She bound her long flowing locks closely about her head, any one of polyps could not catch hold of them, folded her arms across her breast, and darted through the water like a fish, in among the slimy polyps that stretched out their writhing arms and fingers to seize her. She saw that every one of them held something that it had caught with its hundreds of little tentacles and to which it clung as with strong hoops of steel. The white bones of men who had perished at sea and sunk to these depths could be seen in the polyps' arms. Ships' rudders, seamen's chests, the skeletons of land animals who had fallen into their clutches. But the most ghastly sight of all was a little mermaid 
whom they had caught and strangled. She reached a large muddy clearing in the forest, where big fat water snakes slithered about, showing their foul yellowish bellies. In the middle of this clearing was a house built of the bones of shipwrecked men, and there sat the sea witch, letting a toad eat out of her mouth, just as we might feed sugar to a little canary bird. She called the ugly fat water snakes her little chickabiddies, and let them crawl and sprawl about on her spongy bosom. I know exactly what you want, said the sea witch. It is very foolish of you, but just the same you shall have your way. For it will bring you to grief, my proud princess. You want to get rid of your fishtail and have two props instead, so that you can walk about like a human creature and have the young prince fall in love with you. Win him and an immortal soul besides. At this, the witch gave such a loud, cackling laugh that the toad and the snakes were shaken to the ground, where they lay, writhing. You are just in time, said the witch. After the sun comes up tomorrow, a whole year would have to go by before I could be of any help to you. I shall compound you a draught. And before sunrise, you must swim to the shore with it. Seat yourself on dry land and drink the draught down. Then your tail will divide and shrink until it becomes what the people on Earth call a pair of shapely legs. But it will hurt. It will feel as if a sharp sword slashed through you. Everyone who sees you will say that you are the most graceful human being that they have ever laid eyes on. But you will keep your gliding movement, and no dancer will be able to tread as lightly as you. But every step you take will feel as if you were treading upon knife blades, so sharp that blood must flow. I am willing to help you, but are you willing to suffer all this? Yes, the little mermaid replied in a trembling voice, as she thought of the prince and gaining a human soul. Remember, said the witch, once you have taken a human form, you can never be a mermaid again. You can never come back through the waters to your sisters or to your father's palace. And if you do not win the love of the prince so completely that for your sake he forgets his father and mother, cleaves to you with his every thought and his whole heart, and lets the priest join your hands in marriage, then you will win no immortal soul. If he marries someone else, your heart will break on the very next morning, and you will become foam of the sea. 
I shall take that risk, said the little mermaid, but she turned as pale as death. Also, you will have to pay me, said the witch, and it is no trifling price that I'm asking. You have the sweetest voice of anyone down here at the bottom of the sea. And while I don't doubt that you would like to captivate the prince with it, you must give this voice to me. I will take the very best thing that you have in return for my sovereign draft. I must pour my own blood into it to make the drink as sharp as a two-edged sword. But if you take my voice, said the little mermaid, what will be left of me? Your lovely form, the witch told her. Your gliding movements, your eloquent eyes. With these you can easily enchant a human heart. Well, have you lost your courage? Stick out your little tongue and I shall cut it off. I'll have my price, and you shall have the potent draught. Go ahead, said the little mermaid. The witch hung her cauldron over the flames to brew the draught. Cleanliness is a good thing, she said, as she tied her snakes in a knot and scoured out the pot with them. She pricked herself in the chest and let her black blood splash into the cauldron. Steam swelled up from it in such ghastly shapes that anyone would have been terrified by them. The witch constantly threw in new ingredients into the cauldron and it started to boil with a sound like that of a crocodile shedding tears. When the draught was ready at last, it looked as clear as the purest water. There's your draught, said the witch, and she cut off the tongue of the little mermaid, who now was dumb and could neither sing nor talk. If the polyps should pounce on you when you walk back through my wood, the witch said, just spill a drop of this brew upon them and their tentacles will break into a thousand pieces. But there was no need for that. The polyps curled up in terror as soon as they saw the bright draught. It glittered in the little mermaid's hands as if it were a shining star. So she soon traversed the forest, the marsh, and the place of raging whirlpools. She could see her father's palace. The lights had been snuffed out in the great ballroom Doubtless, everyone in the palace was asleep. She dared not go near them. Now that she was stricken dumb and was leaving her home forever, her heart felt as if it would break with grief. She tiptoed into the garden, took one flower from each of her sister's little plots, blew a thousand kisses towards the palace, and then mounted up through the dark blue sea. The sun had not yet risen when she saw the prince's palace. As she climbed his splendid marble staircase, 
the moon was shining clear. The little mermaid swallowed the bitter, fiery draught, and it was as if a two-edged sword struck through her frail body. She swooned away and lay there as if she were dead. When the sun rose over the sea, she awoke and felt a flash of pain. But directly in front of her stood the handsome young prince, gazing at her with his coal black eyes. Lowering her gaze, she saw her fishtail was gone, and she had the loveliest pair of white legs that any young maid could hope to have. She was naked, so she clothed herself in her own long hair. The prince asked who she was, how she came to be there. Her deep blue eyes looked at him tenderly, but very sadly, for she could not speak. He took her hand and led her into his palace. Every footstep felt as if she were walking on the blades and the points of sharp knives. She gladly endured it. She moved as lightly as a bubble as she walked beside the prince. He and all who saw her marveled at the grace of her gliding walk. Once clad in the rich silk and muslin garments that were provided for her, she was the loveliest person in all the palace, though she was dumb and could neither sing nor speak. Beautiful slaves attired in silk and cloth of gold came to sing before the prince and his royal parents. One of them sang more sweetly than all of the others, and when the prince smiled at her and clapped his hands, the little mermaid felt very unhappy for she knew that she herself could sing much more sweetly. She thought, if only he knew that I parted with my voice forever so I could be near him. Graceful slaves began to dance to the most wonderful music, and the little mermaid lifted her shapely white arms. She rose up on the tips of her toes and skimmed over the floor. No one had ever danced so well. Each movement set off her beauty to a better and better advantage. Her eyes spoke more directly to the heart than any of the singers could do. She charmed everyone, and especially the prince, who called her his dear little foundling. She danced time and time again, and though every time she touched the floor, she felt as if she were treading on a sharp-edged steel. The prince said he would keep her with him always, that she was to have a velvet pillow to sleep on outside his door. He had a page's suit made for her, so she could go with him on horseback. They would ride through the sweet-scented woods, where the green boughs brushed her shoulders, where little birds sang among the fluttering leaves. 
she climbed up high mountains with the prince, and though her tender feet bled so that all could see it, she only laughed and followed him on until they could see clouds driving far below, like a flock of birds in flight to a distant land. At home in the prince's palace, while the others slept at night, she would go down the broad marble steps to cool her burning feet, the cold sea water. She would recall those who lived beneath the sea. One night, her sisters came by, arm in arm singing sadly as they breasted the waves. When she held out her hands towards them, they knew who she was, and told her how unhappy she had made them all. They came to see her every night after that, and once, far, far out to sea, she saw her old grandmother, who had not been up to the surface this many a year. With her was the Sea King, with his crown upon his head. They stretched out their hands to her, but they did not venture so near to the land as her sisters had. Day after day, she became more dear to the prince, who loved her as one would love a good little child, but he never thought of making her his queen. Yet she had to be his wife, or she would never have an immortal soul. And on the morning after his wedding, she would turn into foam on the waves. Don't you love me best of all? The little mermaid's eyes seemed to question him when he took her in his arms and kissed her lovely forehead. Yes, you are most dear to me, said the prince. For you have the kindest heart. You love me more than anyone else does, and you look so much like a young girl that I once saw, but she'll never find again. I was on a ship that was wrecked, and the waves cast me ashore near a holy temple, where many young girls performed the rituals. The youngest of them found me beside the sea, and saved my life. Though I saw her no more than twice, she is the only person in all the world whom I could love. But you are so much like her that you almost replace the memory of her in my heart. She belongs to that holy temple, therefore it's my good fortune that I have you. We shall never part. Alas, he doesn't know it was I who saved his life, the little mermaid thought. I carried him over the sea to the garden, where the temple stands. I hid behind the foam, and watched to see if anyone would come. I saw the pretty maid that he loves better than me. A sigh was the only sign of her deep distress, for a mermaid cannot cry. He says that the other maid belongs to the holy temple. She will never come out into the world, so they will never see each other again. 
It is I who will care for him, love him, and give all of my life to him. Now rumors arose that the prince was to wed the beautiful daughter of a neighboring king, and that it was for this reason he was having such a superb ship made ready to sail. The rumor ran that the prince's real interest in visiting this neighboring kingdom was to see the king's daughter, and that he was to travel with a lordly retinue. The little mermaid shook her head and smiled, for she knew the prince's thoughts better than anyone else did. I'm forced to make this journey, he told her. I must visit the beautiful princess, for that is my parents' wish. But they would not have me bring her home as my bride against my own will. I can never love her. She does not resemble the maiden in the temple, as you do. And if I were to choose a bride, I would sooner choose you. My dear mute foundling, with those telling eyes of yours. And he kissed her on the mouth. Fingered her long hair and laid his head against her heart so that she came to dream of mortal happiness and an immortal soul. I trust you aren't afraid of the sea, my silent child, he said, as they boarded the magnificent vessel that was to carry them to the land of the neighboring king. He told her stories of storms, of ships becalmed, of strange deep sea fish of the wonders that the divers have seen. She smiled at such stories for no one knew about the bottom of the sea as well as she did. In the clear moonlight, when everyone except the man at the helm was asleep, she sat on the side of the ship, gazing down through the transparent water. She fancied that she could catch glimpses of her father's palace. On the topmost tower stood her old grandmother, wearing her silver crown and looking up at the keel of the ship through the rushing waves. Her sisters rose to the surface, looked at her sadly and wrung their white hands. She smiled and waved, trying to let them know that all went well and she was happy. But along came the cabin boy, and her sisters dived out of sight, so quickly that the boy supposed the flash of light was just foam on the sea. The next morning, the ship came in to harbor of the neighboring king's glorious city. All the church bells chimed, and Trumpets were sounded from all the high towers, while soldiers lined up with flying banners and glittering bayonets. Every day had a new festivity, as one ball followed another, but the princess was still to appear. They said she was being brought up in some faraway sacred temple, where she was learning every royal virtue. She came at last. 
The little mermaid was curious to see how beautiful this princess was, and she had to grant that a more exquisite figure she had never seen. The princess's skin was clear and fair, and behind long dark lashes her deep blue eyes were smiling and devoted. It was you, the prince cried. You were the one who saved me when I lay like a dead man beside the sea. He clasped the blushing bride of his choice in his arms. Oh, I am happier than a man should be, he told his little mermaid. My fondest dream, that which I never dared to hope, has come true. You will share in my great joy, for you love me more than anyone does. The little mermaid kissed his hand and felt her heart was beginning to break. For the morning after his wedding day would see her dead and turn to watery foam. All the church bells rang out. Heralds rode through the streets to announce the wedding. Upon every altar, sweet-scented oils were burned in costly silver lamps. The priests swung their censers. The bride and the bridegroom joined their hands, and the bishop blessed their marriage. The little mermaid, clothed in silk and cloth of gold, held the bride's train. She was deaf to the wedding march and blind to the holy ritual. Her thought turned on her last night upon earth, on all that she had lost in this world. That same evening, the bride and bridegroom went aboard the ship. Cannon thundered and banners waved. On the deck of the ship, a royal pavilion of purple and gold was set up, furnished with luxurious cushions. Here, the wedded couple were to sleep on that calm, clear night. The sails swelled in the breeze, and the ship glided so lightly that it scarcely seemed to move over a quiet sea. The little mermaid could not forget the first time that she rose from the depths of the sea and looked on at such pomp and happiness. Light as a swallow pursued by his enemies, she joined in a whirling dance. Everyone cheered her, for never had she danced so wonderfully. Her tender feet felt as if they were pierced by daggers. But she did not feel it. Her heart suffered far greater pain. She knew that this was the last evening that she would ever see him, for whom she had forsaken her home and family, for whom she had sacrificed her lovely voice and suffered such constant torment, while he knew nothing of these things. It was the last night that she would breathe the same air with him, or look upon deep waters or the star fields of the blue sky. A never-ending night 
without thought, without dreams, awaited her, who had no soul and could not get one. The merrymaking lasted long after midnight. She laughed and danced on despite the thought of death she carried in her heart. The prince kissed his beautiful bride and she toyed with his coal black hair. Hand in hand they went to rest in a magnificent pavilion. A hush came over the ship. Only the helmsman remained on deck. The little mermaid leaned on her white arms and looked to the east to see the first red hint of daybreak. For she knew that the first flash of the sun would strike her dead. Then she saw her sisters rise up among the waves. They were as pale as she, and there was no sign of their lovely long hair. But the breezes used to blow it had all been cut off. We have given our hair to the witch, they said, so that she would send you help and save you from death tonight. She gave us a knife. Here it is. See the sharp blade? Before the sun rises, you must strike it into the prince's heart. And when his warm blood bathes your feet, they will grow together and become a fishtail. Then you will be a mermaid again, able to come back to us in the sea, live out your 300 years before you die, and turn to dead salt sea foam. Make haste, he or you must die before sunrise. Our old grandmother is so grief-stricken, her white hair is falling fast, just as ours did under the witch's scissors. Kill the prince and come back to us. Hurry. See the red glow in the heavens. In a few minutes the sun will rise and you must die. They gave a strange deep sigh and sank beneath the waves. The little mermaid parted the purple curtains of the tent and saw the beautiful bride asleep with her head on the prince's breast. The mermaid bent down and kissed his shapely forehead. She looked at the sky, fast reddening for the break of day. She looked at the sharp knife and again turned her eyes towards the prince, who in his sleep murmured the name of his bride. His thoughts were all for her, and the knife blade trembled in the mermaid's hand, and she flung it from her, far out over the waves. Where it fell, the waves were red, as if bubbles of blood seethed in the water. With eyes already glazing, she looked once more at the prince, hurled herself over the side of the ship into the sea and felt her body dissolve in foam. The sun rose up from the waters. Its beams fell warm and kindly 
upon the chill sea foam. The little mermaid did not feel the hand of death. In the bright sunlight overhead, she saw hundreds of fair ethereal beings. They were so transparent that through them she could see the ship's white sails and the red clouds in the sky. Their voices were sheer music, but so spirit-like that no human ear could detect the sound, just as no eye on earth could see their forms. Without wings they floated as light as the air itself. The little mermaid discovered that she was shaped like them, and she was gradually rising up out of the foam. Who are you towards whom I rise? she asked, and her voice sounded like those above her, so spiritual that no music on earth could match it. We are the daughters of the air, they answered. A mermaid has no immortal soul, and can never get one unless she wins the love of a human being. Her eternal life must depend on a power outside herself. The daughters of the air do not have an immortal soul either, but they can earn one by their good deeds. We fly to the south where the hot poisonous air kills human beings unless we bring cool breezes. We carry the scent of flowers through the air, bringing freshness and a healing balm wherever we go. When for 300 years we have tried to do all the good we can, we are given an immortal soul, and we share in mankind's eternal bliss. You poor little mermaid, have tried with your whole heart to do this too. Your suffering and your loyalty have raised you up into the realm of airy spirits, and now in the course of three hundred years, you may earn by your good deeds a soul that will never die. The little mermaid lifted her clear bright eyes towards God's son, and for the first time her eyes were wet with tears. On board the ship all was astir and lively again. She saw the prince and his fair bride in search of her. They gazed sadly into the seething foam, as if they knew that she had hurled herself into the waves. Unseen by them, she kissed the bride's forehead smiled upon the prince, and rose up with the other daughters of the air to the rose-red clouds that sailed on high. This is the way that we shall rise to the kingdom of God after three hundred years have passed. We may get there even sooner, one spirit whispered. Unseen, we fly into the homes of men where there are children, and for every day on which we find a good child who pleases his parents and deserves their love, God shortens our days of trial. The child does not know when we float through the room, but when we smile at him in approval, one year is taken from our three hundred. But if we see a naughty, 
mischievous child, we must shed tears of sorrow. And each tear adds a day to the time of our trial. The end. Thank you for listening. If you've made it to this point, that is the end of this episode. I hope that you enjoyed it. Now would be a great time to hit that like and subscribe and head over to the main page to find another video to watch so we can get you the rest that you deserve. Until next time, thanks for being here and good night.